Advancing Vision by Louise Gray About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by chapter at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility Limited, formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility Limited on country code plus 61, area code 08-9311-8202 or by email library at visibility.com.au. This book is narrated by Tracy Parker, recorded by Susie Punch and is of six hours and five minutes duration. Contents. Forward, page three. Acknowledgements, page seven. Dedication, page 11. Introduction, page 15. Prologue, page 23. Chapter one. Blindness, so very much for the sighted world to learn, page 27. Chapter two. The Remarkable Story of a Small Society, 1913 to 1977, page 43. Chapter 3, Guide Dogs of Western Australia, page 65. Chapter 4, An Amalgamation and Journey Together, page 90. Chapter 5, These are the Stories of Visibility, page 117. Chapter 6, Building Independence into the 21st Century, page 135. Epilogue, page 153. References, page 155. Page 3. Forward. In 2013, Visibility celebrated 100 years of life-changing service to the Western Australian community. Beginning as the Ladies' Braille Society in 1913, Visibility has grown to deliver services to Western Australians who are blind or vision impaired in every corner of the state. In 1977, the Society joined with Guide Dogs for the Blind, the original founder of Guide Dogs in Australia in the 1950s. We're WA-based and proud of it. Proud to be an iconic WA not-for-profit organisation and proud to deliver services that inspire individuality, innovation and independence for Western Australians who are blind or vision impaired. Through Advancing Vision, we acknowledge and celebrate the wonderful achievements of those who have influenced Visibility's time before us and the exciting initiatives that will carry our organisation into the future. There are a great number of people who have played an instrumental role in our history and foundations the courageous women of the Ladies' Braille Society who continued their work through the Depression in spite of almost overwhelming obstacles, and Dr Arnold Cook, who firmly believed that WA could be home to Australia's first guide dog training school when many people in the industry thought it couldn't be done. Throughout its history, Visibility has fostered important partnerships with government, industry, the private sector and community groups to achieve the best outcomes for its consumers. 
It has a long-established and highly respected relationship with Lottery West and owes much to Dr. L.S. Stan Perrin and Jean Perrin and their family who have supported the organisation for more than 50 years and after whom Visibility's building, the Perrin Centre, is named in honour. I have great confidence that the next 100 years for our organisation will be of great achievement, continued change and development, innovation and technological advancement. We are truly embarking on an exciting new chapter in a contemporary and ever-changing sector. For visibility, the best is yet to come. Debbie Schaefer, Chair of the Board of Visibility. Page 7. Acknowledgements. My sincere thanks to the people who volunteered their time to be interviewed for this book. Their willingness to be involved provided wisdom and insight, which has enhanced this remarkable story. Their names are listed here. David Manera, Peter Hickson, Dr. L.S. Stan Perrin, A.M. Trevor Dawson, Jenny Dawson, Dixie Gunning, O.A.M. Carol Selossi, David Vosnakos, Dr. Margaret Crowley, Debbie Schaefer, O.A.M. Clifford Gooch, Elizabeth Needham, Gordon Bauer, Mark Druvens, Dinesh Bura, Phil Stanley. My sincere thanks to a small army of volunteer readers, especially John Honible, Kelly Prosser and Margot Rasmussen. Les Everett also waged a war on capital letters while reading the manuscript and deserves recognition for this. John Menzies walked our own dogs while I was preoccupied with telling the stories of visibility and guide dogs. I am grateful to him for this. I would like to acknowledge the help and support of Carol Selossi, a long-term employee and supporter of visibility. Her project management was invaluable. Finally, I would like to thank Debbie Schaefer, OAM, the current President of Visibility, and Dr Claire Allen, the Chief Executive Officer, for entrusting me with this history and providing me with the opportunity to explore and share this amazing story. Louise Gray, December 2014. Page 11. Dedication. The sighted world has much to learn about vision impairment. This book is dedicated to the thousands of individuals, both vision-impaired and sighted, who over generations have tirelessly, enthusiastically and generously contributed to Visibility and Guide Dogs WA. Throughout its history, the society or association changed its name in keeping with service delivery trends. The names are recorded here. Ladies Braille Society, 1913. West Australian Braille Writers Association, 1913. Braille and Advancement Society for the Blind of Western Australia, 1918. Braille Society for the Blind of WA, 1940. Guide Dogs for the Blind of WA was formed in 1951 and much later there was a merger of Braille Society for the Blind of WA and Guide Dogs for the Blind of WA. Association for the Blind of WA and Guide Dogs WA, 1977, Merger. Visibility and Guide Dogs WA, 2014. Regardless of the name, the vision impaired and blind of Western Australia were welcomed, included, trained, entertained and supported towards the primary goal of enabling a fulfilling life. 
Through this 100-year history, there has been one particular group of people without whom there would be no association. Volunteers have performed innumerable tasks, often over generations of the same family. These countless thousands have contributed as Braille transcribers, readers, administrators, board and committee members, auxiliary members, cooks, bakers, seamstresses, puppy raisers, mentors, fundraisers, and in many other roles. It is impossible to record all their names. This book is dedicated to them. Louise Gray. Author's Notes 1. The terms association and society are used interchangeably in reference to the organisation that is now Visibility and Guide Dogs WA. 2. I am forever indebted to the late Dr Paul Laffey, who undertook a detailed and comprehensive study of the association, in particular the early days. His work, in Braille Light, UWA Press, was completed and published in 2004. Sadly, Dr Laffey passed away before the launch of this book. In Braille Light is a thorough and accurate analysis of the factual records and documentation of the association's history from its establishment through until 1977. It will continue to serve this purpose and Dr Laffey's legacy will live on in this work. Readers interested in further details of the history of the association are referred to Dr Laffey's book. 3. While every effort has been made to reflect accurately the words, records and history of the associations over 100 years of service, any errors are the responsibility of the author. SS Esperance Bay, Mediterranean, 1st of July, 1950. My dearest Constant Constance, as you see from the address, the Cook family is on its way home. Enid and Susan and Drina are all well. The only misadventure to report is that I did not get through my doctorate in two years as hoped and have been told by my examiners to take another two years over it. I suppose I attempted too much. This means that I will submit my thesis for the PhD in two years' time. I suppose the Cook Pride can take it. I won't bother trying to tell you news this time, as ship life is hardly conducive to letter writing. Suffice it to say that the Esperance Bay is due in at Fremantle on the 27th of August, and as that is a Sunday, probably will not berth until Monday the 28th, if on time, and may well be some days late. At the moment, we are sailing on schedule and are less than two days from Malta. I am full of ideas about the starting up of guide dog training in Australia and would appreciate the chance to talk things over with you after we land. Many thanks once again for the kind hospitality rehousing. Very best wishes until we meet again. Please remember me to the President and Executive, and I will submit an official report after my arrival. Best wishes for the annual general meeting of the Braille Society if it takes place before I appear in my mountains of flesh. Please excuse even worse than usual typing, but my table is very low. Cheerio to everyone. Yours, etc. Arnold Cook. Constance Gibbon earned her nickname from Arnold Cook, Constant Constance, because of her long-standing volunteer service over many years to the organisation. Page 15. Introduction. A Braille page being read. Braille is an early invention which changed the lives of vision-impaired people. 
The concept has remained largely unchanged since the 19th century when it was invented by its namesake. Most people, even those who perhaps would not describe themselves as dog lovers, have seen and admired the magical partnership between a person with vision impairment and a working guide dog. The image of a loyal Labrador with the trademark soulful eyes harnessed to provide leadership, safety and support to a person who is blind or vision impaired is well known. How many have contemplated living with vision impairment? When blessed with sight, what does one know of the history, life, work, challenges, innovation and outstanding achievements of visibility and guide dogs Western Australia? There is so much more to this story than the guide dogs alone. For 100 years, the association has responded to clients who are vision impaired with dedication, commitment and real passion. Thousands of people over the years have contributed in their own way, many of them vision impaired, who want to give back to the association. This book aims to share this remarkable story, which began before World War I and continues today in the era of smartphones, advanced digital devices and many examples of assistive technology that support the association to achieve its strategic vision. That people who are blind or vision impaired share a quality of life equal to all other Western Australians. Soon after commencing this project, I happened to be passing through an airport. I visited the bathrooms and watched sighted people struggling with a hand soap dispenser. After successfully convincing the soap sensor to dispense its contents, these people waved their hands frantically under the tap nozzle trying to locate and activate the carefully concealed sensor to start the water flow. For those unable to locate the exact spot, a thoughtful sign tucked in an obscure spot under the shelf provided slightly more information. The sign was written in very small print with no braille assistance. Meanwhile, frustrated, would-be hand-washers made eye contact with each other, signalling their irritation. As one lucky person located the water flow, or soap, they would catch the eye of the person beside them and offer to show them the trick. Eventually, I left with clean hands and hoped that if a person with vision impairment sought to wash their hands, they would find such a helpful group of fellow users. Would sighted users notice all the additional challenges for a person who is vision impaired and provide additional cues? A few months later, I was at the main railway station in Hamburg, Germany, on a Saturday afternoon. Hamburg is Germany's second biggest city and the station was in absolute chaos because there was a strike affecting long-distance rail services. Consequently, the line-ups at information counters to find out about rerouted trains were lengthy. While waiting on one of the lines, I crossed my fingers hoping that when I was served, I would get a German person with some knowledge of the English language. The wait continued, and I saw two men come close to the line. One of them had a white cane and was obviously blind or seriously vision impaired, and the other was a sighted man whom I assumed was the blind man's travelling companion. The sighted man then left the blind man, and I expected him to return shortly. I waited on my line, observing the blind man who stood near the lines, but not in the queue, which of course he could not see. To my horror, I gradually realised that the man who was blind was alone,
and that the man I had assumed was a companion was most likely a stranger who had done a little bit by steering him towards the information counter, but had then left him. This man stood amid the chaos next to the lengthy lines, unable to see that the end of the line was some metres away. As I realised his dilemma, he too began to comprehend his situation and followed the sounds toward the front of the lines and the service counters. People waiting in the lines moved aside and let him in, so he eventually reached the information window, but no one said anything to him. I asked him if he spoke English, but he did not appear to understand my question. Eventually, the service staff called to him because they could see he was in a difficult situation. My own line moved forward, and finally it was my turn to try my luck to find out how to get to Berlin with the rail disruptions. When I finished at the counter, rerouted journey in hand, I turned to look for the blind man, but he was gone. He had disappeared into the milling crowd. It was a very humbling experience. My difficulties were nothing in comparison to an unaccompanied blind person, and I hoped that he had been able to resolve his travel problems. This experience was also a lesson in communication. My own frustration at being unable to assist because of the language barrier gave me some insight into the experience for a person with vision impairment. Next time you notice some braille signage, touch it and consider the skill it requires in recognising the clever six-dot pattern and making meaning from it. It is quite a challenge. The likely outcome is that you will have increased admiration for the significant skill involved in Braille reading, and for that matter, Braille writing. The work of Louis Braille, who was blinded at the age of five in 1814, lives on in his system for enabling people who are blind to read through their fingertips. The June 1962 edition of Braille, the magazine produced by the forerunner of visibility, noted that Braille societies bear a famous name. They perpetuate a splendid tradition. It is not easy for a blind person to succeed. It is harder if he or she is denied the opportunity. Imagine a life without sight. Close your eyes and review your daily personal tasks. Think about dressing, eating, drinking, shopping, driving, cooking, walking, sitting, cleaning, emails and mobile phones. What can you do with your eyes closed? How would you feel if this was permanent? The challenge is evident. Regardless of your imaginative skills, it is likely that you can never really know. This was a recurring theme during the interviews that accompanied the preparation of this book. This frustration was frequently expressed by people who had previous experience with eyesight and were now vision impaired. On the eve of World War I, a group of women sought to assist blind people. Their aim was to enrich lives with increased opportunities to read by preparing Braille text. The Ladies' Braille Society was formed and held its first meeting at the assembly rooms behind Trinity Church, which is still standing proudly on St George's Terrace, Perth, today. The first meeting was held on the 15th of August 1913, as noted by the Secretary, Mary McGregor, in her copperplate handwriting in the original minutes record. The ladies were keen to assist in the laborious preparation of Braille books and thereby provide increased reading materials and opportunities for the residents of WA who are blind. This opened up access to stories, 
poetry, instructions, sheet music and educational materials that were limited in the early days of the 20th century. The benefits to people who are vision impaired cannot be underestimated. World War I provided a catalyst for many initiatives related to services and interventions for people with vision impairment. Sadly, this was due to increases in blindness caused by exposure to mustard gas, explosions and other wartime injuries. The venerable ladies recognised the increase in demand as soldiers who were blind returned home and set to work transcribing Braille and teaching Braille literacy skills and the journey began. In 1951, events dramatically changed rehabilitation opportunities for people with vision impairment. Australia's first guide dog training organisation was formed in WA and in 1977 this organisation merged with the Braille Society to form the Association for the Blind of WA, renamed Visibility, in 2013. From humble beginnings, the modern association has become a leader on the information superhighway, providing services in WA and beyond. Lending Braille books and cassettes by post has gradually evolved to digitally accessible documents and alternative media production, in-house Braille transcription, translation, embossing and binding services, professional sound recording and the capacity to produce audiobooks from some of Western Australia's best publishing houses. Visibility is proud to be the largest digital library in the world, catering solely for clients with a print disability, and their collection and client base is always growing. In the 2013 financial year, 2,836 people received services from Visibility. Ten guide dogs were matched and trained. Forty-five guide dog partnerships were working in the community and supported by the organisation. 2,003 hours of orientation and mobility training were provided and more than 78,000 books were borrowed from the library. One hundred years after the little gathering in the Trinity Assembly Rooms, the organisation is a thriving, diverse and iconic WA charity. On the 28th of August, 1913, the West Australian newspaper observed that judging by the enthusiasm already shown by the ladies interested, the success of the society is practically assured. The same article concluded with Mary McGregor's address in Zabina Street, Mount Lawley, advising that she would be pleased to receive any donations and to give further information to anyone desirous of assisting in this work. The West Australians' predictions have proven to be accurate and despite many hurdles, McGregor's request is still being honoured today. Visibility is proud to deliver services that inspire confidence, improve wellness and create connection for Western Australians who are blind or vision impaired. The breadth of services the association provides, from low vision assessment and mobility support right through to early intervention services and assistive technology, makes a true one-stop shop for consumers who are blind or vision impaired. Debbie Schaefer, OAM, President, Visibility and Guide Dogs WA, 2013. Page 23, Prologue. The first story begins in Perth, Western Australia, in 1913, when the Federated State was only 12 years old and the population was just over 116,000. 
Perth is built on a wide river traditionally owned by the Noongar people, who named it Derbal Yerrigan. It is now known as the Swan River after the iconic black swans with bright red beaks that live there. The Darling Ranges border it to the east, and to the west lies the Indian Ocean. The gentle Mediterranean climate creates mild and pleasant weather for most of the year and promotes the blooming of the wildflowers for which Perth is well known. The Ladies' Braille Society was founded here in 1913. From humble beginnings, it continued to expand with name changes reflecting changing times, increased scope and growth. In fact, by the 28th of August 1913, less than two weeks after the first meeting, the name had already been changed to the West Australian Association of Braille Writers. This more inclusive title ensured that the association was not just a ladies' social group, but a functioning, committed group of people who hoped that vision-impaired people could have the opportunity, when the day's work is done, to turn to a good book. Mary McGregor, The West Australian, 28th of August, 1913. These inspired volunteers started by transcribing literature into Braille and expanded to teaching, social work and advocacy. Through World War I, 1914-18, they pressed on and by 1923 opened an aged care facility for elderly people who were blind. As the Depression hit, the association struggled with the challenges of its mission but continued to provide the state with community services for vision-impaired people, which continues today. The official story of the second association in this history begins in 1951, but the beginnings are also shadowed by the World War. They take place in the Lower Saxony region of Germany, not far from the city of Bremen, in the town of Oldenburg. Dotted with historic buildings, some dating back to the 15th century, the city is distinctly medieval. It was a world away from Perth. In 1917, Oldenburg's population of approximately 27,000 was starting to swell at a rapid rate, and it would double in the coming decade. The effects of war were becoming obvious as those who survived the battlefields and the horrors of the trenches returned with severe injuries. Poisonous gases, especially mustard gas, had devastating effects, damaging the skin and, in particular, the eyes. In the War Veterans Hospital in Oldenburg, many blind victims of poisonous gases were cared for. A doctor in this hospital, Dr Gerhard Stolling, made an observation while caring for a patient that would forever change the lives of blind and vision-impaired people. He returned to a patient after a short absence and noticed the intuitive care his German shepherd dog invested in the patient. His observation and his further research led to the opening of the first guide dog school for blind people in Oldenburg, which trained German Red Cross ambulance dogs who'd worked during the war. The German school gradually aroused interest in the English-speaking world, and through a combination of serendipity, enthusiasm and fortuitous decision-making, the way was paved for the unique story of guide dogs in Australia. The story of guide dogs in Australia is really the story of guide dogs in WA because it was in Perth in 1951 that guide dogs in Western Australia was formally constituted and this was the first major step on the journey of the Second Association. From 1951, both the Braille Society and guide dogs in Western Australia developed and evolved along a collaborative pathway. 
This gradually led to recognition that together more could be accomplished for vision-impaired clients. And in 1977, the Association for the Blind and Guide Dogs WA became one. In 2014, they are still one association known as Visibility WA. Page 27, Chapter 1, Blindness. So very much for the sighted world to learn. Braille can be used in all sorts of ways to provide information to vision-impaired people. In the modern age, and without personal experience of vision impairment, the sighted world remains largely distant from an intimate understanding of this disability. To set the scene for Visibility's story, the context of vision impairment through history and the lived experience is important to consider. Blindness in History Throughout history, blindness and vision impairment has been a recognised disability. The frequency, causes and responses to the disability have changed over time as solutions, preventions, surgical interventions and cures have been found. However, blindness remains a disability affecting significant numbers of people, particularly in developing countries. Attitudes towards blind and vision-impaired people have changed dramatically, in particular over the last 100 years. In early civilizations, those with disabilities could be abandoned, left to die or sold to slavery. Social stigmas existed because people suffering from vision impairment could not contribute to the welfare of the family unit and were reliant on others to care for them. Ancient Egyptian culture had a fascination with the human eye. The survival of papyrus scrolls, as well as the examination of art and mummified remains, provide great information about the practices and knowledge related to the eyes of this civilization. Evidence suggests that ancient Egyptians used artificial eyes made from alabaster and onyx, which sat on top of the sunken eye tissue in the ocular cavity. Other items resembling eyes made from silver and rock crystal have also been found. Medical prescriptions discovered on papyrus inscriptions also allude to the diagnosis and treatment of various eye conditions. Although it cannot be confirmed beyond doubt, it is believed that around 1525 BC, trachoma, cataract and glaucoma conditions were among those being treated. Treatments included surgical intervention and the application of roasted liver or ointments in an effort to cure the patient. Due to the embalming skills of the ancient Egyptians, autopsies on mummified bodies reveal that other eye conditions existed as well. Blindness and vision impairment have often been linked to a capacity to foretell the future through prophecy. In history, this concept finds its roots in varying stories, such as the story of Tiresias from ancient Greek mythology. Tiresias came across the goddess Athena while she was bathing, she blinded him, but he was given the gift of prophecy as compensation. St Didymus the Blind, a religious scholar of the 4th century, was said to be a seer due to his spiritual insight and prophetic ability. Largely fictional, the blind seer has come to represent the ability of a blind person to see a greater inner truth despite their blindness. During the Middle Ages, the social conscience in some European nations evolved to be more inclusive and considerate of those who were less fortunate. 
care systems and facilities began to emerge in communities, accommodating homeless and disadvantaged members of the general public. King Louis IX of France opened one of the first institutions for the blind in 1260 AD in the wake of a staggering defeat during the Sixth Crusade. He believed that the defeat of the Crusaders was an act of God against sinful people and required penance. He founded the Hospice de Quinze-Vingt as a residential facility for people with vision impairments. This ultimately served to protect vulnerable people by providing a facility for their care and housing. In 1784, the first school for blind and vision impaired people was opened in France. Called the Royal Institution for Blind Youth, it was founded by Valentin Ayoui. This move heralded the opening of schools across England and other European countries. While in the past institutions had sought to protect blind and vision impaired people, even allowing members to beg for profit, this shift into educating blind people was one that brought about a greater sense of accomplishment and independence to students. Ayoui, who believed that people who are blind could participate in learning as well as their sighted counterparts, pioneered methods for their teaching as well as opening the school. Ayoui himself had a fascination with tactile learning tools, and had implemented the use of maps with raised surfaces and embossed books to assist learning. Little did Ayoui know at the time, but his school would become the melting pot for the invention of Braille some years later. Louis Braille won a scholarship to the school in 1819 when he was ten, and was immediately recognized as a gifted student. Young Louis was inspired when he met a visitor to the school, Charles Babier, who discussed his invention for reading messages by touch in the dark, especially during warfare. In the world before flashlights and batteries, this was a useful skill. The concept of reading with fingertips captured young Louis's imagination, and he began to create an alphabet based on variations of six dots with enough capacity to represent the alphabet. Numbers and other symbols to assist with reading. This literacy tool has been adapted across the world. It has remained largely unchanged since Braille invented it, and he certainly deserves the honour of being remembered for the eponymous invention almost two hundred years later. In recent times, advancing technologies have led to an explosion of new sources of learning and independence for people who are blind. From devices that translate scanned documents and computer text into Braille or spoken word, to voice-to-text software, the possibilities seem endless. Attached to the emergence of technology, however, is a paradox: as the lives of people who are blind become more reliant on software technologies for independence, the need for Braille and the desire to learn Braille is in decline. While Braille is an important part of literacy for people who are blind, creating meaning and structure, only a small percentage now learn how to use it. Over visibility's 100-year life, other important tools to assist the independence of vision-impaired people have been developed. These include the use of guide dogs and white canes, which have complemented the development of and advances in orientation and mobility training. Responsive leadership in terms of ensuring maximum benefit for clients is obtained by remaining at the forefront of new technologies. This method has been a hallmark of visibility through its proud history. 
the association has always encouraged active community engagement for vision-impaired people while enhancing the public's perception of their capabilities and reducing artificial boundaries limiting what blind people can achieve. Australia's Contribution to Research and Advances Australia has had a pivotal role in some of the ophthalmic advances that have reduced the frequency and occurrence of some of the scourges that formerly affected people and caused vision impairment. Before 1860 in Australia, ophthalmology was a task left to general physicians to perform eye operations on patients. The history of Australian ophthalmology extends back to a physician sent as a convict to the colony in 1814. Dr William Bland was a surgeon in the Royal Navy when he killed an opponent in a duel and was sentenced to transportation to Australia. He was pardoned a year later, went on to perform a number of successful glaucoma operations in Sydney and later became prominent in Australian politics. Since these modest beginnings, ophthalmology in Australia has developed into the professional medical specialty field that it is today. In the 1870s, ophthalmic surgeons began to be appointed in hospitals and in 1899 Australia's first ophthalmic society was created. However, there was still no formal training available in Australia and aspiring ophthalmologists had to travel great distance to European schools to gain their education. It was not until 1944 that medical students had the opportunity to study ophthalmology in Australia. In 1941, an Australian ophthalmologist released an innovative paper that would bring the country into the limelight. Sir Norman McAllister Gregg was born in Sydney in 1892. He joined the British Expeditionary Force in France as a captain of the Royal Army Medical Corps after graduating with a medical degree. At the conclusion of World War I, he took up a medical residency at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in New South Wales. Dr Gregg travelled back to England in 1922 to study ophthalmology before returning to Australia and becoming a successful and highly regarded professional in this growing and developing field of medical science. There was a fierce outbreak of rubella in Australia in 1940 that was not brought under control until 1961. Thankfully, it was early in the epidemic that Greg made a connection between women suffering from rubella in the early stages of pregnancy and the effects manifested in their newborn babies. After encountering babies born with serious cataracts and congenital heart disease, all from varying backgrounds, the common circumstance of their mother's rubella infection was noted. The relative incidence of their ill health encouraged Greg to consider that this was more than coincidence, and serious research was undertaken. At the time of his discovery, the notion that a mother's ailment could have such a drastic effect on the health of her unborn child was one not uniformly accepted. Before this, it had been assumed that the placenta provided a highly protective barrier to external sources of potential harm. Although it took some years and further study by other doctors worldwide to become widely accepted, the concept has proved to be one that has helped prevent vision impairment caused by rubella and a myriad of other conditions and syndromes since. The vaccination programs for rubella have consigned this cause of congenital vision impairment to history. 
An Australian paediatrician, Dame Kate Isabel Campbell, made another major discovery in medical science that occurred at a similar time and has also helped to prevent serious and previously unexplained vision impairment. Dr Campbell was awarded scholarships to both Methodist Ladies College and then the University of Melbourne, where she studied medicine and surgery before completing a doctorate in medicine. At that time, she encountered great resistance from institutions and male doctors alike as she aimed to further her career as a doctor. However, she forged on to become one of the most respected doctors in the country. Dr Campbell began with an interest in women's health before she decided to move into paediatrics during her time at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Among many other discoveries that would benefit the care and understanding of newborn babies, her most significant discovery was the link between retrolental fibroplasia and the use of pure oxygen in the humicrib environment. Retrolental fibroplasia resulted in blindness in premature babies, but the cause was unknown. Dr. Campbell made the link between pure oxygen in the humidicrib and the onset of the disease. A relatively simple adjustment to lower the levels of oxygen and its regulation eradicated this disease. Dr. Campbell had solved the medical mystery. In 1946, the formal organisation of all medical specialties increased and the first registrars in ophthalmology came to reside in Australian general hospitals. In fact, the first ophthalmic registrar appointed to Royal Perth Hospital in 1962 was Dr Gordon Bauer, a distinguished ophthalmologist who served for many years on the board of the Association for the Blind in WA. Dr Bauer has a 50-year connection to the association, providing professional advice, offering ophthalmic services to clients of the association and providing leadership. The discoveries made by both Dr Gregg and Dr Campbell encouraged a surge of interest and research in ophthalmology in Australia, and their efforts culminated in them being jointly awarded the first Britannica Australia Award in Medicine in 1964. Dr Gregg was later knighted, and Dr Campbell was appointed to the Order of the British Empire, Dame's Commander, in 1971. A British doctor in Australia led the fight against another disease scourge that was identified in Australia, leading to a reduction of the spread of the disease and increased knowledge of prevention. Dr Ida Mann arrived in 1949 after becoming disillusioned with the impact of the introduction of the National Health Service in Britain. With her husband's health failing due to the cold climate in which they lived, their move to Perth was a welcome sea change. Three years after their move, Dr Mann's husband died. She was filled with a sense of adventure and embarked on travel to Outback Australia to assess the health of local Aboriginal communities. Before Dr Mann's visits, it had been believed that trachoma was uncommon in Australia. However, her assessment of Aboriginal people revealed that trachoma, known as sandy blight, was the leading cause of blindness. In some communities, it affected 80 to 90% of the population and took a devastating toll. At the request of the Western Australian Health Department, Dr Mann travelled extensively through remote Aboriginal communities, documenting the prevalence of trachoma and suggesting means by which it could be managed. At this time, trachoma had almost disappeared among mainstream communities, linked to advances in knowledge of hygiene practices. 
Dr. Mann's findings in Aboriginal eye health were a precursor to the work of Dr. Fred Hollows in outback communities some years later. In 1968, after meeting elders from the Gurindji tribe in the Northern Territory, Dr. Hollows met with community members only to discover a distinct lack of health care in the remote community and widespread trachoma. In 1971, Dr. Hollows opened the Aboriginal Medical Service in Redfern and between 1976 and 1978 was the director of an Australian government-funded project called the National Trachoma and Eye Health Project, NTEHP, which reached across Australia. The revolutionary project set out to rid rural communities of trachoma and eye conditions and screened 100,000 people in more than 465 communities in its time. Dr Hollows was awarded Australian of the Year in 1990. However, he turned down an Order of Australia for the work he completed during his service to the NTEHP, saying, This isn't the time to be accepting accolades for Aboriginal health. In more recent years, and with modern advances in the study of human genes and their contribution to disease, a world-first discovery in the treatment of glaucoma revealed that there are two genes making their carriers up to three times more likely to develop the disease. Working out of Flinders University, a team led by Associate Professor Jamie Craig and Research Fellow Dr Catherine Burden published their findings in 2011, opening up channels for the future of treatment in glaucoma. Vision Impairment Today Over time, as diseases causing blindness and the frequency of injury have declined, other causes of vision loss have developed. Consequently, while life expectancy has increased and the health of Australians has generally improved, vision loss remains one of the leading causes of disability. There are still many different origins of vision loss. The major sources are, according to the Federal Government Department of Health, age-related macular degeneration, cataract, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, refractive errors, eye trauma, and trachoma, as well as retinitis pigmentosa, amblyopia, eye cancers, stroke, complications of premature birth, and various infective agents such as herpes zoster and cytomegaly in people with HIV-AIDS. People suffering from age-related macular degeneration generally experience a gradual decrease in their central vision. The condition mostly affects the ageing population and is the leading cause of blindness in people over 40 in Australia. While there is no cure for macular degeneration, there are treatments available to help slow the condition. On the other side of the age spectrum, retinitis pigmentosa is the leading cause of vision loss among young people in Australia. Encouraging research is being conducted into treatments for the disease. However, as yet, there is nothing available. There are two conditions within Australia seemingly undertreated and contributing to approximately 75% of avoidable vision loss. Glaucoma arises mainly from pressure placed on the optic nerve and can ultimately lead to blindness. There are a number of treatments available to patients that help to either slow or suspend advancement. Due to the characteristics of the degeneration experienced from this disease, its presence is not easily detected until later stages, yet it remains a significant cause of blindness in Australia. 
The second cause of blindness remaining undertreated is trachoma. Historically, Australia provides the first ever evidence of trachoma in the world, with skeletons found in the Australian outback revealing the existence of the disease dating to 8000 BC. Trachoma is currently the leading cause of preventable blindness worldwide. Sadly, despite Australia's early efforts led by Dr Mann and Dr Hollows, Australia is the only developed nation with a high incidence of blindness caused by this disease. The majority of these cases occur in Aboriginal communities. Much effort has been put into eliminating trachoma as a source of blindness in rural areas since the first documentation of its prevalence. Endeavours to eradicate the disease have reduced the incidence, and while successful, the battle has not yet been won. People who have a minimal understanding of vision impairments may believe that to be considered blind, one must experience a complete loss of vision, including light perception. This is not the case. There are two main factors that define legal blindness. These pertain to the distance and width of an individual's field of view. In terms of distance, a legally blind person cannot see an object at 6 metres that a normal-sighted person can see at 60 metres. Similarly, people who experience a peripheral range of less than 20 degrees in diameter are also considered legally blind. Peripheral vision extends from a fixed central point with an average person experiencing 85 degrees either side of this. Legally blind people have less than 10 degrees of vision either side of a fixed point. The many variations in the experience of vision impairment create additional stress for those affected. For example, young people who are often diagnosed as teenagers with retinitis pigmentosa have to carefully protect their remaining vision and live in constant fear that their limited window of sight will close. And with this disease, it often does. Therefore, it is not surprising that depression and anxiety feature as additional health issues. Over 40,000 people in WA are either blind or vision impaired. People experiencing vision loss in Australia are twice as likely to require assistance for other areas of their health, from falls as a result of impaired vision, to an increase in the likelihood of depression. Their health is also at risk through injuries from unseen glass, half-open doors, steps, uneven footpaths, car doors and traffic. Lived experience. The experience of being blind is challenging for people with sight to imagine, and indeed there can be no doubt that it is not possible for the sighted to fully comprehend. Conversation, for example, is very important as a communication method for people with vision impairment, yet a typical conversation involves body language, facial cues and gestures that they cannot access. Simple expressions like over here and over there, lose all meaning. Left and right need further explanation. An illuminating account of the challenges experienced by a vision-impaired person and the wisdom that they have to impart in promoting understanding to the sighted world can be found in the letters of an association member from a bygone era. Phyllis Martin, trained as a nurse in WA in the late 1940s and worked for many years until her retinitis pigmentosa reduced her vision to the point where she could no longer work. Martin had a long connection with the association before finally becoming a patient in the rest home. 
she conducted a lively, at times humorous and illuminating correspondence with an old school friend named Kate, who had relocated to England. Kate asked for Martin's advice about her sister-in-law Jean, who had been blinded in an accident. Everyone in Kate's family was affected by the accident because they were finding Jean very difficult to manage. Martin described her own horror as the night blindness that she had always experienced progressed as the disease developed. Her situation was made worse because much less was known about the disease in her time. She agreed to help Kate by providing information about the experience of being severely vision impaired and the best ways that family members could support Jean. Fifty years after they were first written, her words are still valuable and insightful. I accept your challenge. I shall try to write to you about how a blind person should be treated. Sometimes you will have to put up with slices of autobiography. Now to my rotten old retinitis pigmentosa. It is hereditary and it is progressive, and it would seem that it is well nigh impossible for people to understand. No need, I suppose, to tell you that the retina is composed of light-sensitive cells and that this is where the image is formed. The cells are tightly packed in the tiny central portion. It is here that detail is dealt with, for instance reading, also colour. A good light is necessary for this part of the retina to function. The peripheral and much larger part of the retina deals with a wide field of vision in a more vague manner, it operates in a dim light and is very quick to pick up movement. We orientate ourselves and move about among obstacles by means of this larger part of the retina. My peripheral field has almost entirely had the bomb. Thus, the peculiar situation of my being able to read in a good light and yet having to feel my way about as though entirely blind frequently falling over objects, yet sometimes by chance seeing something in detail quite a way ahead. It is termed tunnelled vision, like looking through two long pipes. I am often hurt by people saying, My word, you have got good sight, or you can see better than I. I am registered as blind. There is a constant sense of moving light, and I get sudden attacks of terror, particularly if the light is dim. People say, can't you get stronger glasses? It's rather like suggesting new shoes for a fellow who's lost his legs. I suppose I have had this disease all my life. I was about 16 when I realised that I was different from other people. The symptoms then were mainly night blindness and at times an effect of moving lights which made reading a strain, although I could focus quite well. Do you remember that horrible game, Moonlight, Starlight, Bogey Won't Be Out Tonight? It was played at the end of a children's party while we were waiting to be called for. A game of chasey in the dark. I used to be terrified, but would not have dreamed of telling anyone. I went to see an eye specialist when I was about 17, was prescribed spectacles, and my night blindness was tried out in his consulting room. I fell over his radiator. I did not know whether at that stage he was unable to reach a diagnosis or whether he thought it wiser not to tell me. Certainly I was not informed. To return to my story, my visual fields became steadily smaller. Falls were more frequent. It was an embarrassment to fall over an article such as a vacuum cleaner in the middle of the ward at the hospital. Nervous tension mounted. To quote an eye specialist, whom I consulted for the first time a little later, of course it did, 
people are expecting more of you than you were capable of giving. Recently, my eye condition has become a great deal worse. It seemed almost stationary for a few years. Attacks of terror have set in. There is a physical feeling which I just cannot describe and a violent urge to run. But there is nowhere to run to. It occurs more often at dusk or at night or in a crowd of people all moving about or talking at once. This last situation, of course, can largely be avoided. I wonder if all blind people go through this acute distress, or is it a special feature of retinitis pigmentosa, the gradual closing in? I can understand sudden blindness causing strong emotional reactions. With me, it must have been caused by living under stress all my life with a great dread somewhere there behind everything. I now use a stick because I've had a few near misses with cars, horrible screeching brakes, and I came to realise that it was not being fair to the motorist to march across the road with no side vision to inform me of an oncoming car. The stick plays the role of a badge to warn the driver of a hazard. A wee boy asked me the other day how my stick helped me to see. I wish it did. No wonder you find your sister-in-law difficult. I think her high degree of intelligence would probably cause a high degree of frustration. I would advise you to continue frequent visits regardless of the apparent lack of appreciation. Don't talk too much. Practice being a good listener. Don't grab her by the arm to lead her. Ask her if she would like to take your arm. Of course, there are a number of practical helps given to the blind. Guide dogs, sheltered workshops, talking books use of the white cane, and tuition in reading Braille. Social workers and occupational therapists help in a number of ways, usually with great kindness and a total lack of the charity-patient attitude. You can easily find out what is available in your district if you have not already done so. Yes, I agree with you that the blind man must do his part in telling the other fellow what he needs and in putting him at his ease. I agree with you, Kate. There is no argument. A human relationship is always, by definition, a two-way affair. But the blind man is handicapped. He cannot see the expression on your face or that you are, at the moment, grabbing the hand away from the pan of boiling fat. Often, after being hurt too many times, he may have developed either an aggressive or a lick-your-boots attitude to life. Certainly, people behave in a queer, unimaginative manner. For instance, when I show my blind pass on boarding a bus, the driver almost always silently nods his head. In the interests of all blind people, I can still see a little, I usually ask, all right, in the hope of stimulating at least a grunt from the man. He is probably a very decent fellow, kind to children and animals. He just does not think. I must tell you of a rather peculiar way of acting which intrigues and puzzles me. It is quite common. Some friend is leading me in the dark. We come to some steps. As we go up or down each step, she says one, two, three, etc. in a loud, clear voice. Naturally, this is no help to me at all. As I make each step, I know I have done so. They are invariably kind people doing their utmost to help. Why do they do it? The only similar situation that I can think of is that of an adult helping a toddler to walk. Does embarrassment cause this psychological hook-up? If so, it is neatly transferred to me as all eyes turn in our direction. 
Try not to be hurt by Jean not appearing to want you as a guide. I am afraid I have upset a few people by showing my lack of trust in them as guides. Try to gain her confidence by being very much at your ease. Do not do anything that will call attention to her in public. Let it appear that you are arm in arm because you like it that way. Tell her of steps or rough ground before you get to them and just say quietly now when you are there. Always let her know if there is a long flat walk ahead of you or when you enter a building if it is all one level. Give the poor dear the benefit of a little relaxation. There is another little way in which my friends sometimes unthinkingly hurt me. They lead me along carefully, put me in the car, shut the door firmly, and then continue their conversation outside. I feel excluded. Then there is what I might term treating the blind person as an object. Someone calls out, If you take Phil, I'll carry these two cases. Or perhaps, well, I parked round the side because I thought it would be easier to get Phil in. A friend may very kindly take me into a shop and then spoil it all by proceeding to tell the assistant what I need, as though I were not present. There are so many normal things the blind person cannot do that he can be rather jealous of his remaining rights. Thank you, Kate, dear. I was touched by your words. I too have been helped. To spread things out and look at them seems to nourish the soul. Just a very short time now and you will be in Australia. How I long to see you both. Extract from Letters to Kate, received by the Association, 8th of May, 2000, from Pam Oldham. As evidenced in these letters, the adult loss of vision through accident or illness brings with it additional emotions, anger, grief, loss and increased dependence. New learning is required. All this adds to the challenges of adjusting to changed circumstances. In some cases, optimism and hope are held out for surgical interventions. A writer named Peter Sumner captured some of these difficulties in his book Through Blindness, co-written with his wife, Pearl Sumner, and Helen Manning. In his book, Peter Sumner tells the story of the split second in 1962 when the course of his life changed forever. He stumbled while on a scaffold when he was renovating a building. He sought to stop a bucket of whitewash from falling to the ground. Instead, it splashed into his face, burning his nose, eyes and mouth. Sumner was terrified when he realised he had damaged his eyes. The quick actions of a friend who washed his nose and throat with a hose saved his life, but it was too late for his eyesight. After he woke up in hospital, he thought that he could not see because of the thick wad of bandages around his head. He was devastated when he realised that he had lost his vision. He had a number of operations, but none was successful, and he learned that it was unlikely that his sight would return. Sumner learned Braille, and was also later teamed with a guide dog. He continued an active working life, meeting and marrying Pearl, who was also vision impaired. Some ten years after his initial accident, medical and specifically ophthalmic knowledge has advanced and a subsequent attempt at a corneal transplant was made. He was hopeful that his vision would be restored. Several days after his surgery, his bandages were removed and to his great joy, the figures in white, that he thought might be hallucinations, turned out to be the medical staff in his room and he realised he could see them. He was thrilled and emotional and said, 
At this point, I broke down and wept. Overwhelmed by the whole experience, I could only sob with relief. I can see, I can see, I can really see. Page 142, Through Blindness. For those blessed with functional vision, there are some hurdles and emotional blows that are difficult to imagine. A few hours later, for the very first time, Sumner saw his wife and his two children, at that time aged six and four. He also looked through his wedding album. He was reduced to tears again when he saw the beauty of a vase of flowers with their vivid colours. In great excitement, he appreciated and visually feasted on almost every sight he saw. Resisting the urge to take the lift to the hospital rooftop and to shout my good news to the world, I walked back along the corridor and through the ward, gazing in wonder at everything along the way. I stared with fascination at people's faces and the colours all around. How could I have forgotten? Even the hospital walls looked beautiful. My dramatic return to the ward as a sighted person caused quite a stir among patients and nurses alike. They were almost as thrilled as I was over the restoration of my vision. Page 142, Through Blindness. Tragically, only six and a half days later, the corneal graft was rejected by his immune system and he was dealt a savage blow as his window of vision closed again. The emotional impact was devastating as Sumner reconciled this additional loss, especially after he experienced the sight of his wife and his children for the first time. He said, It's one thing to know a person, one thing to love people dearly and to live with them day by day, but it's quite another thing, more wonderful than words can describe, to see them for the very first time face to face. Page 144, Through Blindness. For those blessed with functional vision, there are some hurdles and emotional blows that are difficult to imagine. People get it on one level that you can't see, but on another level, they don't get it. Jenny Dawson, association member, disability educator and advocate, wife, mother, client, and current board member of Visibility. Jenny Dawson has no light perception, the most extreme absence of vision, and wears prosthetic eyes. She has a warm and lovely manner, positive outlook, and a great sense of humour. She is highly amused by compliments about her beautiful blue eyes. They are, in fact, prosthetic and necessary to avoid shrinkage that would turn her eyelashes inward and prevent her from opening her eyes. Jenny met her husband, Trevor Dawson, who is also vision-impaired, through the association when he taught her how to operate a switchboard. Trevor Dawson has also been very active in visibility over many years, he was born a premature baby before the work of Dr. Kate Campbell had influenced treatment in cribs. Trevor Dawson experiences only very limited light perception because of the damage done to his optic nerve in the humidicrib by the time he was three days old. He has been a board member, employee of the association, client and mentor over more than 40 years. Interview conducted the 2nd of May 2014. Page 43, Chapter 2, The Remarkable Story of a Small Society, 1913 to 1977. In 1913, when John Scadden was Premier of Western Australia, the population of Perth was 116,181, and the University of Western Australia had just opened its hallowed halls of learning, a small meeting took place. 
The meeting was held in the Trinity Assembly Rooms, part of the Trinity Church complex on St George's Terrace. This small group was composed primarily of women who met to establish the Ladies' Braille Society. It was a women's group amid many other women's groups of the time, many now lost to history and record. The intention of the Braille Society was to carry out the laborious task of transcribing Braille books to enable people with vision impairment to access the world of literature. Two of the ladies in this original group were sisters, and they had a brother who was blind. The intimate knowledge of the hardship he endured and potential benefit that access to literature would give him no doubt gave them the necessary encouragement and fortitude to persevere. Besides transcribing Braille, the Society also dedicated itself to teaching Braille to blind and vision-impaired people. After only one meeting, the name was changed to the West Australian Braille Writers' Association, WABWA the first example of inclusivity which has been a hallmark of the association over its hundred-year history. At the same time, tensions in Europe were mounting and the world was hurtling towards a bloody conflict that would rage for four years. The shadow of World War I shaped events, proving to be small steps towards the evolution of the modern association. Western Australia seemed far away from Europe, yet the war threatened to disrupt the fledgling association from ever establishing itself. The early years were marked by struggle, lack of funds, wartime shortages and competition from myriad other no less worthy causes in a time when state welfare did not exist. By 1915, four men from an early group of volunteer Braille transcribers had enlisted. Three died and one returned, badly wounded. At this point, the association had only 20 transcribers and a similar number of beginners. Despite this, they produced a number of Braille books in 1915, including the Australian classic Seven Little Australians by Ethel Turner. A small group of connected volunteers in the association formed a nucleus that fought to survive. The secretary, Mary McGregor, her sister, Elizabeth Blakely, and their cousin, Mrs. H. E. Camper, led the group. The importance of the role of the original Ladies' Braille Society committee members is pivotal, and the records cited by Paul Laffey made him suspect that the McGregor cell was absolutely vital to the group's beginning. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 12. However, at times McGregor despaired, noting in their fourth year... It seemed almost impossible to continue owing to the great decrease in the number of our voluntary workers and financial supporters. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 26. Despite these trials, the Young Association survived, identifying in 1919 that its aim was to assist the blind to live more normal lives. Undated manuscript, The Lady Braille Writers. While there was universal optimism at the end of World War I, there was increasing need for Braille services. Many soldiers returned from war blind. The association, as it had already done before and would continue to do throughout its history, joined forces with other agencies, including the Returned Soldiers Association and later the Aftercare Committee of the Returned Soldiers Association to assist affected soldiers. 
In 1918, there was a name change to the Braille and Advancement Society for the Blind of Western Australia, BASBWA, signalling an intention to survive, thrive and advance the services available to the blind. The ladies, just ten years on. Besides withstanding their challenges, the ladies made remarkable progress in their first decade. Three name changes over this time reveal the group's growing aim to improve the overall welfare of blind citizens of WA. The Braille writing activities had progressed to specific writing to enable two students affected by blindness to matriculate from secondary school and qualify for university entrance. This worthy goal necessitated real commitment because of the size of the task and the time pressure based on class-subject timetables. The work and labour to produce textbooks can only be imagined. A book the size of a modern dictionary would be 20 volumes in a Braille version. A Bible can be as many as 40 volumes in Braille and weigh over 60 kilograms. Not only did the association coordinate Braille writers to transcribe books, it also marshalled volunteers to read texts to students to assist in their learning. The students were part of the institute that provided education for students who were blind at a time when the school system was not inclusive. With the word institute, the association was referring to what was then known as the Victoria Institute and Industrial School for the Blind, established in honour of Queen Victoria's Jubilee celebrations in 1897. However, even in these early days, the association wished to distinguish itself from the institute. It intended to work cooperatively, but the difference was spelled out early and reinforced through the years. The Institute housed a Braille library, and this was the library the Association intended to fill with Braille books in those early years. In 1921, two students from the Institute, Harold Ackland and Joan Lowenson, passed their matriculation exams in five subjects and enrolled at UWA. This was an early, powerful and successful example of significant efforts to enhance quality of life for two young people affected by vision loss. In 1920, the outcomes of the Welfare for the Blind conference provided further evidence that the group was maturing and evolving. Resolutions were made to work cooperatively with the Institute for fundraising and administrative purposes but the association also demonstrated how progressive it intended to be. Five subcommittees were formed to deal with the issues of the library and club rooms, entertainment, a rest home for elderly blind people, visiting and home teaching programs, plus welfare relief and the investigation of problems. The range and focus of the committees is indicative of the group's broad scope and future intentions. Committee members were interested in holistic approaches long before this word was used in this context. They recognised the diverse needs of affected individuals and the importance of well-structured endeavours to respond. These early ambitions have been achieved and extended for 100 years. The group's identity was further strengthened by an exchange with the Institute to enable home teaching of Braille and home visiting to become an activity of the Braille Society. The little steps grew bigger, and as the workload increased, further formal evolution occurred. McGregor, who had been volunteering her time since the founding of the association, was given a salary of £3 per week, 
She was clearly a tireless worker, and in 1926 it was reported that she had conducted 980 visits to people who were blind during the year. The group had even larger dreams. In the early 1920s, the association was aware of poverty-stricken individuals, particularly those aged without family support. There were few options, and the available homes for old men and women were grim solutions for those with vision, much less for impoverished blind and elderly people. One of the subcommittees established in 1920 focused on the need for a rest home for the elderly blind. This need, identified so early in the association's history, provides insight into the commitment and legacy of this early band of supporters. The meeting on the 4th of May 1921 was momentous. A decision was made to take definite steps to develop a rest home. What followed was a triumph. Only three weeks elapsed between the decision to take definite steps and the ink drying on a large mortgage contract, not bad going for an organisation which still did not own a desk. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 32. The modern association no longer uses the rest home model, but the outcomes of the fortuitous decision still resonate. The land, purchased in 1921, provided the association with a large, central, accessible site from which remarkable services are still delivered. The early efforts of the devoted committee reflected initiatives gaining momentum across the world, particularly as the optimistically named Great War drew to its bitter close in 1918. St Dunstan's in the United Kingdom was established to assist war veterans who had eye damage. Across the British Empire, returning servicemen sometimes had experience of better services available for those with vision impairment. St Dunstan's inspired the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, CNIB, and this initiative was strengthened by the Canadian Free Library for the Blind that draws some interesting parallels with the WA Braille Association. In 1906, a small band, recognising the importance of universal access to literature for blind people, created a national organisation that lobbied to remove postage costs and distribute Braille text for Canadians who are blind across a national landscape bigger than Australia. Servicemen returning home were often the identified target group for initiatives. St Dunstan's and the Canadian counterpart both had an initial charter related to services for blind or vision-impaired war veterans. However, by the 1920s, in both the United Kingdom and Canada, this had evolved to include blind citizens. In contrast, the WA Association did not ever make a distinction related to worthiness in the context of eligibility for support or services for clients. From its inception, the Association sought to create improved opportunities for all blind citizens across every facet of life. From around 1921, a subtle shift is evident in the Minute Book Notes. They have moved into a new office at the Royal Bank Chambers. A new self-confidence emerges, and with it, a stronger sense of identity. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 37. As forward-thinking as these Perth pioneers were, in purchasing land, fundraising, and opening the rest home for the blind within a matter of two years, 
they were influenced by contemporary notions of charity and assumptions of dependence related to vision-impaired people of the time. They called the residents inmates, kept them segregated across gender lines and sternly discouraged intimate relationships between residents. However, a home, comfort and companionship was a big step forward compared to the alternatives for the residents of the rest home. The group continued to rise and meet the challenges of a multifaceted community service organisation. The association now had a permanent office and no longer gave its braille books to the institute, but instead established its own library. By 1925, there were two staff members, a typewriter and a telephone, and a clear intention to deliver a variety of services. However, the years leading up to the beginnings of the Great Depression in 1929 seemed to indicate that the blind of Western Australia were already struggling with economic deprivation from 1924 onwards. It is impossible to miss that the group was already facing a flood of supplicants needing money, clothes, food, firewood, shelter, even basic medical care. The Braille group was to be stationed, all but unpaid and barely recognised, at the front line of Western Australia's social welfare services. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 40 to 41. These were challenging times for all, and the committee members were kept busy with the needs of the blind community at large and the substantial undertaking they had to operate the rest home. Between the wars and the rest home... Matron E. M. Lucas was in charge of the rest home over a long period of its history. Due to her lengthy tenure, Matron Lucas had a cottage at 61 Kitchener Avenue, Victoria Park, named after her. Her long and devoted service is evident in her handwritten report book. The matron's record book was the method by which the Braille Association Committee was kept informed of events in the rest home. The records reveal a constant series of challenges, including leaking toilets, ineffective repairs, vermin infestations, staff changes, unsatisfactory cooks, lazy laundresses and night wardens who slept on the job. The tales of woe are interspersed by tales of kindly milkmen who donated three gallons of milk and a pair of ducks, regular gifts of beef tongue and lamb from the butcher and other gifts of eggs and seasonal produce from supporters. The radio was a constant source of frustration because it seemed often to be broken. Radio has been an important source of interest, entertainment and information for vision-impaired people. In the 1930s, before mobility training and increased levels of independence, this link to the world was even more important. One can only sympathise with an employee being forced to justify an essential and relatively inexpensive purchase like a clothesline. We should appreciate new lines and drying space. The lines are joined in many places, causing tears in the sheets. The staff, who are good workers and most kind to inmates, have asked that you will give the enclosed request your kind consideration. The 7th of the 7th, 1936. Matron E. Lucas. Record book. ABWA. Box 7. The day-to-day -day life of a nursing home for elderly blind people in the 1930s is mapped in the record book. The problems with the Monday volunteer reader who read so quietly no one attended her readings are documented. 
the difficulties caused by a certain gentleman who had some sight and yet struck a totally blind resident was noted along with additional complaints about his bad language and reprehensible behaviour. Other residents had to be continuously washed and changed throughout the day due to toileting problems. In one case, Matron added that the gentleman did not seem to know where he was. From a modern perspective, the perhaps undiagnosed dementia experienced by this particular gentleman arouses our sympathy. Eventually, due to his poor mentality, he was moved to the infirmary. At times, other clients were also described as being strange in their ways, and the undiagnosed mental illness appears very obvious by today's standards of awareness. One poor resident asked the matron to stop the birds calling him a bastard. The suggestion from matron, no doubt, overloaded with the demands of her charges, was that the resident move to another home. The resident replied that the birds followed him wherever he went and continued to call him names. There were continuous complaints about shared rooms, especially when a resident was coughing constantly through the night. Coughing was viewed unfavourably because of the as yet unresolved scourge of tuberculosis, TB. Residents who coughed suspiciously were immediately tested for TB, and if the test was positive, they were quickly moved to the Wooroloo Sanatorium to be isolated. One resident wrote plaintively from Wooroloo, desperate to come back to the Braille home, but whether he was successful is not recorded. Cough mixture itself seems to be a source of conflict. It was something residents were expected to provide for themselves. However, the thriftless ones, according to Matron, demanded cough mixture from the rest home staff. Matron asked the committee in June 1937 whether it wished to supply these residents. One can imagine the matron's frustration at having to deal with complaints about coughing by residents who would not or could not buy cough mixture. It was not all doom and gloom. The kindly Dr Peacock seemed to visit very regularly, and considering the great age of some of the clients and medical knowledge in the 1930s, residents seemed to do well in the rest home, or braille home, as it was often known. There were many cheerful events like regular visits by the Sunday school children from the Methodist Church and Church of Christ. When they visited in August 1936, they brought oranges and flowers and sang hymns. No doubt these were welcome gifts and the entertainment was valued. A frequent comment by the matron was that the old people were very cheerful and content and there have been no petty quarrels between them. Occasionally, residents were asked to leave, but the matron was suitably discreet about the reasons, noting on one occasion that he was the disturbing element of the place. In March 1937, one resident, Mrs Todd, was the recipient of a complete set of false teeth, both top and bottom. She had been 20 years without any teeth. She finds them most exceedingly comfortable. Other residents were taken to the dental hospital to have all their teeth extracted after having a bad time with them. Complete extraction and replacement with sets of false teeth was the standard treatment for serious tooth decay in the days before modern dentistry alternatives. The home certainly provided for residents into their advanced years. On the 7th of December 1937, the matron noted... Mr. Hicks is rather low and cannot take much nourishment. She then adds, 
He will be ninety-two in March. Mr. Hicks died five days later. At the same time, another gentleman moved in and quickly became greatly attached to one of the women in residence. He then decided that because she was totally blind, marriage would not be advisable. He told the matron that he could see quite well enough and there was not enough to do in the rest home, and he moved out. Less than three months later, he had a change of heart. He married a female resident, whom he, we assume, was the unnamed lady of the preceding report to whom he had become greatly attached. Soon after, the matron reported that the newly minted couple paid a visit to the Braille home and that they appeared happy together. Lucas was the first matron, and as often happens with the association, her connection was for a lifetime. She ultimately became a resident of the nursing home in her later years and was awarded life membership of the association. Dr Peacock was also awarded life membership. Many activities, many stories. The activities of the Braille Association were somewhat dominated by the rest home, and between the wars, Braille transcription and home teaching suffered a decline. Paul Laffey noted that only eight blind people learned Braille in 1935, certainly not enough to keep the library flourishing and promote literacy for people who were blind. The association, as it is done throughout its history, sought the opinions of its members and also did some self-reflection in 1939. The library's collection was reported to be boring. According to Laffey, the quality of the Braille transcription was also poor and rendered some texts illegible. This led to a move to ensure that there was certification in place to guarantee the proficiency of the Braille volunteers and improve the standards of the texts. Other improvements followed, including the formal cataloguing of the collection and the establishment of free lending from the Braille Library to Braille libraries in other states of Australia. The library developed and expanded from this point. Indeed, by 1950, it took a troop of approximately 40 schoolboys to move the collection of 6,000 volumes when the society relocated. The situation with home visiting and Braille teaching was more challenging. After World War I, the time for optimism was relatively short-lived, and the Depression era was a time of hardship for many. The situation for the frequently forgotten people who were vision-impaired must have often been dire. World War II, 1939 to 1945, put the whole of Australia back into a war effort and impacted again on the opportunity for the association to provide the range and number of services that it knew were needed. By 1947, the Braille Society's annual report notes Mrs Walker, the home visitor, had made... 1,200 visits for the year. She has investigated 22 new cases. She gives practical assistance in the form of shopping, sewing, teaching Braille, arranging business appointments, and also acts as a guide. A special comforts fund allows her to take suitable small gifts on all her visits. Reported in Laffey, in Braille Light, page 60. It is surprising that Walker stayed in the role for almost two decades. The number of visits she undertook was, on average, a whopping 24 per week. A bicycle was her only available transport, so the task of cycling across the growing city through the hot Perth summer to perform these services demonstrates true commitment. 
Eventually, Braille and typewriting lessons were centrally provided. By shining the spotlight on one of the teachers of this time, much can be learned about the association. Breaking Through Barriers, a Dedicated Teacher Kathleen Toomey was a long-serving teacher involved with the Braille Society from 1920 when she became blind through to 1975. Toomey was blinded at a time when medical knowledge of the causes, much less solutions, was limited. She had aspired to be a fashion buyer and had worked in a number of retail businesses. Once diagnosed with blindness, my people wouldn't hear of me going back to study. They wanted me to stay home and they would look after me. J.S. Batty Library, Oral History Program, 14th of March, 1979. Interview with Miss Kathleen Toomey by Chris Jeffrey, Oral History Officer. Fortunately for many people, Toomey refused to go along with this plan. She enrolled for business training, paid her money in advance, and did not say anything about her blindness. When she turned up for classes, she was told by the secretary, We can't teach you. Fate intervened when the head of the typing school, a thoughtful Miss Dundas, said to the secretary, You don't know whether we could teach Miss Toomey or not. She can stay for the night and see what she can do. No doubt, due to hard work, Toomey triumphed and completed the course successfully. Her subsequent long and distinguished teaching career spanned the years from 1944 to 1975, and she taught touch typing, braille, and braille shorthand. Once again, as with World War I, the Second World War increased demand, and Toomey began working at Hollywood Repatriation Hospital. She had three classes of blinded soldiers, with ten students in each class. During this time, a newspaper requested a photo opportunity with Toomey and her class group. She categorically refused this. My people have never liked publicity. J.S. Batty Library, Oral History Program, 14th of March, 1979. Interview with Kathleen Toomey by Chris Jeffrey, Oral History Officer. She also noted during her interview in 1979 that three of her pupils passed their leaving certificates for their final year of high school. She taught them stenography, and they all passed with distinction. And that was the proudest moment of my life. Peter Johnson is in the Crown Law Department, Ken Brown is in the Education Department, and Leslie Buchanan is at the Technical College. Another of her numerous pupils wrote a letter of thanks to her that was published in an edition of Braille, the magazine for those with vision, and also the journal of the Braille Society for the Blind in WA. To whom it may concern. This is to certify that Miss K.T. Toomey, a typing instructress of the Braille Society for the Blind of Western Australia Incorporated, 133 Newcastle Street, Perth, has taught me... Archibald Joseph Jemison, of the above address, to touch type sufficiently to type air letters to my daughter, her husband, and her three children in the United States of America, to Mrs. Jemison's relatives and friends in the United Kingdom and elsewhere, and such business letters as I may have to attend from time to time. This was all notwithstanding my defective vision and the fact that I could only use my right hand due to cerebral thrombosis and the hemiplegia resulting from my nine major and minor strokes. Miss Toomey, I would like to thank you for your kindness to me and your achievements with me, a pupil with so many physical defects. 
Mrs. Helen Jemison also desires me to express her thanks to you. Signed, Archibald Joseph Jemison. Letter from Satisfied Customer Section of Braille Magazine, issue December 1964, Volume 2, Number 2. There are many records demonstrating how much Toomey's pupils appreciated her efforts. It is interesting to consider the changes in language evident in Jemison's letter. Jemison describes himself in a negative way after his many health issues, implying he was not worthy of Toomey's support. His overwhelming gratitude for the help he received is obvious in an era where the fundamental rights for the people with a disability were not recognised. In Western Australia, as elsewhere, they, the blind, were not expected to labour in the everyday world, but rather to keep to the decent obscurity of the sheltered workshop. There they could make their contribution without cluttering up the smooth progress of the busy outside world. In short, the aim of those afflicted was to limit one's horizons, to avoid imposing oneself on others, in effect, to buckle under. There was little anticipation of genuine social autonomy. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 66. Throughout her career, Toomey sought to fight against this narrow viewpoint that placed limits on her students. One of her former pupils, Herman Dortland, paid tribute to her, saying, She used to say if you wanted to be involved with the sighted world, you had to keep up with the sighted world. Toomey's resistance to having her photo taken or drawing attention to herself and her students indicates that she might have been embarrassed to see her obituary in the Eastern Suburbs Reporter newspaper after she died at the age of 92 in 1986. The newspaper reported that when she retired at the age of 81, there was an uproar at the association because she was so popular. Dorland, who was interviewed by the newspaper about his former teacher, remembered her fondly and ensured that she was acknowledged. The gift of Toomey's teaching enabled many of her former pupils to make contributions to the association. For example, Dorland was a very active guide dog owner, worked for street appeals and played many other roles in the association. He is remembered on the Building Our Vision board at the front of Visibility's headquarters. Toomey's legacy, through her many pupils and contacts, was a lasting gift. Dancing, picnics and Christmas cheer. From its very early days, the association was famous for the social life it created and promoted for clients. There were picnics on the edge of the Swan River at Peppermint Grove, boat trips on the river and regular dances. One can imagine the pleasure these events gave with opportunities for the clientele to experience new scents, sounds and the feel of cool breezes. These experiences may have been denied without the association's role. In addition, they enabled clients to increase their social contact with other vision-impaired people and also with sighted community members. The Christmas cheer event was the highlight of the social calendar and aimed to include all vision-impaired Western Australians. Those who could not attend, and there must have been many, were sent small gifts. Many local West Australian companies donated to this event and the association, and still do today, while some have disappeared into the back pages of history. After the war and Miss Helen Keller. One of the biggest events was the visit soon after World War II by Helen Keller. For people who were vision impaired, Keller was their first pop star 
or cult hero. She visited Perth in June 1948, and her visit attracted much attention. Constance Gibbon, the secretary of the Braille Association, was given three pages of carefully typed instructions from John Keegan, whose lengthy title was Special Australasian Representative for Miss Keller. Gibbon was advised that Keller must have an unmarked car at her disposal 24 hours a day. The special Australasian representative noted that not since the arrival of the Prince of Wales has a single person won the hearts of the people. Gibbon was further advised that a female secretary needed to be available each day at Keller's hotel to assist her with letters to fans. Further down the long list were the specific expectations about the public welcome which outlined the number and type of performances. The instructions made it clear that under no circumstances were children or afflicted people to appear, and those who were expected to attend included the Premier and the Lord Mayor, who were to be seated in the front row with Miss Keller. Whatever other ailments Helen Keller may have suffered, a diminished sense of ego was not among them. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 76. Naturally, regardless of its reservations, the Braille Association rose to the occasion and would not have dreamed of doing otherwise. It was led by Gibbon, who was described by one admirer as a lovely-looking woman and very charming woman. Able to keep the opus very ship-shape with womanly touches and was very adept at writing the letters which went out each year requesting donations. Sister Nora Mari Hayes, Sister of the Good Shepherd, Memories of My Early Days at Braille. Keller was well looked after and was presented with a specially commissioned and very lovely tea set which had been hand-painted. Each cup, saucer and plate was painted with a different W.A. wildflower by Mrs. Bias, a local artist. The set was complete and included a teapot, milk jug, sugar basin and cake plate. One wonders where this tea set is now. LTR to ABWA from M. Baldwinson, 16th of September, 2001. Families. One hundred years of history covers many generations, and the association has enjoyed not merely volunteers, but generations of volunteers from the same families. For example, the Summer Hayes Architects, Father Reg and son Jeff, both contributed skills and board support over nearly 50 years. Another family affair concerns the Hickson family. Lorita Hickson was a science graduate from Melbourne University and she joined Braille as a welfare officer in the 1960s. Hickson cut a striking figure about town in her coral-coloured Carmen gear, Volkswagen's most exotic mark, and a world away from the bicycle allocated to her predecessors in the 1930s. A passionate student of languages and literature, Hickson's cerebral approach to her role surely helped to bring a new level of sophistication to Braille. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 104. Perhaps unbeknown to Laffey and many who worked with Lorita Hickson, at home she was nurturing another generation and guiding them towards volunteer endeavours. Her son, Peter Hickson, recalled his early days helping his mother at home. I was ten in 1960, and for a period of time after that, maybe three, four or five years, my mother used to bring talking books home, which were cassettes half the size of an iPad. 
I would put the cassette into a machine and rewind it. It rewound at the same speed that it went forward, so it might be three hours to rewind a book. The machine sent out alarms when it was getting towards the end, because if you didn't stop it at the end, it would actually break the tape, and then you had to get a sticker out and stick the tape back together. Personal Interview, Peter Hickson, May 2014 Peter Hickson realised he was lucky in life when he listened to his mother's stories of her welfare work at the Braille Society. His early inculcation into charitable enterprises led to many years spent on voluntary boards, including the Maritime Museum and, of course, Visibility. In total, Peter Hickson has spent over 50 years volunteering on boards and working with associations. I love it when I'm involved. I'm very happy to take a job and make a difference with my bit. I'm not there to be everything to everybody. I'm there to support the CEO and the business as long as they're good and that's your job. Personal interview, Peter Hickson, May 2014. Peter Hickson was also very influential in his support of the capital campaign launched in 2000 to build the current Perrin Centre facility. He worked on the fundraising and used his catering business to provide food for charitable events, greatly assisting fundraising initiatives. The new and modern centre was completed with money raised through the capital campaign. The centre includes an internal café, which was an idea put forward by Margaret Crowley, the CEO, from 1998 to 2012. Peter Hickson also knew that this would be a convivial hub in the building and that it was important to retain the idea, even as cost pressures could have led to it being scrapped. I was pushing it because the café is a focal point. I mean, cafés are where a tribe of people go together and talk and meet. And without that, it's a building without any heart, if that makes sense. If I'm blind and I go in through the front door and I go to see Tony Hagen or something and he's not available, I can go to the cafe. When you used to go into the old building, there were seats all around the wall and there would be 30 blind people sitting there looking straight ahead, waiting for someone to come and get them. Now they go to the cafe, have their cup of coffee, the person comes down, talks to them while they're having their coffee or they recognise someone else's voice and they start talking to them. In the government plan, the first thing they wanted to do was cut out the cafe because it was going over budget. It is the last thing we could possibly have done, in my opinion, because it's so important. It's an important place for people who are just going blind and they're adjusting. I see that part of it as being extremely important. The heart of the building, and so did Margaret. Personal interview, Peter Hickson, May 2014. Fundraising. Many groups assisted the Braille Society and were very creative in their fundraising efforts. In 1927, 700 acres of wheat was procured with profits going to the Joint Committee of the Braille Society and the Institute. Surely one of the most curious early benefactors was the Ugly Men's Association. A relationship with this group had begun early in the history of the Braille Society, and by 1921 the ugly men were approached and subsequently agreed to contribute funds to buy land for the rest home. Auxiliaries and voluntary groups were tireless workers in their fundraising. The historical and rather quaint view of the role of auxiliaries is summarised in the words of an unnamed writer from the mid-1950s whose comments can be found in association archives. 
In its first stages, any woman's auxiliary is thought to exist for the purpose of providing supper at meetings and to keep the female of the species occupied and interested. What actually happens is that while the men indulge in large-scale propositions, the little woman gives bridge parties, runs balls, hat parades and other social activities and is suddenly discovered to be able to provide refrigerators, furnishings, odd necessities and amenities out of current funds of actual cash, not promises. One auxiliary group was particularly famous for its tea rooms at the Royal Show. They offered a most welcome respite from the crowds with the additional bonus of tea and scones. It was here that Rita Patching earned her stripes as one of the most dedicated and long-serving volunteers for the association. Patching considered herself very fortunate because although she had nearly lost her sight, doctors were able to save her vision. She was so thankful that she felt she would like to support the association by contributing her considerable talents. In 1966, she produced 200 items of clothing by sewing for 12 hours a day. She also hosted rest-home residents for sing-alongs around her piano and presented a spectacular afternoon tea. The magazine Faithfully Theirs noted in 1969 that not only did she run an apex stall for the guide dogs and prepare the baked goods for this, she took over the tea rooms at the Royal Show, an annual fete and a giant quiz project. Feeling that she was not doing quite enough, she recently started helping the Parents and Citizens Group working on behalf of blind children. Page 13, Faithfully Theirs, September 1969. Patching involved her children in these preparations, and as adults they continued to be strong supporters. In 1974, she was awarded the WA Citizen of the Year Award, which, in the words of the Braille Association, she richly deserved. In one year alone, she raised $10,000. Patching's tea rooms, raffles, and her famous Melbourne Cup buffet lunches at her home in Como were to influence the modern association in a dramatic way. She could not have foreseen this at the time. Stan Perron To understand the legacy of Rita Patching, this story turns to another important contributor to the association. Western Australian businessman Stan Perrin of the Perrin Group is an acclaimed entrepreneurial success story. He was born in 1922 in humble circumstances. As a youngster, he missed some schooling because his parents were forced to relocate to a gold mine near the remote town of Laverton in the far east of Western Australia. The school in Leverton only went as far as the sixth year, and Mr Perron was already beyond that. To spend his time productively, he pursued a hobby working with fretwork to make handkerchief boxes, letter racks, and other items he French-polished. His business efforts contributed to the family's meagre budget. He subsequently returned to school when his family again relocated, this time to Boulder, 600 kilometres east of Perth. He graduated as Boulder Central School's top student. His mother was determined that he would go to high school, but he refused and was anxious to start a working career. In his biography, he noted that his family had never had more than a Hessian cooler, often known as a Coolgardy safe for food storage, an icebox being far too expensive for them to consider. He resolved that he would like to be successful in business, support his family, and be able to buy things that ensured a comfortable life. 
Stan Perrin established many businesses and became very successful. He had a keen eye for an entrepreneurial opportunity and obtained a Toyota distributorship at a time when Japanese products were not seen favourably. He is still one of only three distributors in the world because now Toyota prefer to undertake this role themselves. In this venture, and many others, he established a personal fortune and then embarked on philanthropic ventures. He is widely known throughout Western Australia for his generosity, and in particular he has been supportive of visibility. He was a major donor to the Building Our Vision campaign that culminated in the association achieving its plan to dramatically increase services for blind people into the 21st century. The modern and attractive building that houses visibility is named the Perrin Centre after this most generous of benefactors. So where does Rita Patching with the cakes, tea rooms, doll dresses and functions fit into this story? Patching was Perrin's cousin. He has memories as a young man in the 1950s and 1960s of Patching's fundraising activities. He remembers her house being used for the set-up and preparation of these, including her beds being covered in dressed dolls, one of Patching's most well-known creations. Little did she know what she would inspire. Patching would be thrilled to see that her efforts proved inspirational to her cousin, and these efforts have continued to provide support to the association for over 60 years. I'm sure this marvellous book will take pride of place in the new centre and stand as a lasting tribute to the author, the late Dr Paul Laffey, and all those individuals who contributed to it. It is now my great pleasure to officially launch In Braille Light. I hope you all enjoy reading it as much as I did. The Honourable Dr Jeff Gallup, MLA, Premier of Western Australia at the book launch, 2nd of December 2004. Page 65. Chapter 3. Guide Dogs of Western Australia. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What once was lost has now been found, was blind, and now I see. Cited by client Michael Pullinger during words of thanks to visibility and to explain his feelings and the value he placed on Ida, his guide dog. Babinger graduation ceremony at which guide dogs and owners formally commence their lives together, July 2014. At this point, it is necessary to divert from the story of the Braille Society because on the 4th of January 1951, there was a significant turning point in the history of the Association for the Blind in Western Australia. This was the day when the first official meeting of the newly constituted group named Guide Dogs of Western Australia took place. This meeting was thousands of years in the making. Through human history, partnerships between humans and man's best friend have evolved. Since prehistoric times, dogs have been used by humans to assist in hunting, herding, protection, pulling loads, providing warmth and many other roles taking advantage of the unique qualities of dogs. The human race has progressed through a colourful, challenging and ever-changing history faithfully accompanied by many different varieties of dogs, or Canis lupus familiaris. The relationship between dogs and humans is the longest and most successful example of animal-human partnership. One of the most magnificent, powerful and life-changing partnerships between humans and dogs is that which develops between a person with vision impairment and a trained guide dog. 
The earliest record of this relationship is depicted in a Roman mural. The volcanic eruption of 79 AD that buried Pompeii also buried the lesser-known town of Herculaneum. The relationships that existed between people and dogs were fixed in time by the thick layer of ash preserving forever the ghostly image of a pet dog still attached to his collar and leash writhing in agony. However, the choking ash also preserved a mural showing a blind man being led by his dog. In the year 1200, guiding also appears to have been illustrated on a Chinese scroll, now in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. The scroll shows a blind man being led by a dog. Through history, in songs, poems, pictorial images and other written records, are passing mentions of dogs being used to lead blind people. Thomas Gainsborough's 18th century painting Blind Man on the Bridge is set in a traditional English landscape and depicts a dog leading a man who was blind. Early written records of a systematic approach to training dogs to assist people with vision impairment can be found in France and Germany. In Paris, Louis IX, as his post-crusade act of penance, founded the Hospice des Quinze Vingt in 1256. References indicate that it was used to train dogs to assist blind people in the late 18th century. Another early record of the formal use of dogs as guides is found in 1819 Vienna. Johann Wilhelm Klein trained dogs to lead citizens around the cobble streets of this city and wrote a book about his training methods. However, all these efforts were sporadic and did not gain momentum or formal impetus until the 20th century. World War I touched lives throughout the world in ways that are still being measured. It could be said that the relationship between humans and dogs also changed forever as a result. By the end of the war, in 1918, it is estimated that Germany alone had used 30,000 dogs in war service. These roles were many and varied, and included casualty or mercy dogs trained to find wounded and dying men on the battlefield. These dogs carried medical supplies to soldiers who could help themselves and tend their wounds while they waited for further assistance. Those who were dying on the grim battlefields were comforted in their final hours by the companionship of a dog. From these tragic times came the foundations for a formal, documented and quality-controlled development of the movement that was to become guide dogs for the blind. Soldiers who survived trench warfare and returned home were often blinded by mustard gas injuries. Increasing numbers created urgency in the search for rehabilitation methods to enable them to return to civilian life. In Germany, Dr Gerhard Storling worked with injured soldiers and noticed informally that his own dog was looking after a blind patient when he returned to the patient after a brief absence. This led to further research and training in this area as the demands for better rehabilitation methods increased. His efforts and innovation led to the establishment of a formal school in Oldenburg, Germany, in 1916. It undertook the training of guide dogs, primarily German shepherds, to support rehabilitation for soldiers blinded in the war. In 1925, Dorothy Eustace, a wealthy American living in Switzerland, visited the German training school, which by this time had moved to Potsdam. Mrs Eustace and her husband bred German shepherds and were very interested in what they had heard. 
An article she wrote about her visit to the centre was published in the famous Saturday Evening Post in the United States on the 5th of November 1927. It was one of the largest English-language magazines in circulation, and the article kick-started the guide dog movement in English-speaking countries. Her lengthy article clearly demonstrated she was astonished by the accomplishments of the training school and the dogs. With great amusement, she wrote about how she had enjoyed watching the guide dogs frolicking playfully with each other before transforming themselves into working dogs as the harness was put on. Called from his play, a dog advanced in his work is ridiculously like a businessman called to his office. You can almost see him lay aside his newspaper, settle his coat, straighten his necktie and take on an air of business affairs. Dorothy Eustace, Saturday Evening Post, 5th of November, 1927. Mrs Eustace had spent days observing and recording both at the training school and in the city centre of Potsdam where she could see the dogs at their work. Before her visit she had read a story and seen an accompanying photograph about a blind man being led across a busy street. She thought that it was only a good story with an even better photograph. She acknowledged that she came to the school as a sceptic and left as a believer. I shall never forget the change that came over one man as he turned away from that gate. It was though a complete transformation had taken place before my eyes. One moment it was an uncertain, shuffling blind man, tapping with a cane. The next it was an assured person, with his dog firmly in hand and his head up, who walked towards us quickly and firmly, giving his orders in a low, confident voice. That one quick glimpse of the crying need for guidance and companionship in the lonely, all-enveloping darkness stood out clearly before my swimming eyes. To think that one small dog could stand for so much in the life of a human being, not only in his usual role of companion, but as his eyes, sword and shield. How many humans could fill those roles with the same uncomplaining devotion and untiring fidelity? The future for all blind men can be the same, however blinded. No longer dependent on a member of the family, a friend, or a paid attendant, the blind can once more take up their normal lives, as nearly as possible, where they left them off, and each can begin or go back to a wage-earning occupation, secure in the knowledge that he can get to and from his work safely and without cost, that crowds and traffic have no longer any terrors for him, and that his evenings can be spent among friends without responsibility or burden to them. And last, but far from least, that long, healthful walks are now possible to exercise off the unhealthy fat of inactivity, and so keep the body strong and fit. Gentlemen, again, without reservation, I give you the dog. Dorothy Eustace, Saturday Evening Post, 5th of November, 1927. The next step in this story involves a young blind man named Morris Frank of Nashville, Tennessee. Mr. Frank heard of the Saturday Evening Post article and was so excited by the possibility of being assisted by a guide dog that he wrote to Dorothy Eustace and begged for help. His father typed as Frank dictated, Is what you say really true? If so, I want one of those dogs, and I am not alone. Thousands of blind like me abhor being dependent on others. Help me, and I will help them. Train me, and I will bring back my dog and show people here how a blind man can be absolutely on his own. 
We can then set up an instruction centre in this country to give all those here who want it a chance at a new life. Morris Frank, First Lady of the Seeing Eye, page 19. Dorothy Eustace agreed to help him if he paid his way to Switzerland, which, with the help of family, he was able to do. After his training there, Morris Frank returned to the United States with his dog, Buddy. A crowd of reporters met the ship when they arrived in New York. Buddy and Morris rapidly became celebrities, undertaking work that increased the widespread acceptance and positive public view of guide dogs everywhere. Morris noted that Buddy brought freedom, companionship, affection and self-respect. Frank, First Lady of the Seeing Eye, page 77. After his return to the United States, where Buddy was able to demonstrate his skills, Frank sent a one-word telegram to Eustace in Switzerland, and the word was success. Encouraged by this, Eustace continued her efforts and had soon coached four guide dog trainers. One of these was to form important links in the Western Australian story. Captain Nicholas Lykoff trained with Eustace and subsequently opened a guide dog training centre in Wallasey, Cheshire, England, in 1931. The centre was a success and a branch was formed in Exeter. It is at this branch that the Western Australian, and therefore the Australian story, of guide dogs begins. Guide Dogs in Western Australia In the archives of the guide dogs in WA rest the letters Dr Arnold Cook wrote to Constance Gibbon, the secretary of the Braille Society for many years. These letters form an invaluable record of Arnold Cook's role in bringing guide dogs to WA. They also show that the fickle finger of fate worked favourably, or perhaps the stars were aligned when Arnold Cook went to England. Arnold lost his eyesight at the age of 18. It seemed to me to be the end of all in life that is worth living for. My future prospect was one of dreary years of a very sedentary existence. Arnold Cook, I Learned to Walk Alone, 1955. However, he did not give up. This initial despair passed, and ultimately, through his perseverance and determination, Cook achieved many goals and also contributed to the well-being of blind people in Australia through his efforts. He was determined to become independent and carve out a role for himself in the greater community. With fortitude, courage and the help of friends, he learned to walk through the streets of Perth and ride public transport by himself. These early achievements were all the more remarkable because they took place in a time when sighted people had no easy way to identify a blind person. Consequently, active blind people often had to endure criticism and derision for being clumsy or bumping into other pedestrians. Cook recounted his embarrassment when he once inadvertently walked between two ladies who were having a conversation on the footpath and was told by them that he should have his face slapped for rudeness. Despite such setbacks, he continued to work towards his independence. Encouraged by some initial successes at navigating public transport and pedestrian paths alone, he enrolled at the University of WA, UWA. In 1947, he graduated in arts with honours in economics. He then won the Hackett Scholarship, enabling him to study at the London School of Economics for two years. The scholarship alone was not enough to support Arnold and his wife Enid for the two-year period, and the Braille Society stepped in to provide the support he needed. 
This cemented a relationship that would mutually benefit both parties as Cook pursued his education while building critical links to the establishment of the guide dogs in Australia and reap positive benefits for the next half century and beyond. Arnold Cook's file of letters to My Dear Constant Constance outlined the tremendous efforts made by many people to secure the necessary funding for him to pursue his scholarship. Constance was the previously mentioned hard-working secretary of the Braille Society. Arnold's expenses were greater than those of a sighted person because it was essential that he had a companion for the whole scholarship period. His wife was much more than a wife as she assisted her husband in his studies and other tasks. Without Enid, he would have been obligated to pay someone or find a volunteer to read to him. She also acted as his guide and provided much more assistance to enable Arnold to undertake the course of study. In addition, the shipping company indicated it might not accept him as a passenger if he was travelling alone. The Braille Society, on behalf of Arnold Cook and his wife, wrote requests for concession fares from the P&O Steam Navigation Company. The requests were animated and poignant. Is there any hope that these very gallant young people might be granted a concession on their fares, please? Letter from Constance Gibbon to the P&O Steam Navigation Company, 7th of May, 1948. However, despite references to the clever, helpful lass Arnold had married and other details of their plight, the shipping company remained unmoved and offered no concession. The association rallied its supporters and more than 50 other individuals and organisations contributed to the scholarship cause to meet all the additional expenses. In addition, the Braille Society made one of the largest contributions, unknowingly carving for itself a founding role in a hitherto unknown and untried new opportunity for clients. This was a trip to post-war London where rebuilding was in full swing after the Blitz and rationing was in place. Food packages were sent regularly to Arnold and his wife to bolster the available provisions and tinned Australian meat was a prized possession. Arnold engaged with the blind services in the United Kingdom, UK, and he talked of the attitude of the British Ministry of Labour, which was actively working towards the prospect of getting blind people into ordinary factories. It, the Ministry of Labour, positively encourages workers to get out of the basket factories and even pays for their training courses. Letter to Constance Gibbon, 14th of November, 1948. However, these advancements in rehabilitation were counterbalanced by his observation that they don't hand things out free over here like the Braille Society. Letter to Constance Gibbon, 18th of October, 1948. Arnold's letters to Constance capture his emotions at being thought of as a charity case and his determination not to be seen as such. He and his wife had a desperate struggle in the United Kingdom to ensure they had enough funding to sustain them while he studied for his PhD, and yet he writes, Constance, please, on my bended knees, no more public appeals on my behalf. Letter to Constance Gibbon, 12th of March, 1949. In the United Kingdom, Arnold Cook discovered the Guide Dog Training Centre, which had by this time been running for 15 years. He was very anxious to meet the chap in charge, a foreigner of some sort. Personal letter from Arnold Cook to Constance Gibbon, 15th of January, 1949. 
Captain Nicholas Lykoff, a former officer of a Cossack regiment, was one of the four trainers who Eustace had trained at her school in Switzerland. Captain Lykoff was, fortunately for this story, suitably interested in Cook and the possibility of expanding the use of guide dogs to Australia. At this time, the waiting list for a guide dog in England was five years, which would have been impossible for Cook. He was able to skip the queue, and he was advised in October 1949 that he would soon have a dog. His initial placement with a dog was unsuccessful because, in the opinion of the trainer, the dog was too inclined to pull his blind companion at a faster rate than was safe. It took Cook two days to get over the terrible disappointment of not getting a dog when he had expected to do so. However, he had tasted the exhilaration and freedom of walking at a fast pace through traffic and crowds. He was quite convinced they are wonderful and am burning with desire to get a training school started in Australia. Letter from Arnold Cook to Constance Gibbon, 15th of January, 1950. His enthusiasm and perseverance paid off, and in May 1950 he had a guide dog. He was placed with Drina, a black Labrador trained by Betty Bridge. By the 28th of June 1950, Arnold Cook was planning a return to WA, where he had secured a temporary job at UWA. Fortunately for the history of the guide dogs, he did not have to seek a permanent position in the eastern states or in the United Kingdom, as he had feared he might have to. This WA offer helped cement the establishment of Australia's first guide dog training school in Perth. While arranging his return to Australia by sea, he encountered one of the first of many obstacles related to guide dog acceptance in the community. The shipping company, again P&O, refused to allow him to travel on his preferred ship and transferred the family to an older ship which allowed passengers to take their dogs with them. He finally made it back to Perth, and despite beginning a job and settling his family, he started the formal process of establishing the guide dog movement in WA. His drive, and that of the other early pioneers, is aptly demonstrated by the fact that within 14 months, the enterprising first committee had taken the concept of a guide dog training centre to reality, a remarkable achievement in post-World War II Perth. This was not only the first guide dog training centre in Australia, it was the first in the Southern Hemisphere. The public proved to be very interested and supportive of the venture, and the newly formed Guide Dog Association received additional funds from private donors, the Country Women's Association and the Apex Club of Claremont. On the 11th of January 1951, Betty Bridges' ship passed through Fremantle on its way to New Zealand. She was on her way to join her parents, who had recently settled in New Zealand. She also planned to establish a guide dog training centre there. It was Bridge who had trained Cook's guide dog, Drina. A deputation, including Cook, was sent in an effort to convince her to take charge of the training for a guide dog school in WA. She must have been impressed and persuaded by their enthusiasm and passion for the cause, because by the end of her day in port, she had agreed to return. Her ten-month visit to New Zealand gave the committee time to galvanise their fundraising and prepare for the task ahead. By the 15th of October, 1951, the association's bank balance stood at £362, and in January 1952, the first training centre was ready to begin operations. It was located next to the Dogs Refuge Home in the Bush, near the railway line at Shenton Park, between Perth and Fremantle.
Bridge was provided with rather primitive accommodation in a retired train carriage, and the training began. There were some major hurdles. Although Bridge's arrival in 1951 was a pivotal point in the development of the centre, it still faced great difficulties, principally the additional and significant expenses. A vehicle was needed to transport dogs. This was critical if real-life training situations were to be provided for a guide dog. Also, it was realised that some dogs weren't necessarily suited to a career as a guide dog, despite being assessed with an initial aptitude. Therefore, to produce 12 trained dogs a year, a supply of about 50 dogs was necessary. This would ensure that adequate temperament testing was undertaken. Bridge gave public speeches about her work to increase public support and boost the number of dogs available. In the words of an unnamed writer in the 1950s, much credit must be given to the dogs that could rise beyond their experience of size to direct their wards from hazards. Listeners who had probably never given a great deal of thought to what went on in the minds of dogs began to appreciate the degree of training that had to be put in. Bo, the pathfinder, a humble crossbreed. Despite the challenges, by March 1952 there were four dogs in training, six being tested, two ready to be tested, one deemed not suitable, and two puppies in waiting. In August 1952, the first guide dog trained in Australia, Bo, was ready for his blind owner and delivered to Elsie Mead. Mead was to play a pivotal role in the association for many years. Her newfound freedom and exhilaration at being able to move safely and confidently is captured in her memoir titled The Pathfinder. She wrote in 1958. She exclaimed, It was a thrill to feel myself guided around obstacles which I couldn't see, to feel Bo change direction or even lead me right off the footpath to avoid an unseen danger. Elsie Mead, The Pathfinder, a tribute to the first Australian-trained guide dog page 6. Mead marvelled at Bo's skills. When in harness, he could navigate on behalf of his human companion, who was three times as tall and twice as wide as he was. These are tasks that still form key concepts to the successful training of a guide dog. Bo and Mead were truly pathfinders, and together undertook many journeys as Mead became the public relations representative for the association, with Bo as her faithful companion. It was a magical partnership. As this extract from Elsie Mead's personal memoir shows, Beau really changed her life. I had always wanted to meet people, belong to clubs and organisations, and I wanted to be independent, to go where I wanted to go at the times I chose, and not to go when and where it suited my friends to take me. Above all, I wanted to be treated as an individual, not as a companion to someone else. Blind people with sighted guides are often ignored, and it is most exasperating to hear one's companion asked, What is her address? Does she take sugar in her tea? And similar questions. Many blind people dislike publicity, and the Committee of the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association has always stated definitely that a guide dog's owner should not be called upon to demonstrate or speak about the work of the dog unless willing to do so. Personally, I thrive on an audience and thoroughly enjoy the work I am doing in the association. My enjoyment stems from pride in my dog, knowing that he looks as if he is aware of the important job he is doing as he steps along with his tail up and head held high. 
I am deriving great satisfaction from knowing that at last I am achieving something more than just sitting at home reading a few books, doing my household chores, and eternally waiting and hoping for someone or something to come along to break the monotony. Bo has opened endless avenues of new activities for me. Without him, I could never have attempted to work as public relations officer for the association. In travelling through the country by train and bus, I am now independent, often being one of the first out for refreshments. If I have missed hearing the chink of cups and saucers to guide me to the refreshment counter, I wait for a few people to get out and then follow them, whereas before I would stand at the carriage door hoping someone would offer to take me for a cup of tea or bring one back to me. Fortunately, in this friendly state of ours, one rarely waited in vain. But how much sweeter the tea, bought without help, a simple satisfaction only enjoyed to its full by those who have had to depend on the generosity and help of others. Wherever I stay, whether it is a private home or hotel, it is always home to bow. I pat the bed, or perhaps the door, several times and say, Home, and he accepts the place, so that if I should become lost in a strange town, there is always one place I can get back to. For two years I worked in and around Perth with Bo, always knowing exactly where I was. I decided that my next holiday should be on a farm. I wanted to prove to myself that Bo would take me home if I didn't know where I was myself. So one morning we rode on the tractor to where the men were going to do some seeding. Our ride finished about a mile and a half from the homestead. I had made arrangements before I left the house that if I wasn't back by lunchtime they had better start looking for me. I harnessed Bo and gave the order home, and off we started across ploughed fields that gave me no indication of our whereabouts. However, after some steady walking, we passed through a gate that brought us back to a track leading past the outbuildings and to the house gate. I had my proof. Once, having been to a certain shop or building, a guide dog will rarely forget it. If I had not been to a place before, I get directions, and then, when I judge we are nearing the place, I either ask another pedestrian or go into the building to ask. When we reach the right place, I either name it or call it our shop, then Bo stores it away in his wonderful memory for next time. A potential guide dog owner must have some sense of direction, otherwise he could not pass on directions to the dog, who only knows where he is going by understanding the spoken command. A guide dog soon learns to understand new words and groups of words as new situations arise. The blind person repeats the same word or words when doing the same thing, and the dog then begins to associate those words with that particular circumstance. When nearing the bus stop, I say, catch the bus. Or if I don't want to catch a bus, I say, straight ahead. Straight ahead also takes me past the place we are in a habit of going into. Follow is one of the most useful words Bo understands. If I am in a building and ask to see the manager, a member of the staff will say, follow me please, and I pass on the command of follow to Bo, and we arrive in the manager's office without any fuss or bother. One day, crossing the road in Perth, an elderly lady put her hand in my arm just as we started to cross. "'I'm a bit nervous on the road, dear, so I'll come across with you and the doggy,' she said. In general practice, this would be frowned on. A guide dog is trained to take the responsibility of one person only, but it was a touching tribute to my dog, and I felt that now I was not always on the receiving end. 
a guide dog must have initiative, as he often has to make decisions for himself. His blind master does not know what the obstacles ahead may be, and must leave the dog to find out the best way to cope with the situation. Recently, the main road where I catch the bus to town was remade, and the bus shelter and bus stop were moved well away from the corner, to give traffic coming into the highway from the side street a better view. Going into town the first morning after it had been shifted, I told Bo to catch the bus, as we turned the corner. A glance must have told him of the change, for he never hesitated at the old place, but walked on to the new position. Bo has one habit which often causes me embarrassment, although it amuses other people. Whenever any applause is given, he almost invariably barks loudly and continues to bark until the clapping ceases. Mead's contribution to the Guide Dogs Association in Western Australia was enormous, and Bo made his own contribution. Together, as a working team, they travelled tirelessly across the state supporting fundraising. In one year, Mead and Bo raised two thirds of the total funds collected for the Guide Dog Association of WA. After his retirement, Bo was adopted by Mead's friends, the Malabones. Bo was described as springy, light, and small, requiring a special harness to be made for him with a slightly longer handle because he was closer to the ground. He lived until he was seventeen years old, and his public relations career continued to the end of his long life. He was buried in the dog cemetery at Shenton Park with his number one medal as the first guide dog trained in Australia embedded in his headstone. The Malabones also had another special connection to the guide dogs movement. They were the owners of one of the oldest luggage and leather goods businesses trading in Perth, and made and donated all the leather harnesses used by guide dogs until the association moved to Melbourne in 1962. In Mrs. Malabone's handwritten notes, she remembers being elected to the first women's auxiliary of the Guide Dogs Association, which was formed almost immediately after the Guide Dogs Association was formed. In particular, she remembers the election process. She was elected in absentia while she was on holiday at Rottnest Island. As with many volunteers and supporters, she was happy to give generously of her time and lend her enthusiasm. Terry. A border collie cross who gave his owner wings. A little over a month after Bo's graduation, Anne Green received Terry, the second dog trained in Australia. In 1948, after many years with low vision, Green had undergone a high-risk operation to remove a tumour near her eyes. In her memoir, Independence on Four Legs, 1989. She describes waking up in hospital and hearing voices, but not being able to see anything and realizing that she was blind. Feelings of despair and helplessness overcame her. The challenges for vision-impaired people in the post-war period, when there was no orientation and mobility training, were overwhelming. Green was frustrated by being in need of the kindness and generosity of others all the time. She was forced to rely on the building caretaker in her workplace to walk her to the bus stop if he was in a good mood. If the caretaker was grumpy, she had to struggle to the bus stop by feeling her way along the street and hoping thoughtful passers-by would assist. On her first day going home from her job with Terry, she said, "We had gone home on winged feet. It was wonderful to walk so freely and to be independent again." Anne Kent, nay Green. Independence on Four Legs, page twenty-four. 
Interestingly, both Terry and Beau were crossbreeds and not the familiar Labradors associated with guide dogs in Australia today. Their owners were absolutely delighted with their newfound freedom and gave mementos to the association as thanks for the guide dogs provided free of charge. Guide dogs are still provided without charge. Terry and Beau did wonders for the lives of their owners, but their overall contribution to the guide dogs movement was invaluable. Mead and Green became good friends. Coincidentally, 21 years later, in 1973, they both returned for training at the same time with their fourth dogs, a pair of sisters named Lana and Lena. Just before Mead acquired Lena, she spent time without a dog for the first time, and she said, The six weeks I put in without my guide must surely be the worst I have ever experienced. I can walk confidently by myself in suburban areas, but I have never attempted the city alone, so getting to and from the office each day was unnerving. Faithfully theirs, September 1973. Mead was not without a sense of humour. During the time without a dog, she once waited to cross the street and felt the presence of a person beside her. She asked the person if she could cross the road with the unseen individual, but she received no response. She was tempted to rebuke the person, but as she put her cane out, she realised that her fellow pedestrian was actually a post. A decade of solid foundation. The now familiar street appeal got underway very quickly as the new Guide Dog Association was determined to establish itself as a financially viable entity. The first street appeal for guide dogs was held on the 16th of January 1953. The event was a huge success, bringing in over £1,580 and selling approximately 25,000 buttons. This event continues today with the familiar guide dog-shaped collection boxes supported by volunteers. They are often accompanied by guide dogs who join in to greet the public. In 1953, Bridge expressed concerns about the future of the association in WA as she had heard Victoria was eager to establish a guide dog training centre. She thought there was not scope for more than one organisation in Australia and she indicated that there were not sufficient applications for guide dogs. She also suggested that there were difficulties in training dogs for the whole of Australia, so far removed from other main centres of population. After all of its hard work and success, the committee of the time was aghast at this suggestion from Bridge. However, it clarified with her that she was prepared to stay on and it indicated it was definitely prepared to continue. It then set about its next goal of relocating from the Shenton Park site and establishing a purpose-built centre. In April 1953, a building was inspected in Belmont for the new location of the training centre. The architect deemed the property suitable and it was purchased for £1,850. In October, Bridge visited Melbourne to procure dogs. Newspapers in Melbourne and Perth published details of her trip and fostered great interest in her training. However, overall it was a difficult year with the association incurring a debt of £880. Most of the next year was directed towards the goal of setting up the new Belmont Guide Dog Training Centre. This was officially opened on the 10th of October 1954 by Lady Evelyn Gardner, wife of the Governor of Western Australia. Six roomy kennels had been built at the premises and two helpers were hired. 
The Women's Auxiliary assisted Bridge and aimed to make the work of the trainer and staff easier by looking after the personal side of the establishment, providing amenities both for staff and people who were blind residing at the centre. A kennel manager, Mr S. H. Chalice, was appointed to allow Bridge more time for training. The centre was thriving with a monthly average of 26 dogs in kennels, training, testing and as puppies. It was a remarkable feat in a few short years. In 1955, the first person who was blind from the eastern states came to Perth for his training with a guide dog. Doug Adams, from Inverell in New South Wales, successfully completed training with Bridge in a little over six weeks. A campaign in his hometown had been organised to fund his trip and also make a donation to the Guide Dog Association in Western Australia. On the 29th of August, he left Perth to return by air to Inverell with his dog, Zili. Trans-Australian Airlines, TAA, no longer with us, would not allow the dog to travel with her owner and she was confined to a crate in the cargo section of the plane. These early barriers to guide dog acceptance were gradually broken down and by 1960 the dogs were allowed to travel in the passenger section of the plane, although they had to sit on an absorbent mat and wear a muzzle. They have since been liberated from these restraints. Keith Holdsworth was recruited from the United Kingdom and joined the Western Australian Association as the head trainer at this time. Miss Bridge was exhausted by her efforts and decided on a career change. She took up secretarial work. Captain Lykoff had trained Holdsworth, who described his apprenticeship on Perth Radio in an interview, noting that it was a challenging and difficult course where qualification could take up to four years. Captain Lykoff must have been pleased to see that his students had progressed so well and the very distant Australian guide dog school had been so successful. Construction of the new building at Belmont had commenced by March 1956. The estimated cost was £4,600, plus the furnishing and equipment. In the latter half of 1956, the erection was completed. By the end of the year, 21 dogs were in kennels at Belmont and 60 puppies were boarded out. Four guide dogs had been trained and delivered. By 1957, the new centre was able to operate three sets of classes a year and trained ten dogs, including two for blind people from Victoria. The movement was flourishing and the regular transport of guide dogs and owners to and from the eastern states led to thoughts of a national council to coordinate further development and promotion of guide dogs. A conference was held in Perth in December 1957. Delegates attended it from Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales. A national conference led to the discussion of national issues related to guide dogs. The then president of Guide Dogs WA, Mr J. A. Mallett, had previously written to the Victorian Government Minister of State Development, Alexander Fraser, and made it very clear that we have no desire to maintain the present West Australian monopoly of this work, but we feel that the best interests of the blind people would be served by a concerted plan. Letter from J. A. Mallett to the Honourable A. J. Fraser, 29th of August, 1957. The association was rightfully concerned that groups were springing up around Australia and there was a risk that people who know little or nothing of the work could be wasteful of public money and possibly dangerous if the dogs were trained by unqualified people. Letter from J.A. Mallett 
to the Honourable A.J. Fraser, 29th of August, 1957. The same letter also advocated on behalf of guide dog owners in Victoria to ensure that they enjoyed the same freedoms guide dogs in Perth had already been accorded. Guide dogs in Perth had the freedom of the city and unrestricted use of public transport, as well as access to shops, theatres and other places. It was finally decided at the conference that a national council should be formed to be responsible for the 1. Control and administration of a national guide dog centre. 2. Apportionment of the financial responsibilities of the states, based on population quotient. 3. Allocation of guide dogs throughout Australia. 4. Coordination of guide dog activities throughout the Commonwealth. The title of this new entity was to be the National Council of Guide Dogs for the Blind Associations of Australia. Alexandra Hasluck, To Guide and Guard, page 45. As a result of this conference and the decisions taken, by 1958 the entire financial responsibility of the Belmont Training Centre had been taken over by the National Council. The minutes of the December 1957 conference record these brave and courageous decisions to cause all assets appertaining to the Belmont Guide Dog Centre be vested in the National Council. At this point, the National Council had yet to establish a constitution. The Belmont Centre would continue to operate on behalf of the Council until such time as it was considered expedient to establish a training centre in the eastern states. This momentous conference concluded with the delegates adjourning to the Royal Freshwater Bay Yacht Club, still a sponsor today, for drinks, followed by dinner at the Cottesloe Golf Club, here drawing to a happy conclusion a very successful conference. See Smedley, Conference Secretary. Meanwhile, training in Western Australia continued from the new Belmont Centre. The centre conducted four students' training courses throughout 1958. All students came from the eastern states, demonstrating that it was only a matter of time before a move east. In 1960, the National Council met early in the year and it was decided that a training centre to be known as the Jack Davy Memorial Guide Dog Training Centre be established, although the location was undecided. Jack Davy, a very well-known radio personality, had been a very keen supporter of guide dogs from the beginning. During the next few years, it became increasingly clear that the location of Western Australia as a national centre for training of guide dogs needed to be reviewed. After soul-searching, discussion and no doubt disappointment, groundwork commenced at a site in Kew, Victoria, for a national training centre. In January 1962, the West Australian Guide Dog Committee was informed that the Kew Centre had called for tender submissions to design and build kennels and a director's house. The National Council met in Melbourne in March and was now known as the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association of Australia. It was an incorporated body and represented the official start of a national movement for the training and development of guide dogs as mobility aids. In just over a decade, one person's dream, aided by a band of supporters, including those from the National Network of Apex Clubs, had become a nationwide reality, increasing opportunities for people with blindness or vision impairment. To begin the process of moving operations to Victoria, the puppy boarding scheme in Belmont, which was at a peak with 90 pups, was gradually tapered off and plans were made for the transfer of dogs to the Kew Centre.
air transport of the dogs to Victoria began in August 1962. Later, on the 17th of November 1962, the National Training Centre at Kew was officially opened by Prime Minister Robert Menzies, who declared that the guide dog movement was one of the greatest social discoveries of our time. In the following year, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals made an offer to purchase, for £12,500, the Belmont property which had been the Western Australian Guide Dog Centre, and this was accepted by the WA Association on behalf of the National Council. The work of the association in WA reverted to fundraising, awareness raising and other support roles. A plaque at the new training centre in Kew emphasised the debt owed to the people of Western Australia for the foundation work that they had done. The plaque stated that it was a tribute to the vision, compassion and enterprise of the people of Western Australia who began the guide dog movement in 1951 and in 1958 handed on to a national council its skilled staff and equipment for central administration, making possible this national guide dog training centre built by the combined efforts of all states. Genesis. Miss Betty Bridge, pioneer trainer of guide dogs in Australia, 1951 to 1955, made possible the operation of the Guide Dog Training Centre in Perth, whence, with the cooperation of the Association of Apex Clubs, the movement spread throughout Australia. This plaque is still on display at the Perrin Centre on Kitchener Avenue in Victoria Park, the current headquarters of Visibility. The 1960s and 1970s Despite the move to Victoria, the Guide Dogs Association in Western Australia remained very active and there was no stopping the women's auxiliary, which during a typical year ran a series of events as fundraisers. These included fashion parades at Government House, film nights, dinner dances, the famous tea room at the Royal Show, picnics and an annual cocktail buffet. Guide dog owners were encouraged to attend events and were warmly welcomed because as the president of the Women's Auxiliary, Mrs J. E. Lloyd, reported in 1965, it has become our policy, where the occasion arises, to use some of our funds to add to the comfort and pleasure of our guide dog owners with gifts and prizes, and we feel fully justified in this, although it reduces our annual donation to the National Training Centre. We make contact with our guide dog owners without intruding on their independence. This, we feel, adds warmth to the association, to the relationship between the guide dog owners and those concerned with their welfare. Lloyd, in the same 1965 report, also acknowledged the efforts of the treasurer, Barbara Potter, who was credited with guarding our finances and made sure that all the bills have been paid. Barbara Potter was the wife of Peter Potter, who features later in this story. The National Council developed a publication named Faithfully Theirs, described as the Journal of the Royal Guide Dogs of the Blind Associations of Australia. This magazine served to unite the guide dog movements and support the causes and activities, even though training only took place in Victoria for many years. The WA stalwarts continued to feature throughout the pages of this journal. The national movement flourished and the journal demonstrates that the interests of this group were strategic and covered broad issues related to the welfare of those with vision impairments. It must be remembered most guide dogs in Australia are Labradors. 
Catherine Bubb received her guide dog Buddy when the training headquarters were in Melbourne. She went to Melbourne from Western Australia for a month to live and be trained to adapt to her new friend. Her memoir tells of the changes to her life. Our relationship has been a joyous one. This kind of relationship is one made in heaven, one of love and of total trust and loyalty. My life before him was one full of loneliness, boredom and misery. I thank you for bringing the light. Catherine Bubb, Undated Memoir. However, despite Buddy's staunch loyalty and his heroism demonstrated when he saved Bub from falling into the water after a jetty collapse, he was not without his tiny flaws. The dog breed, which is most often trained for work as guide dogs in Australia, is the Labrador. As anyone who has owned a Labrador knows, they are very fond of their own tucker, and anyone else's for that matter. They are famous when it comes to their enthusiasm for food. Throughout their history as guide dogs in Australia, there are many anecdotal stories about them serving themselves a snack from a buffet, table or counter. One dog helped himself to cakes in Bowen's, a Perth department store now long gone. His owner did not know what he was up to and was mortified when she found out, though everyone else was amused. Catherine Bubb's dog Buddy was no exception to the Labrador rule. He attended a party with Catherine and disgraced himself by gobbling all the party pies and sausage rolls before shamelessly asking for more. Postscript Guide dogs are now firmly established as an internationally recognised method of supporting and enhancing the mobility of people with vision impairment. There are training centres throughout the world and many working guide dog partnerships. Therefore, it is no surprise that on that fateful day of the Twin Towers terrorist attack, there were guide dogs present. The 11th of September 2001 carved itself into the memories of people throughout the world. This day saw tragedy and terror on an unprecedented scale. This was in stark contrast to many acts of heroism that have lived on and today are acknowledged in the memorial on the site of the Twin Towers. There were some canine heroes too. The Twin Towers had two working guide dogs on duty on the 11th of September, and both dogs successfully led their handlers to safety. Michael Hingson was born blind, and he managed an office on the 78th floor of the World Trade Centre, where he successfully used assistive technologies. On the day of the attacks, Roselle, his guide dog, was sleeping under Michael's desk. When the first plane struck, only 14 floors above, he felt, as much as heard, a thud and explosion before the building tilted. When the building returned to upright, he heard some guests who had been in the office come through screaming and running towards the exit. A colleague identified a fire above the office and Michael heard debris falling as visitors made their way to the stairs. Michael called his wife before taking Roselle's harness and giving her the command to go forward. He left the office with his colleague and headed towards the stairwell. Michael had used a guide dog since 1964. Roselle was his fifth dog, and she was very focused. She was afraid of thunder, but amid the terrifying sounds on that catastrophic day, she kept moving forward. Michael followed Roselle down the stairs while she stopped every now and then to receive a pat from firemen passing by. Michael and Roselle reached ground level and headed for a parking lot, but before they were able to reach it, the building collapsed. They turned and ran for their lives, making their way towards a subway to avoid the debris and dust cloud that was engulfing them. All the time, Michael was instructing Roselle to go forward 
and she did, traversing her way through the panic-stricken crowd and faithfully following instructions from her master. Earlier that day, Omar Rivera, another vision-impaired worker, started his daily routine. He had a meeting and needed to prepare for it, so he and his guide dog Salty headed in early to the 71st floor of the North Tower. Salty lay under Omar's desk as Omar worked on his computer and printed out some documents ready for the day ahead. At 8.46am, just after Omar instructed his computer to print a document, American Airlines Flight 11 flew into the North Tower, killing the 11 crew, 76 passengers and 5 hijackers. The computer Omar was working on fell to the floor and the building began to rock back and forth. Salty left his post under the desk and ran around the office. As Omar smelled the smoke, Salty returned to his side. He sensed that Salty was anxious, trying to tell him something. He realised he should not stay at his desk and wait for announcements, as he had been taught. Instead, he put Salty in his harness and ran for the nearest stairs. Omar and Salty navigated their way to the packed stairwell that was slowly filling with people as they passed each floor. People were panicked and screaming as they made their way down the narrow stairs. Policemen and firemen clambered up and passed the moving crowd. In the moments of terror, Omar worried there wasn't enough room for him and Salty in the stairwell. They took up enough space for two people. So Omar told Salty it was better for him to go and remove his harness, a sign to a guide dog that he is off duty. Salty began to make his own way down the stairs, but before long Omar felt Salty by his side once more and let him know that he refused to go forward without Omar. After just over an hour of clambering downstairs, Omar and Salty reached ground level. Lower Manhattan was in total chaos, with the sounds of people crying, screaming, shouting, and above all the deafening noise of emergency vehicle sirens. Omar and Salty were still close to the building when it started to collapse, but Salty ran with Omar, forging a pathway to safety. September 11 brought horror, loss, and led to a sense of grim despair. Many people questioned what sort of violent human force could unleash such meaningless devastation. The actions of these guide dogs, who calmly responded to their training and instincts and rescued their owners, are symbolic and beautiful stories which provided respite from a harsh reality. Trust is the most important thing in a relationship with a guide dog. Omar Rivera on Salty, his guide dog. Passing By by Lois Merrihew 1939. I saw a man and a dog pass by, and the dog was his master's seeing eye. The sight, to my eye, was a joyous feast, and I pondered the worth of the noble beast. What better reason has one to live than have a service that he can give? To be of help on life's rough road, and help another to carry his load. I envied the dog with a seeing eye as he led his master so proudly by ever alert to his master's care and proud of the cross he had to bear. No thought of greed, no selfish whim, no motive mean to hamper him. Proud of the privilege to serve and be the eyes of his master who cannot see, giving his life with a joyous heart, willing and eager to do his part. No wonder I was thrilled as they passed me by, that man and his dog with a seeing eye. You have set a high bar of love for all of us. Michael Hingson on Roselle, his guide dog. There is more to life than meets the eye. 
from Through Blindness by Helen Manning. Mini Dogs Not everyone who enthusiastically supports visibility necessarily assists with the actual guide dogs. Enter the Mini Dogs, the famous plastic replica guide dogs which are widely used as a collection box for fundraising and as a constant reminder of this important asset to mobility for the vision impaired. The association has attracted volunteers across all walks of life who perform different roles. Sometimes this has included compulsive volunteers like Bill Neep, a retired RAAF World War II veteran. In 1988, aged 72, he rounded up donations on a regular basis, starting at the El Caballo Blanco Entertainment Complex, 60 kilometres east of Perth, to collect coins in the wishing well. He then completed a country town circuit across the southwest to collect the mini dogs and continued through the entire metropolitan area. Undated press release, 1988. Page 90. Chapter 4. An Amalgamation and Journey Together. From the establishment of the Guide Dogs Association in Western Australia in 1951, a cordial and cooperative relationship with the Braille Association developed. Throughout the 1960s, frequent mentions in the Journal of the Braille Society were made of activities related to guide dogs. Since Arnold Cook's initial foray to the United Kingdom, the two organisations had shared relationships and linkages. What was evident about the amalgamation of the guide dogs of Western Australia and the Braille Society was that the two executive committees were committed to the joint venture and not concerned with individual or personal ambition. Peter Potter, the insightful president of the Guide Dogs Association in Western Australia, was determined to reap the benefits of a merger, although this was against the advice of guide dog associations in other states. The two WA committees worked together to make it happen. The minutes of the time provide a record of how this momentous unification was achieved. The partnership began informally in 1951, was formalised in 1977 and continues to this day. To achieve the merger, two subcommittees came together, one representing each organisation – on the 17th of September, 1976, the first meeting of the two subcommittees took place. Dr Gordon Bauer noted the executive committee of the Braille Society received the idea of amalgamation with understanding and enthusiasm. Minutes of the subcommittees, 17th of September, 1976. It was inevitable that there were many legal hurdles to be overcome, including the relationships with the national body for guide dogs with which the WA Guide Dogs Association had strong ties. The WA role in actually founding the guide dog movement in Australia was an important driver for the leadership role they played nationally. Somewhat fortuitously, the National Association was at that time under review for the future strategic planning, creating an interim period while this assessment was conducted. This national situation provided the two WA organisations the autonomy needed to proceed with their own discussions about amalgamation if they chose. However, it was deemed that it was a moral responsibility rather than a legal requirement for the local guide dogs committee to discuss the proposed amalgamation with the national body for guide dogs. 
At this time, the Braille Society had only 20 financial members, but a total of 72 on its books. Guide Dogs enjoyed a membership of 200 people. It was necessary to put the proposals to both membership groups to judge their response. Fortunately, both groups were supportive of the merger. The first meeting of the subcommittees closed with the elected meeting chairman, Dr Bauer, concluding that the meeting was most constructive. The discussion had been frank and uncomplicated, the atmosphere cordial and relaxed. Clearly, the motivation and intention of both organisations were in line. The climate for amalgamation was very favourable. Minutes of the subcommittees, 17th of September, 1976. Prior to the amalgamation discussions, ophthalmologist Dr Bauer already had a very long history with the Braille Society and had made many contributions since he joined in 1963. There were few ophthalmologists in WA and he was the first to go beyond the Perth metropolitan area to deliver services. When Dr Bauer joined the committee, it was a pretty small show at that time in Victoria Park. On an honorary basis, he offered eye clinics to the association's clients because there were so few people with this medical specialty. As Dr Bauer was the first ophthalmic registrar in WA, there was a three- or four-month waiting list for service. Additionally, there was only limited rehabilitation offered to vision-impaired people, usually teaching the use of a long cane to encourage independence. However, the underlying principles were consistent with the original objective to enhance the quality of life and expand opportunities. Dr Bauer was also convinced of the importance of integrating blind citizens and aiming for the mainstream rather than the segregated sheltered workshop scenario. From its earliest days, this had been a clear focus of the Braille Association. He was further convinced that one of the key methods for getting people back into society was through guide dogs, and thus his support for the merger was deep-rooted and related to his professional background. During an interview in May 2014, Dr Bauer took great pleasure in acknowledging the achievements of the association over the years since the amalgamation. As perhaps might be expected, even though he clearly played a pivotal role in managing the potentially contentious process of amalgamation, he downplayed his role as he did with regard to his long-term relationship with the association. Dr Bauer was quick to name the other members of the combined committees, the executive director, Peter Blocky, and many other contributors to the positive outcomes. In what had become a notable style for these two groups that worked to support blind and vision-impaired people, the progress towards amalgamation proceeded swiftly and effectively. In the meeting minutes of February 1977, less than six months after the first meeting, the subcommittee formally referred to itself as the Joint Council to Consider the Amalgamation. On the 10th of March, 1977, through an announcement by His Excellency the Governor as patron of both organisations, came the news of the amalgamation of the Braille Society for the Blind and the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association of WA. After several months of planning and negotiation, a milestone in the history of both organisations has been reached. The two executive committees concerned are convinced that by combining the assets and administrations of both, a more comprehensive range of services can be provided. In fact, there is no agency in Australia that offers such a wide and complete range of services to the vision impaired. 
The wisdom and logic of such a development is unquestionable. It is our fervent hope that this will be recognised and all who supported the two former bodies will continue to offer their invaluable assistance to the new organisation, which, as from the 1st of July 1977, the start of another year, is known as the Association for the Blind of Western Australia. Geoffrey Summerhays, in the 63rd Annual Report of the Braille Society for the Blind of WA Incorporated, 1976-1977, and inaugural president of the Association for the Blind of Western Australia. In less than 12 months from that first historic planning meeting, the inaugural meeting of the now combined organisations was held on the 12th of July, 1977. The chairman of the meeting, C.G. Hammond, declared it had been a particularly rewarding and satisfying experience. He further noted it had been an honour to preside over such a wise and perceptive council. Inaugural Minutes of ABWA, 12th of July, 1977. Jeff Summerhays, a well-known Perth architect at the time, was elected inaugural president it was perhaps preordained that Jeff Summerhays would take this role because he was the son of Reg Summerhays, also a well-known architect who had a long history supporting the Braille Society and guide dogs in the early days. Reg Summerhays had been instrumental in the setup and design of the guide dog training centre where the first dogs were trained in 1951. By the 20th of September 1977, just two months later, the minutes record that, moved by Mr Walters and seconded by Mr Cook, a subcommittee is established to be known as the Ford Planning Subcommittee to determine the future development of services and facilities of the Association for the Blind of WA. The success of the merger owes much to the two groups who worked together to achieve this outcome. At the best of times, even with accumulated goodwill, mergers and similar processes are fraught with complexities and challenges. The personalities involved in the coming together of the Braille Society and the Guide Dogs did not allow these issues to prevent the process, and they did not lose sight of the objective. One of the key players was Peter Potter, MBE, who at the time of the merger was the president of the Western Australian Guide Dogs Association. Peter Potter and his wife Barbara were an example of family involvement and commitment to the association. Barbara Potter was treasurer of the auxiliary for many years and credited with keeping the finances sound. Fortuitously, for the story of the association, Peter Potter joined the Apex Club of Claremont. This club had supported guide dogs in Western Australia from the founding in 1951. In 1956, Potter was elected as the Apex representative on the Executive Committee for Guide Dogs. His relationship with Guide Dogs continued, and he was one of the driving forces behind the successful merger. His role as president commenced in 1960. He continued in this pivotal role until the merger, when he assumed a vice presidency of the newly formed Association for the Blind in WA. His direct contribution as a committee member, or in an elected role, spanned more than 30 years before he resigned in 1989. He was awarded life membership of the association. With the combined strength of the two groups, the first year of the new association's operation demonstrates the modern scale and scope of its service provision. 
there were 2,116 clients of the association, including 83 beds in the nursing home and the daycare centre for rehabilitation. In addition, the recreation and therapy groups had an average monthly attendance figure in excess of 2,150. There were orientation and mobility instructors travelling across the state and eight vision-impaired clients were being trained for employment in the sighted workforce. The library services, which in essence were the original foundation of the association, were extensive. More than 60 years had elapsed since the first meeting of the Ladies' Braille Group members. Had they been able to see their achievements, they would no doubt be pleased with their legacy. There were 36 volunteer transcribers who produced 370 textbook volumes and about 100 library book titles. Bearing in mind that a Braille Bible can be two metres high, the physical size and scope of these activities by volunteers are even more impressive. There were 18 voluntary readers who helped with a student taping service and a weekly news tape. There were also many listening titles added to the cassette collection. The growing significance of Children's Book Week led to the addition of a text written in both Braille and sighted text to enable parents who were vision impaired to share the joy of special books with their sighted preschoolers. By 1981, just four years after the merger, there were 2,800 people who were blind and vision impaired in WA, and the association offered an astonishing range of 36 programs and activities, besides over 800 support services for activities of daily living to assist clients towards independent living. In addition, they were caring for a total of 160 people in the nursing home, rest home and hostel, while six staff provided wide-ranging library services. This same year, on the 30th of June, 1981, the association lost Dr Arnold Cook, who was only 59 years of age. The national guide dog movement he had pioneered in WA with Betty Bridge and those early volunteers mourned him. He had remained active and participated throughout his life on the committee and in many other ways. His obituary in the annual report read, No honour could be too much to acknowledge the contribution made by Dr Cook in his life, but he was a man who declined such acknowledgement. Annual Report, ABWA, 1981. Dr Cook died with his fourth guide dog, Dorna, working in harness with him. He is commemorated by a life-size sculpture of him with his guide dog in front of the Perrin Centre in Kitchener Avenue. Further transitions took place at this time when Jeff Summerhays, the founding president of the Combined Force, stepped down from his role. He had served for many years before becoming president of the Combined Entities. Through his leadership, guidance, understanding and patience, the merger was accomplished smoothly. The organisation has gone from strength to strength during his reign as president from 1977 to 1981. Annual Report, ABWA, 1982. Sadly, Tom McDowell, his successor as president, died suddenly of a heart attack in October, just a few months after assuming the role, and Lester James became president. The success of the 1977 merger of the Guide Dogs and Braille Society paved the way for further consolidation and strengthening of services for the blind in Western Australia. 
This occurred through a second smooth merger and transition between the Association for the Blind and the Society for Talking Books in 1982. By this time, the association's client list had grown to 3,394. The original merger, plus this additional combining of forces, served to further the development of effective services for the vision impaired. Overall, this new merger resulted in a more efficient and effective delivery of services and a wider range of audiobook titles for client selection. Annual Report, ABWA, 1983. Guide Dog Services. In 1986, Guide Dogs celebrated 35 years in Australia, and two of the original students from the first class were able to attend the celebration. Elsie Mead, who had owned the first dog, Beau, was one of these attendees. She had also served as publicity and public relations officer for many years and was very keen to be part of the celebrations. Mead had been awarded a British Empire Medal in 1981 after her many years of fundraising and public relations work on behalf of blind people. The second student was Joan Lowenson, who attended the celebration with her third guide dog, Drina, no doubt named in memory of Dr Arnold Cook's dog, the first guide dog in Australia. It was fitting that Lowenson attend, as she had more than 60 years' connection to the association and was surely one of the most representative clients. She first encountered Braille in 1920 when she was a gifted young adult studying at the Institute for the Blind. As a result of Braille Society support, Lowenson and her classmate Harold Ackland, another gifted student, matriculated in 1921. She and Ackland then both began a degree at UWA. The reason for her withdrawal from university is not recorded. However, she later returned to the association and was a teacher well into the 1960s. She was also the owner of Lecky, one of the first nine dogs to graduate in Western Australia. Despite the successful 35th anniversary celebration, there was a loss of momentum in the guide dog movement itself. There is little information recorded in the annual report of 1986 about the number of dogs being trained or activities in general. Ten dogs had been placed in nursing homes as therapy dogs, which, although marvellous for the dogs and the residents of these homes, points to difficulties managing guide dogs without proper support in WA. Typically, dogs not successfully completing guide dog training become therapy dogs, essentially companion animals in therapeutic settings. WA was short-staffed and isolated, so it was difficult to support guide dog partnerships. Ten years on from the amalgamation. In 1987, ten years since the merger, the association had nearly 5,000 clients, more than doubling its workload. This was the first year the association was able to attract substantial and specific funding for the library services that until then had been a challenge. The Lotteries Commission, now Lottery West, was a benefactor and has always had a strong and supportive role in the association, recognising the needs of vision-impaired people and the unique services the association provided. The Royal Western Australian Institute for the Blind was approached to discuss more effective and streamlined services for the vision-impaired community through a merger with the association. This had been discussed many times since 1913 and attempted unsuccessfully in 1969 and again in 1982. 
The attempt in 1987 seemed to push the organisations further apart and the association reported that there was a media attack initiated by those at the Royal West Australian Institute for the Blind which will do nothing but erode the vital support base we both require to finance these services to those in the community who are blind and vision impaired whose needs are far more important than the removal of two separate autonomous organisations. Annual Report, page 7, 1987. Despite the rocky process, disappointing outcome and previous history of merger attempts, Ross McLean, the president, commented in 1995 that the Institute was a sister organisation when the Institute celebrated a centenary milestone. In response to changing times and ongoing adaptations required by clients, the Institute has evolved into the Senses Foundation with a focus on disability and in particular the needs of the deaf-blind community. Services being provided in 1997. Guide dogs, mobility training with long cane, comprehensive low vision clinics and advisory services, hostel, nursing home and day therapy facilities, employment and job skills training, independent living services in the home, computer training, early intervention support for young people, life skills training for young people, braille and audio transcription services, recreation, regional braille teaching services. Chief Executive Officers, or Executive Directors as the position was previously titled, of the Association for the Blind of WA. Peter Blocky, 1977-1988. Wendy Silver, 1988 to 1998, Margaret Crowley, 1998 to 2012, Claire Allen, 2012 ongoing. Leadership, 1977 to 1998. The association has been fortunate to have continuity in its operational leadership. This began with Peter Blocky, who spent 17 years with the organisations, first as the executive director of the Braille Society and then of the combined entity. In 1988, he moved to Sydney and Wendy Silver commenced a stable term as the executive director. Silver came with a background in community services and had previously been a technical advisor to the Minister of Health. She worked hard with the association for 10 years and this period saw consolidation and streamlining of the organisation. The nursing home had some negative publicity and financially the organisation needed to address its long-term progress and sustainability. A recurring theme was always funding. It was evident from the very first meeting in 1913 of the Ladies' Braille Society and it continues into the 21st century as the association aims to provide affordable or free services to Western Australia's vision-impaired community. In particular, the Guide Dog program is 100% community-sponsored. Furthermore, guide dogs are always provided free to their owners. In 1993, the association attracted its first major corporate sponsor. Mitsubishi undertook to contribute to the guide dog program after a long history of support from its staff and their families. This paved the way for the association to further increase links with businesses in a bid to ensure its sustainability in the long term and increase the reach of the guide dog program.
In her time as executive director of the association, Silver reflected the forward thinking which has been a feature of the association since its inception. In 1991, she stated, The future of the association is an exciting one. It requires the board and management to be open to new ideas, adopt bold new directions, and above all be ready to embrace the new technology that promises better quality of life for vision-impaired people. Strategic Planning Briefing, 1991. This was a time of mainstream unemployment and belt tightening in Australia, so the association once again beat the odds by the expansion of its services. For many years, it had advocated for client employment opportunities and at this time formed a partnership with PE Personnel, which specialised in finding employment opportunities and ensuring placements were successful. This program resulted in 12 clients being placed in successful employment over a six-month period. The professional expertise of the association and its wide recognition as being able to provide services of value to people with vision impairment is evident in its referral statistics offered in the 1996 annual report. Referrals from ophthalmologists resulted in 28% of new clients to the association and 50% of clients either made contact through knowledge of the association or were referred by family and friends. Low vision was the entry point for many and as one might expect, 70% of consumers were aged over 60 and 50% were over 80. Annual Report, page 8, 1996. By 1997, the number of clients had again nearly doubled over 10 years. The association had much to celebrate in the 20 years since the 1977 merger. Perhaps the pace of change distracted the association from celebrating this milestone. However, in the words of the President, Ross McLean, there had been a metamorphosis from a 1950s-style charity to an efficient 1990s non-profit business. Quite fittingly, given the role of the association in promoting technology for clients, the website and the introduction of email addresses for staff were launched in 1997. It was also the end of an era and the ten years of leadership by Silver came to an end. She had overseen remarkable change and was acknowledged with a Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award. From its initial objectives in 1913, namely Braille transcriptions and the teaching of Braille, the association was now the principal provider of services to the blind and vision impaired in Western Australia. In addition, the association housed the statewide Braille and Talking Book Library and was principal provider of these services. Leadership, 1998-2014 to 2014. In 1998, the association embarked on a major survey of consumer needs in preparation for the future. The survey sought to assess employment issues among its consumers, communication, consumer satisfaction with the services, future needs and membership fees. The aim was to ensure that leadership of the association was well informed about the needs of clients as consumers of services. By this time, Dr Margaret Crowley had taken over leadership as the newly named Chief Executive Officer and began her 14-year term. The board, led by Ross McLean, undertook a survey of a stratified sample of clients from the database of 8,000. 
Subsequently, 500 consumers of the association's services were telephoned to gauge service needs and satisfaction. As the new operational leader of the organisation, Margaret Crowley welcomed the results as a powerful planning tool. Annual Report, 1998. The survey provided useful information which included employment issues as figures indicated that 76.8% of those in the 16 to 64 age group of clients surveyed were unemployed. Client awareness of services was also explored by the survey, leading the association to conclude that clients were well informed about many of the existing services. Some services, like the guide dogs, were extremely well known, despite the relatively small number of users. Over 80% of the clients surveyed were aware of mobility training, demonstrating that this key service, which promoted independence, was also familiar to those with vision impairment. The services that scored as most valued were the library, the low vision centre, aids to daily living and mobility services. Based on the sampling, there was only limited support for residential services. No doubt this, combined with the many challenges of operating a specialist aged care facility in an increasingly regulated environment, led to the decision being taken a few years later to discontinue this service. Disappointingly, over 66% of respondents were not aware that there was a difference between the Royal WA Institute for the Blind in Maylands and the Association for the Blind, despite a number of failed merger attempts. This confusion had begun 80 years earlier and had continued through the years. The need to distinguish the association from the institute was a constant struggle. The association had been able to progress the situation from extreme difficulties when the organisation was a newcomer to welfare services in 1913. At this time, the institute was well dug in with the government, hence the Braille Society had to perform the Oliver Twist routine whenever it wanted more pudding. Laffey in Braille Light, page 37. By the latter years of the 20th century, this was well in the past, but it was discouraging that there was still evident confusion about the two completely different entities. In 1988, the Association for the Blind issued a press release defining the difference between the two. It explained that the association was directed towards enabling vision-impaired people to lead more independent lives by living and working in the community. It went on to state that over 4,000 people throughout WA received services from the association. It also stated that, in contrast, the Institute provided a valuable sheltered workshop for disabled and vision-impaired people where they learned brush-making, cane work and woodwork, with up to 20 people employed. Clients of the Institute were often clients of the Association because the Association had thousands of clients and delivered diverse services locally and statewide. Recent History In the latter stages of the 20th century, there were significant developments in the direction of the Association. They shaped the future in ways that have increased the scope and reach of services. Former President Elizabeth Needham's story reflects the modern history of the association and its leadership with regard to direction and services to members. 
Needham was born legally blind in South Australia and raised in the 1960s and 70s during the time when Wolfensburg advocacy was an approach often used with people who were vision impaired. She believed it had some benefits to her development, but there was a significant downside. This method trained vision-impaired people like Needham to reflect behaviours of the sighted community, effectively masking the disability. Techniques taught included strategies to prevent bumping into things, all with the aim to change ourselves to be as normal as possible. Personal Interview, June 2014, Elizabeth Needham. Since then, there has been a tremendous shift in attitudes towards those with a disability. This methodology has been replaced with one that welcomes diversity and inclusivity. Needham was an outstanding student and went on to study law. She accepted her first position after graduating as a human rights lawyer at Sussex Street Community Legal Centre in East Victoria Park. Her move to WA as a young single woman with a vision impairment was courageous. She established herself quickly and also came into contact with the Association for the Blind. She joined the board in 1998 and after 12 months was asked by the incumbent president to consider running for the position of president. In a bipartisan approach, Jeff Gallup, former Labour Premier and also a board member at the time, and Ross McLean, the former federal Liberal MP and board member, both approached Needham to take on the presidency. She served generously during a time of major change, ensuring the needs of clients were being met in a rapidly changing world. Needham identified the important ethic behind the association in that it specifically rejected institutionalisation and focused on people who were blind and vision impaired being included in and actively taking part in the mainstream community. It specifically rejects having a separate blind culture. Like Needham, people with vision impairment have always been welcomed onto the governing board because in this way the consumer's voice is heard at the highest level. The balance of consumers and people with diverse networks and useful skills is very important. The association was fortunate to have David Minera on the board as the first years of the 21st century unfolded. Minera is also a lawyer and was a consumer of association services. He has a long relationship with visibility, having first come into contact as a youngster who had lost his eyesight. He found blindness a very isolating experience and was determined to prove himself. He has achieved outstanding success both professionally and in sport. He is well respected in his legal practice and uses adaptive technology like text-to-voice to assist him. In sport, he represented Australia in swimming at the Paralympics in 1980. Key decisions made in this period contributed to the association forging its future as a large, sustainable organisation delivering relevant and statewide services. The first of these major decisions related to the guide dogs. The decision was made to bring guide dog training back to Western Australia after the centre had moved to Victoria in the 1960s. With the main training centre located so far away, it necessitated clients travelling across Australia for training. There was limited opportunity for localised orientation and mobility training with a guide dog. If the dog needed correction or had a problem, real help was much further away than just a phone call. It was on the other side of a vast continent. 
As early as 1978, the new committee in Perth wrestled with the problems created by the distant location of the guide dog training centre. There was a recurring problem with an elderly client who was deemed unsuitable for another guide dog placement after her previous dog had died. She was identified as needing additional support and training. It was noted that the distance of Western Australia from Kew, Victoria, did not help and emphasised the need to have a guide dog instructor permanently based in each state. Minutes, 21st of March, 1978. In 1988, a small amount of local training was returned to WA with the national decision to base a qualified guide dog instructor in each state. This would enable clients to be supported in maintaining their skills and provide intervention in a more direct way with issues as they cropped up. Eventually, the guide dogs came back to WA permanently as part of a new training school. It was a deliberate decision aimed at providing better services and increasing the capacity of the program. Before this, the association was forced to purchase fully trained dogs and bring them across from the eastern states to be matched to a client. The return to WA meant that the association would source, raise and train its own puppies, establishing them as fully trained guide dogs. Essentially, the association had turned back the clock with this decision. In the year 2000, 38 long years after the guide dog training program had moved to Victoria, it was re-established in Western Australia. Community support was strong, and the reason for this move was to increase the number of and effectiveness of guide dog services. This would also help to reduce the waiting time and training costs. In 1999, there had been only four guide dogs placed in WA using the National School, although demand was much greater. In a few short years, the decision revitalised guide dog training in WA. In 2001, guide dog Molly stepped into the limelight as the first graduate from the local program. The association set a goal to be self-sufficient by 2003 and to cease importing dogs from the eastern states. In addition to the benefits guide dogs provide for their owners, they are engaging and much-loved ambassadors for all aspects of the association's activities and services. In the history of the Braille Association, Paul Laffey noted that while guide dogs are extremely important for the life-changing contribution to their owners, they came with a significant side effect. It served to encourage thinking about the science of mobility for the blind. The guide dog experience taught that by taking a reasoned and thorough approach to the business of travelling about the daily world, a much more sophisticated set of skills could be developed than was previously imagined. And so, through the back door, as it were, the first orientation and mobility programmes were introduced. Laffey, in Braille Light, page 96. In days gone by, the limits to free movement led to people with vision impairments being consigned to a type of ghetto in which to live or work, and sometimes both. In September 1973, Faithfully Theirs, the National Guide Dog publication, remarked on advances enabling vision-impaired people to live, work and participate in mainstream communities. The dependent and dispiriting lifestyle for a group of blind people with few options was described. Getting to and from the workshop to public transport was frequently done in crocodile fashion, each with a hand on the other's shoulder. 
the leader being the person with some residual vision. Mobility is the everyday freedom of movement most people take for granted. For blind people, mobility training enables them to actively live their lives with as much independence as possible. It has always been one of the key services provided by the association, whether it is the use of the cane, local knowledge awareness in a new environment, or use of guide dogs. All orientation and mobility training is about teaching people who are vision impaired to move about safely. The end of the nursing home era. The second decision relating to the outcomes of the 1998 member survey was to review the nursing home services. The association's strategic plan, derived and influenced by the consumer survey, considered the future of residential aged care programs. Dramatic growth in the aged population and the evolution of modern approaches to the management of these facilities would have necessitated a $6 million investment by the association to rebuild its facility. Aged care had become a highly specialised and professional industry and, as such, potentially diverted the association from primary goals related to integration and access for people with vision impairment. By the end of the 20th century, the association had been an aged care provider for 78 years. It had established useful facilities, developed beautiful gardens, recruited a lively volunteer program and nurtured an important culture. Modifications had been made periodically and although some wings had been closed down and nursing home beds moved, 87 residential beds remained. Many of these residents had been there for a long time and considered it their safe and secure home. However, the facility was not up to modern standards and required a major and very costly renovation. Previous periodic work had created a rabbit warren effect, the worst type of building complex for people with a vision impairment. The board was challenged to consider the best way forward if the association was to continue assisting its clients. The question was whether acute nursing care was going to be the core business of the association. This question highlighted a crossroad for visibility. One road led towards an organisation providing specific care for a smaller number of individuals in a highly regulated environment crowded with other service providers. The other road led towards reinventing a unique 21st century organisation addressing service gaps for blind and vision impaired people statewide. The second road was the chosen and the formal decision was made to begin a process that would move the association out of residential care services. It was not an easy decision and there was much soul-searching. Residential care had been particularly valued in earlier times when there were fewer options and limited state-provided services. Historically, this service had provided a cosy home for elderly, blind people. Humour and sadness tinge personal stories from staff, clients and others and reflect the deep connection the association has had to its rest home clients through the years. The current and long-serving property services officer, Mark Druvens, is a repository of stories spanning 20 years and telling the big and the small picture. He lived on site at the rest home, knew all the clients personally, and he knew who had family and friends paying regular visits. One very elderly gentleman in the home was a retired Speedway champion who enjoyed retelling past experiences and achievements. 
Unfortunately, he had few visitors to share his stories. Druvins invited him to a regular monthly beer and barbecue at his house that became an eagerly anticipated event for the lonely rest-home resident. Another story provides insight into the decision to close the rest-home and discontinue residential services. As the property services officer, Druvins was plagued by the need to carry out repairs on the ageing facility. On one occasion, he was working on an elderly female resident's bathroom, with a colleague stationed nearby to alert him if the owner of the bathroom was approaching to use it. In this case, he would beat a quick and quiet retreat, so as not to alarm or confuse the elderly lady. Unfortunately, his colleague was called away, but failed to let Drivens know. Without warning the client, who, although blind, could move quickly through familiar spaces, rushed in to use her bathroom. Unable to exit, Drivens averted his eyes and remained silent, rather than embarrassing and possibly frightening the resident. It was definitely time for the rickety rest home to go. These undocumented and unrecorded events tell the small stories and demonstrate the heart of the rest home and its long memories of clients who have been served. The association began the process by seeking expressions of interest from organisations with aligned ethos and values interested in the rest home business. A provider was found and the clients were subsequently moved to new facilities. The association was able to focus on the future. Modern Advocacy – A Voice for Inclusion the association has always advocated on behalf of its clients, and this objective has remained fundamental since 1913. In 1980, its support led to the installation of the first audio traffic signals on St George's Terrace. This audio cue is very familiar to all pedestrians. It now serves extremely well to alert vision-impaired pedestrians, as well as those with sight playing with their phones at street crossings. The appointment in 1999 of a policy officer formalised the advocacy role and facilitated the production of straightforward instructions and access to information for clients. This strengthened their capacity to self-advocate for equitable access to community services and facilities. Recognition of the rights of those with a disability had moved a long way from the terrible times of the 1950s when Anne Kent, recipient of Terry, the second guide dog trained in Australia, had to rely on the good humour of someone to help her find a bus. Kent must have marvelled at the changes when she attended the 50th anniversary luncheon of guide dogs held on the 20th of August 2000. Executive Director Peter Blocky demonstrated the early role in advocacy for blind people in a report to the board on the 18th of April 1978. He noted that Westrail, now Transperth, the government authority responsible for railway stations, had been approached to paint platforms with white indicators to assist people with a vision impairment. The Perth City Council had also been approached about painting the top and bottom of city steps white. The same meeting also considered involvement in an anti-rebella campaign because of its link to blindness in newborns. Public transport has always been a focus area for the association because it is so important for clients. When the association discovered there were plans to demolish and rebuild the old railway station in Victoria Park across the road from its premises, it acted swiftly. 
a research officer was appointed and a consultation committee established to prepare recommendations for Transperth about effective and accessible design. A number of its recommendations were included in the final development. The most important of these was ensuring that there was a central platform for train stations. Clients said that they found this much easier and safer to use. The association again intervened when electric vehicles were first trialled in Australia by highlighting the danger caused by noiseless car engines to people who are blind or vision impaired. Clients are taught in mobility training to listen to the sound of the traffic and engine noise. Similarly, when the City of Perth was planning the King Street precinct, the association advocated for pavement design with defined curbs instead of roads and footpaths without adequate definition. People with vision impairment need the curb delineated to enable their safe mobility around traffic and roadways. The City of Fremantle introduced alfresco dining on the pavements outside restaurants to take advantage of the climate. The association outlined the hazards for the vision impaired and presented design principles for the location of tables, awnings and canopies to ensure the safety of these people. Strength for the future. In planning for the new century, Visibility has had to review its approaches to fundraising to ensure long-term sustainability. The Building Our Vision campaign was developed to rebuild the main site after the closure of the nursing home. In addition, the board reviewed its structure to ensure there was a balance between members, clients and professional experts while strengthening capacity to secure public and private funding. The association aimed to secure a mix of people who understood commerce, business, government and the issues associated with vision impairment. Previously, board members had been elected from the membership base of the association. This approach was very effective for a small community group model. However, to achieve the scale of development and meet the challenges of the 21st century, a different approach was needed. The Building Our Vision fundraising program supported the opportunity to reshape the board by engaging with a broad cross-section of the community and bringing in people who had not been members previously. This was a new step and members had to be brought into the process because we didn't want members to feel like they were losing their association. There was a real risk that the membership could turn around and not support a nomination and say that they are not one of us. Personal Interview, June 2014, Elizabeth Needham. These fears were not realised and the membership was supportive of a new approach. The objectives of the Constitution were reworked for clarity and a consultative process took place to explain the reasoning behind the changes. Elizabeth Needham also brought her legal skills to the Association and assisted with this review of the Constitution, the Association's primary governing document. This enabled the governance structure of the legal entity to develop the necessary changes and plan for succession in the board while managing continuity and knowledge capital. A balance between the old and the new was the aim. Currently, no director may serve more than nine consecutive years on Visibility's board. Confidence, Wellness, Connection the 1977 merger of the two main entities delivering services to the blind and vision impaired was a triumph, sparking growth and evolution. 
the Building Our Vision campaign enabled the building of the Perron Centre and service expansion. A one-stop shop was created which included virtual services for the blind and vision impaired. Everyone helps in their own way. The passage of time has seen some regular events established only to fade for various reasons into the lost events of history. In 1962, at the age of 53, Victor Gubgub walked from Perth to Fremantle to raise money for blind people. In 1988, he decided to do this again at the age of 80. By this time, he was semi-retired from a lifetime in the motor trade industry. He was also active in sport and leisure associations and devoted himself to causes to assist people who are blind. 28th of April, 1988, press release. In early days, the uniquely named Ugly Men's Association was a help to the Braille Society. The Uglies, as they were affectionately known, were established in 1917 as a charitable organisation and were very important when the rest home building project began. The original concept of the group was an Ugly Man competition which evolved as a wartime fundraising initiative during World War I. It thrived in the 1920s, with membership approaching 2,000 and 21 branches in Perth. However, it gradually became inactive and folded in 1948. A venture commencing in 1960 and thriving for 28 years was Nell's Girls. The singing group was made up of members of the Victoria League in Shenton Park and was originally led by a renowned WA singer, Nell Shortland-Jones. Members gave concerts for the association and also brought with them a famous afternoon tea. By 1988, they were no longer as girlish as they used to be and they presented their last concert to the guests who were blind and vision impaired at Braille Hall. Press release, 27th of April, 1988. Another unusual group which supported the association and does still exist today is the Australian Order of Old Bastards, AOOB, a group whose name derived from exchanges with American servicemen during World War II. The Americans were amazed and amused that a slap on the back and an exclamation, you old bastard, was actually a term of endearment and affection. In the past, the AOOB has sponsored the printing of the association's colourful annual report. The AOOB is still operating, and in 2011, the Wickham-based chapter sponsored a Labradoodle guide dog, also named Wickham. Overall, though, its membership and branch numbers have declined. The last 20 years or so. Visibility, not surprisingly, has many long-serving employees, people with a variety of skills who engage, connect and stay. Carol Salossi, now the Executive Manager of Corporate Services, has worked at the association for more than 20 years. Her own story highlights the maturation and development of the modern association. I used to work in the division of the State Library that was responsible for public library services and my area of specialty was services to people with a disability. I knew about the Association for the Blind Library through that job. One Saturday morning, my husband read out an advertisement for the library manager position at the Association for the Blind, and as soon as he read it out, I said, I want that job, I want that job. I wasn't even looking for another job, but it just jumped out at me, and so that's how I came to apply for the position here. 
on the 14th of January 1991, I was engaged by the Association for the Blind to the position of library manager. Since commencing employment, I've held a variety of different positions at the Association, and while my knowledge of the evolution of the Association centres mainly around changes to the library services, I've had the pleasure of watching and participating in other advancements regarding blind and vision-impaired Western Australians. Over time, the Association has changed the way it has shaped its service delivery models in response to prevailing community attitudes, philosophies and government policy. We are currently redesigning our approach within the context of the government's recently introduced National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS. This change means that organisations like the Association will have clients who are individually funded and we will be tailoring our services to meet their personal needs. It also means that we will become more competitive and will need to focus on the most sustainable way to operate and offer services. We will be achieving this under our current Chief Executive Officer, Dr Claire Allen. In the past, the Association has focused on different issues affecting the blind and vision impaired. When Wendy Silver was our CEO, the emphasis was on the need for our clients to integrate with the community, which led to less centre-based activities and more community-based activities and services. We saw a change in this focus when Wendy Silver's successor, Dr Margaret Crowley, became the CEO. Margaret knew of research indicating that there were significant numbers of our clients affected by depression. Community-based activities were not adequately meeting the needs of our clients and this was instrumental in the development of the Perrin Centre. We now have a wide range of group-based activities at the centre which cater to client needs and their social opportunities. Technology has revolutionised the way in which we deliver talking books to our clients. The audiobooks we used to post to our borrowers were in the form of vinyl records. They became big, clunky, multi-track cartridge tapes, which were followed by standard cassettes. Now, everything is digital, and our clients can even download talking books online, or we can post thumb drives to clients uploaded with the items they want to listen to. We have even started an audio book club for our clients to join, which is a great way for them to get together. The library we opened in the Perrin Centre functions like any other community library where our clients can walk in and browse what we have before borrowing an item. We have assistive technologies for clients to use to help them make that choice. We also make sure that there are collections available for children and young people in the new facility. We don't lend Braille books directly to clients anymore after contributing them to the National Braille Lending Collection operating out of Sydney at the Royal Blind Society. People wanting to borrow Braille books in WA now use this service and we can help them with that too. One thing that marks the 1990s is the emergence of more accessible technology and what this has meant for our clients. There was a wave of manufacturers of accessible technology specifically designed for people who are blind or vision impaired. More recently, though, we are finding mainstream technology becoming accessible to blind and vision impaired people. This has enabled our clients to start using devices that other people in the community are similarly using, such as smartphones. Clients can use voice-to-text, GPS and internet browsers. 
The devices are accessible and much cheaper than previous specialty items designed and manufactured particularly for people who are blind and vision impaired. Also, such use of mainstream devices does not stigmatise vision impaired people. The association has invested in a lot of different projects. It has spent time and effort to research issues about any adverse impacts on the general community upon blind and vision-impaired people and how they can be improved. We have a continuing relationship with the Kimberley region where staff members travel once or twice a year to work with local healthcare agencies and clients. We offer specialised assessments to people with vision loss caused by an acquired brain injury. The association also has a dedicated position for assisting clients with employment opportunities. In the 1990s, we delivered training courses in an accessible format with adapted materials and computer equipment. Even though we received training funds from the state government, the funding that we received was nowhere near enough to cover our costs and it just became economically unviable and unsustainable. There was a significant amount of work required because we just couldn't buy a textbook for our students. We had to redesign all the learning materials and make them accessible, which was hugely onerous. For these reasons, we are now partnered with Red Cross Training to deliver accredited training to clients who would like to further their education. I'm proud to have worked so long for such an amazing organisation that has had a positive impact on the lives of many people in countless ways. I look forward to seeing the association take on the challenges ahead to continue providing the community with its invaluable disability services. The Voice of Consumers They did a lot of client consultation in the planning of this building, so I feel like there's a part of me in here because I was heavily involved with that. That's why the building looks as it does because of things we requested. One of the things we requested was squared-off corridors. 90-degree angles are easier to navigate than modern buildings that go all over the place. It's easy to lose direction. That's why there's parquet on the corners as well as near the kitchen in this building. The evolution has been, we know what you need and we'll come and do it for you, to come and talk about what it is you need. That's the main shift in attitude. And now you have more committees, like the Consumer Advisory Committee, who are influential in changing ideas. Trevor and Jenny Dawson, clients, board members, supporters, volunteers, employees and advocates during their interview, May 2014. Bring back the dogs. It is a tribute to Molly and all those who have trained her that in spite of the advances in technology, nothing has replaced guide dogs in terms of their value to a blind person. This is also a little piece of history in the making. That investment will transform the quality of life of someone without sight. And congratulations Molly, WA's first locally trained guide dog in 38 years. Dr Jeff Gallup, WA Premier at the presentation of a Lottery West grant and the graduation of Molly, the guide dog, and her owner, Geraldine Lane, 9th of November 2001. The Association for the Blind, WA, Guide Dogs, WA Presidents. Jeff Summerhays, 1977 to 1982. Tom McDowell, 1982, died in office. Lester James, 1982 to 1985, 
John Stokes, 1986 to 1989. John Thompson, 1989 to 1995. Ross McLean, 1996 to 1999. Elizabeth Needham, 2000 to 2010. Debbie Schaefer, 2011 ongoing. The Guide Dog Art Shows. For many years, starting in the 1970s, the Guide Dogs Association held an annual art show as a fundraiser, and this quickly became a premium event in Perth. The shows were another example of the capacity of the association to gather groups of enthusiastic volunteers and pull together major events. Commitment over many years by individuals and groups improved opportunities for people with blindness and vision impairment. Loyal supporters like Dixie Gunning, who coordinated art shows for over 20 years, illuminate the history of the association's volunteers. Gunning has a lifelong connection with the association, formed in the late 1960s through a chance request from a friend to consider joining the Women's Auxiliary for the Guide Dogs. Within a year, Dixie was the president. The art shows marshalled a veritable army of donors and supporters to assist with the collection and curating of as many as 150 works on an annual basis. It was also necessary to find a suitable venue, arrange catalogues, printing, catering and myriad other tasks in order to host a successful and prestigious event. Artists were approached to exhibit their works with a 25% donation being given to the guide dogs. The events engaged and furthered the careers of many Western Australian artists and included many well-known Australian artists. A visit with the now-retired Gunning provides insight into the passion the association's volunteers have brought to their work over the century. Gunning, still an active member of the association, demonstrates her generous-spirited personality even in her busy retirement. In May 2014, on the day of her interview to share her memories of the association, Gunning's house was filled with 40 larger-than-life Easter Bunny costumes with enormous heads, all hanging upside down in rows. At first glance, this created a slightly macabre look until the smiling faces of the bunnies revealed themselves. From this point, the scene was purely comical. When queried about this amusing sight, Gunning volunteered that she helps her daughter-in-law care for the Easter Bunny costumes from her costume hire shop. A kind and gracious hostess, Gunning remembers with fondness the guide dog art shows and her years at the helm of these events. As is typical with these stories, the focus is on the importance of clients as central to initiatives undertaken by the association. There is evident pride in these events with the downplaying of the personal role that contributed to the success of these art shows and raised many dollars for the association. Gunning was awarded a lifetime membership, has a wing named after her in the new Perrin Centre, and was awarded an Order of Australia medal in the General Division in 1993. She is typically humble about her efforts. In 1993, there were 250 people involved in all aspects of the association's work, but the auxiliary groups, often led by ladies, have been the backbone of fundraising for services. Besides the Central Metropolitan Auxiliary, many others undertake their own initiatives for the association throughout WA. Page 117, Chapter 5 
These are the stories of visibility. Visibility has enhanced the lives of blind and vision-impaired Western Australians over the last 100 years. Countless thousands have been involved with the association as clients, volunteers, staff and supporters, often in all these roles or combinations of them. The individual stories here provide an insight into this history. It is impossible to tell everyone's story. Staff Experiences Ron Anderson and Michael Pereira's story Personal Reflections on Sport and Recreation Initiatives When I am asked about my favourite aspect of my job, my response has always been that I go to work to be inspired. Michael Pereira, Staff Member, Visibility, November 2013 Handa Sport and Recreation Academy for the Blind is situated at one side of the modern visibility premises. This is a magnificent facility with comprehensive options for people with vision impairment. In the past, their enforced sedentary lifestyle severely impacted on their health and consequent well-being. The dangers of moving about without vision traditionally limited opportunities to explore fitness, competitive sport and other active hobbies. The first guide dog owners noted how important their dog was for enabling free movement and there were many references to this significant development. Visibility has pioneered sports and recreation for people with a vision impairment, recognising that physical activity has a strong relationship with physical and emotional well-being. The experience of some clients demonstrates how their vision impairment can result in a risk of community isolation and exclusion. This is why the association's initiatives in health, fitness and sports activities have been crucial and are greatly valued by its clients. The Academy is the symbolic flowering of tiny seeds planted in 1973 by a long-term supporter, client, volunteer and employee of Visibility. Ron Anderson was a young family man with two children when he was blinded by a disease of the optic nerve, leaving him with a peripheral vision of 1%. He was forced to give up his previous employment as a painter and signwriter. He recovered from this terrible blow, learned new skills and commenced public relations work at the Braille Society in 1975. Thus began a long career pioneering almost every conceivable activity that people with vision impairment could undertake. It was truly an era of revolution in team sports, activities, fitness, competitive sports and overall development of opportunities. Anderson started simply with a fun run in which he competed to raise funds for a children's disability charity. He was keen to show that blind people could support other charitable groups. Anderson then learned Braille from Dorothy Judd and typing skills from Angus Stewart, both long-serving and loyal visibility supporters. These skills quickly enhanced his capacity as a public relations officer and activities coordinator. It is difficult and breathtaking to summarise the number of opportunities he created for vision-impaired people. They included dance, drama, kung fu, sailing, tandem cycling, athletics, water skiing, swimming, lawn bowls, rowing, canoeing, camping, fishing, beach swimming, bushwalking, horse riding, windsurfing, Paralympic competition, powerlifting and more. Some initiatives are of special note and demonstrate Anderson's creativity and determination. 
He mentioned to members of a sporting car club how he missed driving and the sensation of being behind the wheel of a vehicle. Almost overnight, 40 blind people were learning to drive at the Wanneroo racetrack. They relished the chance to manoeuvre a car with the help of a sighted companion and sticky tape on the steering wheel to guide hand positions. The recollections of two clients who participated in these outings are entertaining. Jenny Dawson, a current board member and long-term client who is completely blind, said, We would go up to Wanneroo and go to the racetrack where they would let us have a drive. You'd be in a car with the drivers and you'd go around the racetrack. There were no dual controls, but they were giving us instructions. That was a lot of fun. Jenny Dawson's husband Trevor, who is blind, recounted his standout memory of these activities. One day, I had been out sailing off Fremantle on 34-foot yachts, which was another activity organised by Ron Anderson. I got home and thought, oh, Jen's not home. Later, Trevor Dawson discovered that his wife had crashed the car, though fortunately no serious injuries were incurred. Anderson's achievements were many, and he was acknowledged with awards and accolades, including an Order of Australia medal. One of his biggest contributions in terms of a legacy is the establishment of golfing for people who are blind. This provided the opportunity for a relatively chance encounter with a Japanese philanthropist and enthusiastic golfer, Dr. Haruhisa Handa, who had seen a short television segment about golfers who are blind. Over time, Handa became a supporter, major sponsor, committee member and active advocate for visibility. His generous contributions made possible both the Handa Sports Academy and the Australian Open Golf Tournament for the Blind. Anderson's leadership is widely acclaimed. He developed all aspects of physical activities for clients, ensuring choices and opportunities, new frontiers for people with vision impairment. Anderson's experience of vision loss at a crucial time in his life provided inspiration to other young people in similar circumstances. For example, Jeremy McClure lost his sight at the age of 15. Prior to this, he was a keen sportsman at Trinity College. He played many sports, including competition water polo. Following his vision loss, McClure lost his interest in sport, thinking that he could no longer participate. His parents contacted Anderson through the association, and McClure was re-engaged with physical activity. He started competition swimming, winning three gold medals in Paralympic competition. Anderson's retirement in 2004 celebrated his many contributions to the physical and mental well-being of blind people who benefited from initiatives he kick-started. He handed his baton to a worthy carrier of his mission when Michael Pereira was appointed as the Sport and Recreation Programme Coordinator. Pereira's own words during the centenary year at Visibility in 2013 summarise his commitment and engagement in what has been a revolution in sport and recreation opportunities. My initial learning centred around grasping the concept of vision impairment as opposed to total blindness and the opportunities available to people with vision loss. The following 18 months were spent under the tutelage of Ron Anderson and Gail Sutherland, who kindly imparted their wealth of experience to me. I would also like to acknowledge several other wonderful ambassadors of the organisation who took the trouble to share client perspectives. Special mention must go to Doug and Carolyn Roop and Jennifer and Trevor Dawson.
My objectives were to maintain and assist long-running sports programs such as ten-pin bowling, tandem cycling and golf, while creating new opportunities and pathways in response to client demand, for example, strength, conditioning and self-defence programs. I strived to provide something for everyone, from the Paralympic-level competitive sports people to senior citizens keeping active and enjoying the social interaction. I supported the direction of our new manager of independent living services, Marina Ree, in providing more equitable service to each of the blind sports groups coming under our umbrella. In going about this task, we encouraged autonomy and independence, resulting in the formation of what later became the WA Blind Sports Federation. Concerns about the heavy focus on elite and competitive sports people were addressed by offering a wide range of activities catering for all ages and levels of ability. Examples include low-impact exercise groups for seniors, yoga classes and massage clinics, which also offered tertiary study pathways for our clients. In 2004, thanks to the generosity of our major benefactor, Dr Hander, construction began on our new state-of-the-art facility, which was formerly the nursing home on Kitchener Avenue in Victoria Park. When the new visibility building opened in 2006, I was proud to be an inaugural member of staff walking through the doors for the first time. The Hander Sport and Recreation Academy for the Blind boasted a small gymnasium, sports hall, golf simulator, offices, club room and storage. Under the direction of Marina Ree, now Director of Client Services, and the tireless management of Susie Sim, we sustained our commitment to presenting clients with the widest possible range of sports, activities and services. The evolution and changing times meant there were instances of out with the old and in with the new with regard to programs on offer. Largely, however, the groups comprising the WA Blind Sports Federation were still going strong. The association supported these groups in terms of client and volunteer referrals, facility and equipment hire, administrative support, transport assistance and more. Our self-defence and protective behaviours course, entitled Living Safe, won the State and National Crime Prevention Award in 2010. Goalball, a Paralympic sport for blind people, was relaunched with a basic program in Hander Hall. With the valuable support of the Australian Paralympic Committee and the Department of Sport and Recreation WA, this snowballed and resulted in the incorporation of Goalball WA and the formation of men's, women's and junior teams which now compete at state, national and international levels. Valuable relationships were established with external providers and the broader community. Our road was not without obstacles and challenges. A narrowing margin of possible funding sources and grant applications resulted in gaps in services despite client demand. Employability services are a constant need. Centenary celebrations in 2013 generated publicity and several successful events were run. Examples included the Centenary Day, Gala Dinner, Presentation to Government and the Centenary Open Day, to name just a few. A majority vote at the AGM approved the motion for an organisational name change from the Association for the Blind WA to Visibility. I support the name change decision wholeheartedly. This is based on the number of times I have been called to meet with a new client who is still adjusting to their newly developed blindness or vision impairment. 
many of these clients indicated that they found the old name very intimidating and that they were not ready to accept the disability. Sometimes, even my very best efforts could not coax them into involvement. I believe that a more inclusive name, which emphasises ability over disability, and thus encourages, can only be positive. Adaptive and Assistive Technology David Vosnarkos Doctors can save lives, but occupational therapists can show you how to live it. David Vosnarkos, Program Manager, Data Systems, Visibility, April 2014, speaking about the role of occupational therapists. David Vosnarkos arrived at the association as a newly graduated occupational therapist in March 1994. He knew this was an opportunity not to be missed. With some breaks in his employment for travel, his link with visibility has been continuous. For visibility, Vosnarkos has been at the forefront of exploring the potential of and incorporating the benefits of the technological revolution. Technology has advanced with lightning speed for the sighted world, and for the vision impaired, this revolution has been even more exciting. Vosnarkos's own words tell some of the story of this revolution. In 2003, we started our transition to a new client management system, Jade Care Community. This system provided our staff with an accessible means of recording their client-related activities, such as assessment, meetings and correspondence, electronically, regardless of whether they use screen readers or magnification software. I was part of the development and training team that saw this system rolled out across the association in March of that year. That, along with the introduction of the Citrix network, meant we could access our client management system wherever we were in the state, as long as there was a decent internet connection. I was appointed as Program Manager of Information Services, which encompassed our library and assistive technology services. For me, this was a great mix, allowing me to explore an area of great interest in technologies and relating that to how we created and delivered library content. It was the start of a surge in universal design in electronic appliances such as laptops and mobile phones with screen readers becoming more efficient and less reliant on third-party commercial software. It was the start of the end of analogue recording in our library. Many Roles and a Lifelong Association Reflections on my lifelong involvement with visibility Ian Blackburn, current board member, client, 2014 my student life. My parents registered my brother and myself with what is now visibility in the 1970s when I commenced school at Sutherland Street Primary School in Dianella. Both my brother and I have a hereditary retinal condition, which means we are both legally blind. I am totally blind while he has some useful vision. Adding to my visual challenge, I also have a small degree of cerebral palsy and scoliosis. For any teenager, high school presents several challenges. These are magnified significantly once you factor in vision impairment. I had to physically carry a heavy Perkins Brailler on a daily basis, which did nothing to alleviate my scoliosis. I became aware that I stood apart from the rest of the crowd. The obvious reason was my disability, but this was further exacerbated by my unwillingness to conform to peer pressure. Drinking and antisocial behaviour did not interest me, as I did my best to focus on my education. I really valued the books supplied to help me complete it. 
thanks must be given to the volunteer readers and Braille transcribers who produced these texts. Upon completion of high school, I undertook tertiary study at Murdoch University, completing a Bachelor of Economics in 1990. I received assistance in the form of Braille transcription of two maths texts and from volunteer readers, one of whom I still keep in touch with all these years later. Audiobook technology remained fairly stable over this period, and it has only been in the past year or so that I have been exposed to the more modern daisy talking books. As a university student, my only regret is not further engaging with my peers and the university culture in general. With no useful vision, keeping up with the workload took up all my free time. In 2005, I was given an opportunity to work for Curtin University in the Rehabilitation, Engineering and Assistive Technology Research Laboratory. I worked under Dr Ian Murray in the Quality Assurance area by testing equipment developed for people who are blind or multi-disabled. While working for Curtin University, I also took up the opportunity to complete a Master of Information Systems research degree, focusing on the area of interface design for Braille keyboard computer devices. The motivation behind such a significant academic commitment was a flashback to my days as a primary school student lugging around that heavy Perkins Brailler. I wish to make life better for the young vision-impaired students of tomorrow. Mobility Services, Technology and Training My parents always strive to obtain the best for my brother and myself. Upon discovering long cane training could only be provided to people 16 years of age and older, they fought to change this limit. As a result, I obtained this training at about 12, just in time for high school. My first instructor was Jane Hutchinson, who later headed up what is now the Leisure Centre. I wish to thank Jane, Steve Moore, David Bright and Chong San Yoon for their involvement with me over the years. Although I've often taught myself how to get to new venues, I have accessed mobility services, particularly in relation to learning my way to new places of employment or university campuses. Long cane training techniques have changed significantly over the years. During Chong's tenure at the association, I've been involved in the quality evaluation of new electronic mobility aids. Although I have considered the use of a guide dog, I personally prefer the long cane at this stage of my life. I do not wish to have the responsibility of caring for another living creature. With regard to technology for learning and daily living, my involvement with visibility has largely centred around being provided with equipment such as braille watches, vocational training by staff, equipment through Lottery West and workplace modification grants. I thank Lottery West for the assistance extended to me, which enabled me to obtain valuable equipment to make living with blindness easier. Sport and Recreation When I was around nine years of age, my family and I had a chance meeting with the former recreation officer and current life member Ron Anderson while holidaying on Rottnest Island. My parents explained that while the School for the Blind did offer sport, the activities were always safe and did not cover the full range available to sighted students. As a result, Ron visited the School for the Blind to improve our sporting opportunities, for which I was very grateful. I then became involved in the Visibility School Holiday Program, participating in woodwork, pottery and other activities. Sporting activities included tandem cycling, golf 10-pin bowling, swimming and athletics. 
I participated in national-level athletics from 1979 to 1986. My father was the team manager from 1978 to 1984, including the 1984 Paralympic team. The opportunity provided to young blind people to be part of a WA state team and the associated travel was invaluable in teaching me life skills. As much enjoyment as I derived from the activities above, I lacked the confidence to vocalise my true goals and aspirations. I had endured teasing and bullying at the hands of peers, both sighted and vision impaired, for most of my early life. I had dreams of building up my lean frame, perhaps undergoing postural correction of my scoliosis and learning a martial art in order to build up my confidence, self-esteem, physical ability and all the other benefits that come with it. My role model was the character played by David Carradine in Kung Fu, a popular television series at the time. I desperately wanted to be Grasshopper. However, this opportunity proved hard to come by as there were obstacles to my participation and I feared ridicule. Therefore, known only to myself, these goals remained unfulfilled. That was until 2006 when I heard of a self-defence course being offered by Visibility. I jumped at the chance and attended this course, meeting the new recreation officer, Michael Pereira, for the first time. After successfully completing the course, I found the courage to vocalise my dream of so many years to him, and the following Monday morning they became works in progress. A rigorous heavy weight training program and diet plan saw me strengthen my frame. I even won the association strength championships for several years. The core strengthening I underwent corrected my scoliosis to a degree, and it is now almost invisible. Best of all, I commenced my training in the martial arts of judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and most recently, freestyle wrestling. Being ground fighting arts, these were the most relevant self-defence systems for a totally blind participant. It was not long before I ventured from self-defence activities to competition, achieving several belts in the process. Not content to compete against vision-impaired peers, I sought out the highest level challenges possible. An amateur documentary-style film entitled Blind Ambition was made by Michael Pereira in order to chronicle my training, preparation and participation in the 2013 Kano Open Judo Championships, competing against athletes who were not only fully sighted but of Olympic standard. Along with the physical and skill benefits of participating in martial arts, I was able to acquire the associated confidence, self-esteem and willpower I had dreamed of as a youth. I feel grateful for and proud of my achievements, as few people in life get the opportunity to come full circle and achieve their goals. Better late than never. As is so often the case, Ian Blackburn has volunteered his services to visibility. His volunteer work has included providing one-on-one -on -one training to blind computer users. He also produced a record number of digital talking books by converting the association's analogue tape collection. Blackburn is a motivational speaker and actively encourages others to achieve their dreams. It was a great honour to be elected, and I was overwhelmed by the support I received from the client body. It has therefore become my commitment to give of my best in order to honour that support and keep their interests in mind at all times. Ian Blackburn on being elected to the Visibility Board, October 2012. Trevor and Jenny Dawson, Clients, 
board members, volunteers. When you have a guide dog and a baby, you just don't get a look in. Interview Trevor and Jenny Dawson, May 2014. Trevor and Jenny Dawson are a blind couple who were both classed as legally blind, though Trevor Dawson has minimal light perception. He was affected by retrolental fibroplasia because of pure oxygen exposure in the humidicrib and has been linked to the association since 1968. I was born prematurely and I was put into pure oxygen and it damaged the optic nerve, so I had sight for three days. I've got light perception, but seeing what's on this table or what you look like or what Jen looks like, I couldn't tell you but I could see whether there's a light on. The source of Jenny Dawson's vision loss has never been adequately explained. They don't really know what caused my eye problems, but anything that couldn't be explained back then was always put down to rubella or German measles that your mother might have had exposure to. I had a little bit of vision, probably until my teens, and then by the time I was 18, I had lost that little bit of sight that I had. Now I'm totally blind. In fact, I wear prosthetic lenses these days, and I change my eye colour because I can. With me, it was because I had a lot of scar tissue. I'd had seven operations by the time I was two, so mine is called secondary glaucoma. But they weren't looking for it, and even at its worst, I never had any pain. I suspect I had it when I was very young. Despite living with what others might consider to be a disadvantage beyond comprehension, Trevor and Jenny Dawson have committed themselves to a life as a couple and are both active and well-respected within their communities. They met each other through the association when Jenny was introduced to Trevor so that he could teach her switchboard operation. Besides training Jenny for this role, Trevor Dawson had a successful career as a switchboard operator. Trevor's career I worked for the association on the switchboard, training and learning what to do between 1970 to 1972. Then I worked for the banking industry. In 2005, after being made redundant from Westpac when they moved to call centres, I came in here to do a bit of voluntary work and was grabbed to do a job for six months on the switchboard. On the old cord and plug, you had a light probe sitting on your finger and you would wave your finger over the light and it would make a sound when you came close to the light. I was also trained on a push-button switchboard. I had a braille pad and the call would come in, the pad would show a number it was coming from, then you would answer it with the ordinary keyboard and then you had a computer with all the names of the staff that we would look up while talking to the client. It was important to recognise the incoming phone numbers in the afternoon because we took calls in Western Australia for all the other states after they closed. Jenny on prosthetic eyes. They're fake. The reason I wear them is because your eyes shrink and then you can't keep them open and the eyelashes turn in. About 12 months ago, we were on the train and this woman said, Excuse me, I like your blue eyes. You have the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. I was very gracious. I just said, thank you. People get confused because they actually think I can see. I've still got natural movement. They actually paint them up and they paint the little veins on them and everything. I have to go next week to have them built up a bit. They're getting a little bit loose. And people ask, do they help you see better? Trevor and Jenny's changes through life.
Both Jenny and Trevor Dawson have used a guide dog at a point in their lives when this was helpful to them. Jenny Dawson made use of a guide dog in her transition to motherhood. However, both are proficient cane users and no longer use a guide dog. We've evolved in how we've used the association over the years. If we go back to when the kids were young, I decided to get a guide dog before we had the babies. We did that through the association and went to Melbourne for training. When I returned with my guide dog, there was no resident instructor in WA, so they would send someone back with you for a couple of days and then you were on your own. Then we had our first baby. I had a harness that would clamp onto the pram handle and around my waist and I would tow the pram. So I had my guide dog and the pram. That harness is still here. My dad made it from a pattern. The association helped me get that organised. The harness worked well. It meant that I could have a hand free, but I could still put my hand back on the handle to steady it if I needed to. That was back in the day when bus drivers would put the pram up onto the bus for you. In the 1990s, Jean Fisher used to run the Speakers Bureau at the association, which went for a few years. We would go out for public speaking engagements at a wide range of different social and community groups. I would take a dog and a kit of things like a bag of money so I could tell them how I identified money. I had a Braille storybook, the kind I would read to my kids. I had a cane. I used to take a computer, which wowed them. Everyday living things. It was hugely successful, and that's where I cut my teeth as a speaker. And now, of course, I do disability awareness training. They put us all through a Toastmasters course so that we were properly trained. Braille today. We learnt at school. It is difficult to learn. I went to a mainstream school, so I learnt to read and write as well, and by the time I got to year four, I started to learn Braille. Yes, it's hard. Most adults don't choose to learn it. Not only is it difficult to learn, but it's slow to read, and you have to practice a lot. Between 10 and 15% of blind and vision-impaired people know Braille. It's not a big number. These days, kids are all in mainstream education and they have support teachers. The focus on learning Braille has diminished, which is a shame because it means that they are effectively illiterate. Technology. We use all sorts of things. We have note-takers, a Braille label-maker and a Braille record of my accounts. A friend doesn't know Braille and he doesn't use computers, so it's narrowed his interests. He only uses a note-taker, which is like a digital dictaphone. Both Trevor and I are computer literate, and I have an iPhone, and Trevor is into Android. We made a choice to stay committed to technology and grow with it, because we felt that as we got older it would become more important, and it has. Now you have quite a few people learning the iPhones and iPads. Children. It was easy when they were tiny and not crawling. When they began crawling, we put a bell on their shoulders until my eldest son, and biggest challenge, learned that if he held on to the bell, he could go undetected, and he got out one day. I was calling him and calling him, thinking, my gosh, how am I going to find him? And one of the neighbours from over the road was watching me, and he came over. He said, I can't believe this kid. He's just standing over there. He's holding his bell, and he's watching you. He was about two when this happened. That's the one who's the fighter pilot now. He was always six months ahead of the other kids. The kids knew that there was something different about you, even if they couldn't verbalise it. 
When they were babies, I noticed that if I wasn't quite on target to their mouth, they'd just move their mouth. Other people's children don't understand that you can't give them eye contact. When I was out with the kids, they seemed to know how much freedom they could take, and when there was someone with you who could see, they would take a bit of extra freedom. As the kids got older, I would have to shift the responsibility back onto them. Like if they leave the house in something other than their school uniform, it's not going to bother me because I won't have to face it, but they will. My youngest son wouldn't get changed one morning to go to school, so he went in his pajamas. He didn't do that again. If you don't do your homework, I don't face the teacher. You do, and that was very successful. Yes, the children did help us, but it was a fine line. You had to allow them to be children. We found that they used to tell us if we put the pressure on too much, but they had really good life skills. They could write a check by the time they were in their early teens. They could read what was on packets from an early age. Being organised was important when they were really little. The change table had everything within reach. I had a curly cord attached to my eldest son, and I could reel him in when he was little. I got someone from the orientation and mobility team to assist me to learn how to get about the school, so I could come and go independently. If there's a new area that you need to learn how to navigate, an orientation and mobility team member will come out to teach you. I was the only mum allowed to bring her dog to assembly. Trevor and I would get involved where we could. Canteen duty wasn't my thing, so I got onto the P and C as secretary because that is what I could do. Trevor joined the scouts committee. The kids often regretted that we didn't have a car, so they learned how to work it out by organising lifts. We live in Rollystone, so I made sure I got into the playgroup system really early, so that I was able to develop a network of mums. Because we conducted ourselves the way we did, our boys knew that everybody in the community respected us, and that rubbed off onto them. Any frustrations they had with our disability, they were able to express, because we got frustrated too sometimes. There was never any resentment; they could come out and say whatever they wanted. Clients would go to the mainstream centres and sit in the corner because they didn't have blind and vision impaired catered activities. It's very important for clients to hang out together. Jenny Dawson on the value of a centre for people with vision impairments. Jenny on guide dogs. I've gone back to using a cane. Having a dog was always a choice because I've always been a good cane user. My motivation initially was because we were going to have a family, and I thought it would be easier, which it was. It helped me tow the pram. When they were at playgroup, the dog would help me get around so I could follow them. I just had to keep him away from the fruit table. Labradors don't share, but kids do. At kindy, you would hear, "Oh, oh, the dog's got my fruit." When my last dog retired, the kids were grown, and I didn't want that responsibility any more. I always maintained my cane skills while I had the dog, which meant leaving your dog home occasionally. Having a dog is the same emotional trip as having children. You have to bond with the dog and look after it. A lot of guide dog owners will always have a guide dog. It's a whole different way of doing things with a dog. They tie you down in some way too. If you travel with a guide dog, you have to pack a bag for them too. If you're going to be out late or have somewhere to go, you have to take food and water with you. It's just like having a child. We have a pet dog now, but not a guide dog. She's one of Black Boy's dogs who breed for the association. 
She's an ex-show dog and is almost as well-trained as a guide dog. Jenny on role of the association in the lives of clients. In here, they can be extended family. A lot of the clients who come in, especially to the leisure centre, can truly be themselves because at home others can't really understand what it's like and we can say really dreadful things to each other. For example, Dave in the cafe and the staff down there. When they started, they thought they would upset someone quickly, but then realised after hearing us talk to each other, they would have no worries. Everybody's in the same boat here, and we all understand. For a lot of the people who have never been to the association, they would call in and admit they were going blind and wondered what they should do. I would say, just come and join the rest of us. They were happy to think that someone understood them. That is what it's all about. It's a really good part of our lives in more ways than one. If you need a book, transcription or advice on how to label your microwave, you're able to get someone to do it for you. For us, the association is there as a backup. For example, if we get a new microwave, we might ask the occupational therapist to put braille markings on it so that we can use it safely. If you're unsure how to do something, need a manual read onto a cassette to learn how to operate a new piece of equipment, there is help available. A lot of it is episodic. However, now we come into the leisure centre and do recreation programs. But other than that, it's background things that we get them to do every now and then. And we can help others too by suggesting ideas. Sometimes there are simple things that others just don't think of. We enjoy giving that back. Most of the clients here are elderly and just losing their sight. There's not many who have the experience that we do. You can move in and out of the community as you want. One of the major shifts in the library is that you can now download books. The library undertook a project to digitise all of the cassettes. I can go to the catalogue and download it. With technology now, you can download books from overseas and organisations where before you couldn't. We've come a long way since we joined the association, in more ways than one. Now, I think, who knows where it will be in ten years' time? Nonpartisan support. From its earliest history, the association has been nonpartisan. The original founding group had members who were connected with the range of political parties as they were at that time. These were also the days of wide divisions among different churchgoers, yet Catholic, Protestant and Jewish groups were all interested in the welfare of the blind community and worked together. In modern times, the association has maintained this stance in regard to religion and politics. It has had no allegiance with religious groups or political parties. At times, representatives from both sides of the political fence have served on the board of directors at the same time. Most recently, former Federal Liberal MP Ross McLean and Dr Jeff Gallup, former Labour Premier of WA, worked together at board level for the association. Dr Jeff Gallup, January 2004, at the Czech presentation for a library capital grant. Dr Gallup reported that more than 25,000 Western Australians benefit enormously from a wide range of statewide services. Blindness is recognised as a significant health and social issue causing major adverse health outcomes with profound social and financial consequences for both the individual and the whole community. On an individual level, the life-changing consequences of losing one's sight can be devastating. 
the cost to the community is considerable and will increase with the predicted growth in the number of people who are blind or vision impaired. It is estimated that by 2016, the number of people who are blind or vision impaired in Western Australia will increase by 57%. The biggest growth is expected to be among people 65 years and over, with a 77% increase. The increase is due primarily to a greater number of premature births, diabetes, now the leading cause of blindness among younger adults, undetected glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration, the main cause of vision impairment among seniors. In recent years, much of the association's focus has been on the redevelopment of this site to ensure that facilities are in place to meet the increasing demand for services. The association's master plan identified the need for an $11 million redevelopment of the Victoria Park site, which will include the Braille and Talking Book Library, the Confident Living Centre, the Technology Training and Employment Centre, the Guide Dog Discovery Centre, the Centre for Children, the Community Education and Training Centre. I know that for many years the library has been operating from within inadequate accommodation, constraining the services it could provide. The outdated and substandard building and facilities could not support new technologies. Unless the move to digital recording is made, the library and its stock, valued at over $1 million, will become obsolete. The library is of great importance for people who are blind or vision impaired, as their access to local or state libraries can be severely limited because of mobility and accessibility of stock. Through a range of new technologies, the new library will allow the association to increase the number of consumers accessing library services, also improving and expanding these services to clients in regional WA. The state government strongly supports the work of the association and it is now my great pleasure to announce that we will contribute a capital grant of $2 million for the construction and equipping of the Braille and Talking Book Library. For people of all ages, the joy of losing oneself in an absorbing book could be denied if appropriate facilities are not provided. In this statement, the Premier echoed sentiments expressed in 1913 when the association was founded. Page 135, Chapter 6, Building Independence into the 21st Century Responding to Needs and Building Independence into the 21st Century I would like to acknowledge and thank all the exceptional people who make us what we are, the men and women, young and old, who comprise the client body. They exhibit a combination of courage, determination and perseverance which humbles me every day. The volunteers who tirelessly give of themselves and their time. And of course, my fellow staff members who are here to make a difference. Michael Pereira, Visibility Sport and Recreation Program Coordinator, 1st of November 2013. At the 100-year mark, Visibility welcomed Dr. Claire Allen as the Chief Executive Officer, CEO. Claire is the fourth CEO since the important 1977 amalgamation combined the strengths of the former Braille Society and the Guide Dog Movement. Claire brought with her 20 years of senior management and CEO experience in the community and private sector. 
Her focus for the association into the next century is customer service, leadership, innovation and people, ensuring that a sustainable organisation will be around for many more generations. Partnerships of many kinds. Partnerships have been integral to the growth and development of visibility, from the symbolic partnership of a dog and a blind person through to a band of neighbours uniting to raise funds with spectacular Christmas lights, partnership is fundamental. Babinger. The partnership of a guide dog and owner is so interwoven that it is described in the singular as a unit. The unique Babinger ceremony is held to celebrate this life-changing partnership when a guide dog is paired with its new owner. Babinger is a local Aboriginal word from the Noongar people who belong to the land around Perth. It relates both to a journey together and a relationship. During the ceremony, each partnership is acknowledged with a special tactile plate with a paw print of the guide dog and a hand print of the owner. The ceremony is also an opportunity for the association to formally acknowledge the multifaceted partnerships behind each trained dog. The guide dog program is 100% community funded through donations, bequests and other forms of community support. A number of these ceremonies are held annually as dogs are paired with owners and new relationships are celebrated. The story of Ida, the black Labrador paired with Michael Pullinger, provides insight into this event that brings joy and freedom to the owner. Both Michael and Ida attended the ceremony and all who had been involved in the creation of their partnership were there to congratulate them. Puppy raisers Glenda and Bruce Buckley raised Ida from eight weeks of age until her maturity. They were visibly moved when they handed their beloved charge onto the next stage of her life, but they said, We wanted Ida to change someone's life, to see her go on. It makes it all worthwhile. Bruce Buckley, Puppy Raiser, Babinga Ceremony, July 2014. The ceremony is the gift of independence for the new guide dog owner, and the work done by puppy raisers leads to this independence. Chasing Butterflies and Puppy Raisers an integral part of the association's success and work with the vision-impaired community has been developing and supporting the role of puppy raisers. This special group of volunteers takes puppies at eight weeks and care for them until they mature. Puppy raisers take the youngsters from the secure comfort of their litter mates and mother to commence the process of socialisation, basic training and behaviour management. This is the first step over a two-year process to raise and train a guide dog. The puppy raisers, together with their families, take responsibility for the care and basic training of a young puppy to enable him or her to fulfil its potential and become a guide dog. The puppy raiser is supported by staff at the association who monitor the puppy's development and provide advice and additional training. It is the puppy raiser who manages the loss of shoes, rubber hoses and other household items as they attempt to puppy-proof the house and yard. It is the puppy raiser who embarks on the road to toilet training and in particular toileting on command, a must for a guide dog. The magical appearance of holes in the yard, squabbles with the cat and demand for attention are some of the many challenges puppy raisers take on to prepare a puppy to be firstly a model canine citizen and secondly a trusted guide dog. Puppy raisers must focus on good manners and apply the gentle art of firm correction. They familiarise the growing puppy so that he or she is confident on public transport and is familiar with shops, 
hairdressers, gyms and workplaces. This opens up the world for a blind or vision-impaired person. Puppy raisers take an early 2014 guide dog graduate like Bill through his boisterous puppyhood when he liked shiny objects, butterflies and chasing shadows. After his training, he is now a focused, willing and professional guide dog. Bill's puppy raiser ruefully remarked at his graduation that she would no longer have an excellent strategy for managing long meetings. Bill regularly attended meetings at a university campus with his puppy raiser. He became famous for his heavy sighs and grunts when he felt that the meeting had gone on for long enough and that it was time to move on. The final stage of puppy raising requires the now young adult dog to be transferred to a training home, ready to receive intensive, regular, guiding skill training. The person or family in the training home must deliver the dog to the training centre in Victoria Park every day, a big commitment for this group of carers. The culmination of all this effort at a Babinga ceremony is a Thanksgiving celebration tinged with emotion. Puppy raisers must farewell a beloved family member to enable another life-changing partnership and journey to begin. Miracles, magic or just good training. Training at Guide Dogs WA is now under the watchful and thoughtful eye of Phil Stanley, who is an internationally accredited guide dog instructor with 33 years' experience in the United Kingdom, United States and Australia. He does not have rose-coloured glasses about the mystical powers of guide dogs. It is the instructors who are highly skilled. With wry humour, Stanley points out that guide dogs cannot actually understand traffic signals or, indeed, read bus numbers, as some people think. However, on many occasions, guide dogs do bring about miracles in the lives of the people who are partnered with them. This is the result of selective breeding and skilful, consistent and lengthy training, which draws on the innate qualities of the canine species and its desire to fit in with a pack and follow a pack leader's direction. Whether the canine is a wolf waiting his turn to eat after the pack leader or a Labrador waiting to be directed to go forward, the behavioural trait and instinct is much the same. The canines are opportunistic in the wild and one of Stanley's funniest stories relates to the opportunistic instinct in dogs. On one occasion, while training a new guide dog and handler, Stanley had set a practice task to walk to an agreed meeting point some few blocks away. He then watched and followed at a distance to ensure their safety as a newly-fledged partnership. Also on the busy street was a woman pushing a buggy filled with groceries, including a fresh-baked baguette poking appetisingly out of the shopping bags. Stanley lost sight of the dog and handler as other pedestrians filled the footpath. As he rushed to catch sight of them, he was dismayed to see the guide dog trotting jauntily with the breadstick in his mouth. The handler was blissfully unaware of her canine companion's opportunistic success. Stanley let the handler know and then sought to make amends with the shopper, who was now short of a baguette. However, with much laughter, she told Phil that it was well worth the cost of a breadstick for the entertainment, and she went on her way. Stanley did not say whether the dog was allowed to eat its ill-gotten gain. Upon entering Visibility's Perrin Centre on any given day, there are often trainers in sight working with young dogs. Sometimes an entertaining puppy kindergarten is in session and very young puppies are learning social and play skills while also learning to focus on a human pack leader. 
The devoted puppy raisers bring the puppies in for these classes, another responsibility in the raising and training of a guide dog. Stanley says at this time future guide dogs have butterfly brains and there is considerable training and development needed as they mature to ensure the transformation from a frolicking puppy to a confident guide dog. The maturing dogs are monitored so the decision to start formal training can be made at the appropriate time for the individual dog. The dogs usually begin this at about 18 months of age and for the dogs this is big school. They spend the day at the parent centre in an office with carers between their training sessions. Around the parent centre, a visitor might come across a trainer like Monique Withers, patiently standing at the top of some steep stairs with a young dog. When questioned, Withers said that this particular dog is frightened of going down. Rather than bribe or cajole the dog, Withers stands patiently and encouragingly, giving her young charge the opportunity to adjust and then take the necessary steps down in her own time. On other occasions, Withers can be seen with a dog wearing his harness for the very first time. As the dog passes through a narrow doorway, he is knocked because the harness has caused him to bump into the wall. He is not used to the extra width of the solid leather frame on his body. He has to get used to the feel of the harness for two reasons. Wearing the harness signals to him that he is on duty and the harness is crucial for the dog to lead a handler confidently. Withers, very gently, lets the dog know he's all right and builds the dog's confidence to keep going through narrow doorways and learning about the harness. Stanley explains the key concepts of training, confirming the dog must be pleasant to be around and be well-behaved. This will enable the dog to adjust to any social setting and be taken anywhere. In Australia, guide dogs can freely and legally go anywhere that their owners go, excluding operating theatres and zoos. Therefore, the socialisation and good manners training initially undertaken by the puppy raisers is very important. When the formal training commences, it revolves around the straight-line concept of moving forward until a surface change is detected, for example, a curb or stairs. When the dog stops, the handler knows their role is to work out what has caused the dog to stop. This is an invaluable safety feature, helping prevent people with a vision impairment from stumbling onto stairs or roadways. This is also a good example of working together. The dog uses its skills to detect the change. The handler uses their skills to work out the cause of the surface change. The straight-line concept then needs to incorporate obstacle avoidance, so the guide dog learns to avoid obstacles on the intended route. This is known as right shoulder work, and Stanley admits it is one of the most challenging and time-consuming aspects of the training process. Not only does the dog need to learn to allow for the width of their handler plus themselves to pass through a gap, they also need to consider the height of a possible overhanging obstacle such as a sign or a tree branch. This is a significant additional concept. Another major focus area is traffic management, which cannot be easily taught through experience because dangerous situations cannot be safely simulated. Stanley says responsibility rests with the handler to decide when it is safe to cross a road. When a guide dog owner tells Stanley that his dog saved him, he gently reminds the owner that good luck may have also played a role. Another little-known aspect of guide dog training is the importance of reinforcing the training throughout the working life of the dog. A dog is not a machine that, once programmed, continues to operate in the same way. 
After graduation, the owner must adhere to a training regime and routine so the concepts are reinforced on a daily basis. This is why owners of guide dogs need to understand the unit concept where they are in partnership with this dog. The owner has an important role to play in training. For example, if the dog makes a mistake and bumps into an obstacle, the owner must retrace their steps and take the dog back to practice it again and avoid the bump. This takes commitment and learning by the owner to ensure that the work continues and that the precious resource and investment is not wasted. Matching dogs and handlers. The matching process is considerably more complex than the untrained bystander might realise. Like people, dogs are individuals with different strengths and abilities, and an important task in the training process is the matching of a dog with a suitable owner and vice versa. To commence this process, the would-be owners start to learn using a harness without a dog. Instead, they have a guide dog instructor attached. Surprisingly, this gives the instructor a wealth of useful information about the client and supports effective individual training. The instructor uses this trial activity to assess walking speed, ability to motivate a dog, ability to follow, and other strengths and weaknesses. The matching process includes taking the dog to meet the potential owner, other family, and pets. The newly matched owner gets to know their dog, takes it for walks, and often meets puppy raisers, sponsors, and others who are involved in the dog's life. The personalised nature of the matching process is crucial to the success of partnership. Clients live all over WA and pursue vastly different individual lives and activities. The skill in the association's work is to match dogs and people to maximise the benefit of the partnership. Puppy raisers create a lifestyle for the dog, building up lots of experience in places that a dog might need to go as a guide dog. This repertoire of experience, sounds, sights and opportunities ensure that each dog has a wide breadth of knowledge. Potential guide dog owners are assessed for suitability. Guide dogs need to be exercised and walked regularly to maintain their fitness and training. This influences the activity levels the human companion must have to be successful with a guide dog. Life-changing. Dogs will be dogs, and they may steal a breadstick or take a moment to lick a plate conveniently left at nose level, but miracles do happen. When the right dog has been skillfully trained and is placed with the right owner, who has also been well-trained and has responded to the challenge, many miracles occur. Acquiring a guide dog means very different things to different people. It can be a life-changing event for one person to be able to walk by themselves a few hundred metres to a local shop and make purchases without having to worry about a sighted companion. To others, with different needs and interests, a guide dog can be the start of a busier, active and independent life, being able to move freely by walking, riding on trains and catching buses. Whether it is small increases in freedom or a large one, both are equally important and life-changing for the client. Stanley says that many clients tell him before they acquire a guide dog they hate going to crowded areas and shopping and worry constantly about bumping into people and obstacles when they are out. Becoming a unit brings about physical changes. Owners are more relaxed, their heads raised, their shoulders back and they're more confident. Both the dog and owner are proud of the work that they have done. Guide dogs are a prime mobility aid and owners have enhanced self-esteem and confidence when they work with one. 
there is tremendous job satisfaction in this special role in the lives of guide dog units. Stanley has many stories related to clients and experiences. One most memorable, demonstrating the emotions surrounding the acquisition of a dog, concerns a guide dog named Ruby. When Stanley advised the potential owner she was being matched with a black Labrador named Ruby, the would-be owner burst into tears and left the room. Stanley was very surprised and concerned because would-be owners usually respond as though this is a dream come true. He later discovered the potential owner had 12 months previously lost her daughter named Ruby. The client said she had felt that Ruby would reach out in some way and she saw this placement and special dog as just such an event. She was overcome with emotion and her tears were tears of joy. The trainer's remarkable skills bring out the best in dogs and clients to promote safety. They recognise strengths to build confidence when navigating in the community. Trainers observe that it is a unique privilege to contribute to life-changing experiences and support the association's work. From my family to your family, puppy raiser Joe Oliver to the new owner of guide dog Angus at his graduation ceremony, 16th of April, 2014. Sponsors. In the background, supporting the work of developing guide dogs are the sponsors. There is a significant cost to the raising and training of a guide dog, and the dogs are always provided to clients at no charge. This is a fundamental principle of the association's program. Clients are not expected to organise fundraising activities to meet the cost of the dog. Guide dogs are a gift, freely given to vision-impaired people who exercise personal choice to participate in this form of mobility training and take on the responsibility of a dog. Therefore, the partnership with sponsors who cover these costs is crucial. Sponsors range from those who prefer to be anonymous, community groups, individuals, families and businesses. A Babinga ceremony acknowledges sponsors who take great pleasure in attending and seeing the results of their donations. One sponsor remarked at a Babinga ceremony that he knew he had brought joy to a person's life and that he felt grateful for this opportunity. Attempts are made to secure a dedicated sponsor for each dog, and often the sponsor is directly linked to the dog. In this way, they can see the development of the dog as he or she grows through puppyhood and commences formal training. In the case of the lovely Ida, mentioned previously and matched with Michael Pullinger, the sponsor was Vicky Cottrell, a McDonald's restaurant franchisee. Vicky had a long-standing personal interest in the guide dog movement, having aspired to be a trainer in her youth. Many years later, in sponsoring Ida, she honoured her mother Ida's memory by the use of this name. She wished Michael Pullinger, Many years of joy with this girl. I can hear my beautiful mother saying, How wonderful! Vicky Cottrell, guide dog sponsor for Ida at Babinga Ceremony, July 2014. Michael, in turn, responded to Vicky's comments. He was emotional in his formal acceptance speech as he acknowledged the feelings he had. He was thrilled that he could walk with his head up and he was delighted that his wife would have more freedom because she would not have to be responsible for taking him everywhere he needed to go. To strengthen and build strategic partnerships that promote better outcomes for our consumers. Strategic Objective, Visibility, Strategic Direction, 2014-2017 to 2017. 
I am a caretaker to make sure that there are structures in place for the future so that the association is here in another hundred years' time. I am just carrying a baton. The clients will dictate what they want, and we have to be flexible enough to be able to provide it, and also provide the best. Debbie Schaefer, President since 2011, Personal Interview, July 2014. Prairie Dunes, the little cul-de-sac that could. Partnerships include communities that rally together and do amazing things. One of these is the Prairie Dunes cul-de-sac located in Connolly, a suburb of Perth. Since 1999, this group of 20 or so houses in a neat little suburban street have conducted their own unique fundraising to support a guide dog in training. Each December, this dedicated group of residents festoon their houses with Christmas lights. They create such a spectacular display that traffic jams occur in the usually quiet suburb and double-decker buses regularly tour the street to see the lights. Over time, the Prairie Dunes cul-de-sac has provided funds for six guide dog pups, raising nearly $150,000 through the donations eager sightseers contribute to see the spectacular light display. Teenagers who visited when the display first started now bring their children to see the lights. Residents from the cul-de-sac have attended Babinga ceremonies to see and enjoy the outcome of their neighbourly commitment. Technology I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM, 1943. There is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Ken Olson, president, chairman and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, 1977. Fortunately for the association, its capacity to embrace technology has been open-minded and adaptive. There are certainly no mistaken predictions like those just mentioned, which place limits on its clients. Through its history, it has explored and experimented on behalf of its clients. As the world of technology has changed, the association has ensured that advances are adapted and implemented for clients. It was quick to implement email and create a website, and was one of the first charitable organisations to do so. The mobile phone. A service which has changed remarkably in a hundred years is the telephone. While there have been many significant advances that have benefited people with a vision impairment, mobile phones are one of the most important. For the mainstream community, phones have rapidly become almost an appendage. The ladies of the Braille Society would be very curious if they chanced upon a group of commuters waiting for a bus or observed a group of train passengers with their heads bowed and a small device in their hands. The first iPhone with built-in accessibility options was released in 2010. The iPhone 3GS, although a touchscreen, included a screen reader. This marked the beginning of a phone revolution for visibility clients, and for under $800, a mainstream device was accessible. Prior to 2010, vision-impaired clients needed to spend more than $1,000 on a phone, then obtain and install additional software to make it accessible. Now, there are inexpensive Android smartphones with accessibility options readily available. In 2014, a number of budget smartphones have been released that, although not fully accessible straight out of the box, can have screen reading and magnification software plus other options installed at little or no cost. 
Now, for under $200, vision-impaired clients have accessible, mainstream smartphones. Access Consultancy The dissemination of relevant accessible information is formalised by the modern Access Consultancy. Through this service, Visibility responds to queries from outside organisations interested in ensuring that their facilities, websites, documents and services are accessible to people with a disability. This consultancy service is provided for all people with disabilities, not vision impairment alone. Other forms of advice provided include improving the accessibility of PDF-formatted consumer bills. PDFs are open standard, which means that they can be created in many different ways, some of which cannot be interpreted by adaptive aids for visibility clients. One of the most common problems experienced occurs when a PDF has been created as an image. This means that information is there visually, but screen reading software will interpret the image as a blank piece of paper. Since the early days of the web, advocacy to improve accessibility for clients has been a primary function of the association. The International Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG, were first introduced in 1999 and set global standards for website design, the first attempt at addressing the accessibility of the web. Visibility takes an advocacy role in the promotion of WCAG and a leadership role in disseminating information to clients. The WCAG standards, since their inception, have led to improvements in web design and also ways of instructing web designers on how to design accessible websites. Web and application developers look to the WCAG standards to design and redesign their sites. Accessibility guidelines affect design in many ways. They guide the use of colour. For example, yellow on a white background is difficult to see. Another type of change to enhance accessibility is adjusting the page structure for ease of navigation. Some websites have entire pages without any headings, making it difficult to navigate for people with vision impairment. It is also important to include alternate text for any image that appears, so that a screen reader can identify the alternate text attached to any image, and the context will then be explained. All buttons on a web page or in an application need to be labelled with an explanation. Otherwise, a vision-impaired person using a screen reader will hear button X unlabeled and therefore not know what this button does, even though visually the button may be labeled. Art installations can present different problems to people with a vision impairment. For example, a physical structure that may protrude at odd angles with no warning provided is a danger. Without tactile ground surface indicators or similar, a person with vision impairment may walk straight into an art installation. Painting on a footpath and adjacent road can cause confusion for someone with low vision. Where does the footpath end and the road begin? What sort of glare could occur from the colours used? Accessible design develops strategies to incorporate information in other ways besides visually. Another very important type of advice provided through the consultancy is in design work on building models to embed accessibility when constructed. Models are a representation of the proposed building and are the first step in designing a truly accessible building. A model will identify where doors are to be located, where the stairs and ramps are in relation to the entrance, 
how it is envisaged that tactile ground surface indicators will be used within the building. This type of advice is provided to many different organisations, including the Police Department, Transperth, Synergy, local governments and numerous not-for-profit organisations. Statewide Services The advent of modern technology has enabled the association to increase its effective reach outside the metropolitan area across WA, where 25% of its clients live. A diagnosis of vision loss is isolating and challenging for people living in the metropolitan area. This experience is compounded for people in regional and remote areas. The association has provided direct assistance in the Kimberley for almost 20 years. Visibility collaborates with local agencies and sends specialist expertise twice a year. They meet with remote local communities such as Yongangora and Wangkajunka to teach eye health topics, prevention strategies and the treatment of common eye problems. They employ a train-the-trainer model to upskill local residents. Visibility has a range of other regional services. There are offices to promote mobility with occupational therapists in Mandurah, Bunbury, Albany and Geraldton. In addition, the association partners with the Lions Eye Institute to provide other services to the Pilbara and Kimberley. From Musty Library to the largest digital library in the world. The ladies of the Braille Society might get an additional surprise if they went to see the library for blind people they started all those years ago. Much of it is no longer visible or tangible, yet it is the largest digital library in the world, catering solely for print-disabled clients. The collection and client base continues to grow. In the 2013 financial year, more than 78,000 books were borrowed from the library, a long way from the beginning when the number of books added to the Braille Library collection annually could be counted on one hand. Braille books are no longer even stored at the association, as these have been centralised nationally to enable countrywide access. The collection of books on cassette has been transformed into a collection of digital, downloadable audio book files. The audio files are produced in a special format known as DAISY, which is a worldwide standard specifically developed for people who have a print disability. DAISY can be played on any MP3 player, including iPod, mobile phone, PDA, portable music player, phone, computer or tablet. A book can be navigated by section, chapter and even page number. This allows a vision-impaired reader to flip through just like reading a traditional printed text. The downloadable book services began in 2011 and Visibility provides international service to 13 countries including the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Bahamas, Belize, India, Kenya, Malaysia and South Africa. For clients without access to the internet or knowledge of computers, digital books are transferred onto a special reusable USB cartridge known as a book drive. This can then be played back on a dedicated digital talking book player such as PlexTalk or Victor Reader. Library borrowers are kept up to date on new titles via screen readers which interpret newsletters, Twitter feeds and the online shelf list. The Library Digitization Project was initiated in 2009 and has created a whole new range of possibilities for print-disabled people. 
the accessible online catalogue allows borrowers to search through more than 60,000 titles and immediately download or request the production of digital books they want from around the world. It has the largest collection of Braille music scores in the Southern Hemisphere. More than 3,000 library clients in Australia and around the world access these. The library at Visibility is linked to approximately 260 other libraries and institutions across the globe, including the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, Tape Aids for the Blind in South Africa, and the Dyslexia and Specific Learning Disabilities Association of South Australia. All of these member associations can request material from the Visibility Library. One of the most requested library services is high-quality, synthetic-voice-narrated audiobooks for professional and educational purposes. The association also produces accessible newsletters, memos, manuals, textbooks, novels and technical documents in over 30 languages. From the President Changes the association made during the capital campaign to achieve Building Our Vision led to new people from many different walks of life making contact with the association for the first time. From these happenstance encounters came new leadership and vision. The current president, Debbie Schaefer, described her initial encounter at a fundraising evening more than ten years ago. At this event, one of the employees of Visibility played a key role. Ryan Honshuten was the guest speaker at the fundraising evening. Honshuten works in the Children and Youth Services Department of the Association. He has a significant history with visibility as a very young client, mentor and employee. Honshuten is able to positively influence and inspire people and this is how he inspired Schaefer that evening. We went along and like anything, it was the right place at the right time. I came... I listened to Ryan Honshuten, who was 29 at the time. Ryan is blind. He lost his first eye before he was two months old and his second eye by the age of three through cancer. I was captivated by him. There was nothing he couldn't do. I became involved and we had a function at our home. That was my foray into the world of the Association for the Blind. Schaefer's response to Honshuten's inspirational speech on that fateful evening led her to Margaret Crowley, the then CEO of the association. I loved the people and the ethos. Then I was co-opted onto the board because I was passionate. It has been my second home, but I have a lifespan on the board, due to the time limits imposed on board members by the Constitution, until 2017. I will try and make those years count. The association has been in a natural progression since 1913. It has continued and been very successful and innovative in its time. We are now entering a different stage in the history of visibility with the Federal Government National Disability Insurance Scheme. We need to be the best at everything we do or what we choose to do. We have to take a wider, worldwide view, especially with what is happening in the world today. We can't afford to be inward-thinking, we have to be outward thinking. In addition, the National Association for Guide Dogs has been transformed. Claire Allen, CEO of Visibility, is also the first CEO of the newly constituted national group. There has always been communication and good relationships between the state groups. However, these changes enable one national voice for guide dogs and more cohesive services. 
In addition, and of great importance, is that this group will be able to set national guide dog standards, which are critical for the safety of vision-impaired handlers and the well-being of the dogs themselves. Conclusion Paul Laffey, in his History of the Association through to 1977, described the Braille Society as being able to skip nimbly through the years while adapting to changes and challenges along the way. His concluding paragraph, written after the merger to form the Association for the Blind in 1977, is still true today. The can-do spirit has taken a number of forms over the years. At the beginning, perhaps its most outstanding expression was manifested in the society's refusal to participate in the political, economic and, above all, sectarian divisiveness that marked and marred so many early 20th-century social institutions. Catholics and Protestants, the wealthy and struggling, conservatives and socialists, all pitched in together to build and maintain the Braille Society, ignoring temporarily the differences which might otherwise have soured relations. All understood that Braille business was more important than politics, class or religion. Technology. Computers have changed the lives of us all in this room and around the world, but I think they've changed the lives of we blind people more than any other group. And so I want to tell you about the interaction between computer-based adaptive technology and the many volunteers who helped me over the years to become the person I am today. It's an interaction between volunteers, passionate inventors and technology, and it's a story that many other blind people could tell. Ron McCallum, TEDx, Sydney, July 2013 most trusted charity. Like the unique trust shared between a blind or vision-impaired person and their guide dog, Australians voted Guide Dogs Australia as their most trusted charity in the Reader's Digest Trusted Charity poll in both 2013 and 2014. Those surveyed in the Reader's Digest poll indicated that this trust is defined based on transparency, commitment to quality, reliability, effectiveness, being well-established and demonstrated consistency as an organisation. Client feedback. There is not a day goes by that I don't count myself as one of the lucky ones to have received such a gift as my guide dog Sally. I had no idea of the impact Sally would have on my life. The love I feel for her and the difference she has made, not just to my mobility, but to my sense of self-worth, are irreplaceable. Belinda Freebody, 2013, partnered with guide dog Sally. Ryan Honshuten. Ryan Honshuten wears prosthetic eyes, as he has no vision at all. His connection to the association goes back more than 30 years. Active and adventurous, he is pictured in the annual report of 1984 as a tiny boy with boxing gloves. In 1988, he was awarded the Greg Buck Memorial Sports Award for Juniors an award offered in memory of a young Braille volunteer who died tragically. Honshuten has taught himself to confidently move around in the Perrin Centre, where he works, without using a cane or a guide dog. He has a sense of humour, and the long-serving property manager, Mark Druvens, recounted an incident in which he too was involved. Druvens was taking Honshuten to an appointment, so he walked Honshuten to the car and asked him to wait while he went back for something he'd forgotten. 
Honshuten decided to sit in the driver's seat and start up the car so that it appeared he was going to reverse out of the car park. When Druvens returned to the car, he came upon Honshuten's line manager looking at the car with a shocked expression. Druvens, also given to humour, jumped in the passenger seat and blithely waved to the horrified woman. Finally regaining her voice, she asked, Mark, is Ryan okay to drive? Druvens and Honshuten both chortled. They had accomplished their aim, and they then swapped seats. Honshuten's lengthy relationship with visibility means that many people know him. One of the former board directors, Peter Hickson, recounted his own story about Honshuten's adaptive skills. I've had a bit to do with Ryan, and so I'm driving him home one night, and he's just saying, oh, down here, turn right, turn left, turn whatever, and you know, he's been blind from birth. But he can just tell. He can feel how fast you're going somehow, and then tell you, all right, you're going to be turning right here, left here, etc., and drive you through the suburb to his house, just by feel, and it's quite amazing. Peter Hickson, Personal Interview, May 2014. Ryan Honshuten has a long history with the organisation as a client, staff member and volunteer. As a child, he won many awards and most recently, as an adult, he competed in the 2015 Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. Page 153. Epilogue. Our centenary marks a pivotal time of growth and change for visibility. Substantial investment in our services and our people has positioned our organisation as a leader that is passionate, prepared and focused on the needs of the community. We're reshaping our traditional service delivery approach, embracing business practices and growing our services. These new systems ensure we can deliver quality services in a new National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS, and aged care environment. As always, we continue to look to the future, to innovate to meet the changing needs of Western Australians, to forge new partnerships to achieve the best outcomes for our consumers, and to build better pathways to ensure every person with vision impairment who needs support finds it. Visibility is committed to the continued development of a multidisciplinary team of professional, allied health staff. Expect a dynamic organisation that's ready to take the lead in transforming the lives of Western Australians with disability. Join us as we work towards the next 100 years. Dr Claire Allen, Chief Executive Officer. Page 155. References List. References List. Print. Aloma Jan, M. 2013. Dogs in Action. Working Dogs and Their Stories. Exile Printing. Anderson, R. O.A.M. Undated. History of Sport and Recreation. Association for the Blind of W.A. Incorporated. Personal Unpublished Memoir. Association for the Blind, W.A. 1970-2013. Annual Reports. Branson, V. and Rutt, W. 1982. Lead with a Watchful Eye, The Silver Jubilee of Guide Dogs in Australia, Griffin Press Limited, published by the Royal Guide Dogs for the Blind Association of Australia. Crew, J, Morgan, WH, Morley, N, Clark, A, Lamb, G, Parsons, R, Mukhtar, A, Ng, J, 
Crowley, M. and Semmons, J. 2011. Prevalence of Blindness in Western Australia, a population study using capture and recapture techniques. Frank M. and Clark B. 1958. First Lady of the Seeing Eye, published by The World's Work, 1913, Limited. Hasluck, A. 1966. To Guide and Guard, an early history of guide dogs in Australia. University of Western Australia Press. Ierson, P. 1991. Another Pair of Eyes. The Story of Guide Dogs in Britain. Pelham Books. Kent, A. 1989. Independence on Four Legs. Personal Memoir. Laffey, P. 2004. In Braille Light. University of Western Australia Press. Lash, J.P. 1980. Helen and Teacher. The Story of Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan Macy. Delacorte Press, Lawrence. Manning, H. With Peter and Pearl Sumner. 1980. Through Blindness. Published by the Christian Foundation for the Blind. McCreeth, G. 2011. The Politics of Blindness. From Charity to Parity. Granville Island Publishing, British Columbia, Canada. McKay, V. M., 1988. L. S. Stan Perrin, A Biography. Mead, E. R., 1958. The Pathfinder, A Tribute to the First Australian Trained Guide Dog. Websites. Association for the Blind of W.A., 2013, August 13. Towards a Brighter Future, Centenary Souvenir Liftout, The West Australian, retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash info hyphen the west dot anitel dot net forward slash west advertising forward slash feature forward slash two zero one three zero eight one three forward slash downloads forward slash feature dot pdf Association for the Blind of WA twenty fourteen Our History Retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www.guidedogswa.com.au forward slash about hyphen us forward slash corporate hyphen information forward slash our hyphen history forward slash Australian Centenary of Federation, 2000. A Place in the World, Culture. Retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www.abc.net.au forward slash federation forward slash fed story forward slash ep5 forward slash ep5 underscore culture dot htm cnib open bracket n dot d dot close bracket a history of guide dogs retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www dot cnib dot ca forward slash 
en forward slash living forward slash safe hyphen travel forward slash pages forward slash history hyphen dogs hyphen zero eight zero seven dot aspx Curtin University Library Jeff Gallup Collection Speeches by Jeff Gallup at the Association for the Blind WA Premier of Western Australia 2001 to 2006 Ewart N FBIPDT 2014 A Potted History of Guide Dogs Used by the Blind Over the Centuries Retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www dot london dog forum dot co dot uk forward slash a hyphen potted hyphen history hyphen of hyphen guide hyphen dogs hyphen through hyphen the hyphen centuries hyphen c eight zero four dot h t m l first world war two thousand and nine weapons of war poison gas retrieved from h t t p colon forward slash forward slash w w w dot first world war dot com forward slash weaponry forward slash gas dot h t m Guide Dogs Victoria, 2014, History, retrieved from https colon forward slash forward slash www dot guidedogsvictoria dot com dot au forward slash about hyphen us forward slash history forward slash Guide Dogs United Kingdom, retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www.guidedogs.org.uk forward slash media forward slash 1512145 forward slash about us underscore detailed history of guide dogs dot doc retrieved from https colon forward slash forward slash www dot guidedogswa dot com dot au forward slash resources forward slash history hyphen guide guard dot doc international guide dog federation 2014 history of guide dogs retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www dot igdf dot org dot uk forward slash about hyphen us forward slash facts hyphen and hyphen figures forward slash history hyphen of hyphen guide hyphen dogs Ford slash Poppelstadt open bracket in D close bracket A Germany historical demographical data of the urban centers 
retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash info forward slash Europe forward slash Germany T dot htm Popelstadt open bracket N D close bracket B Germany Historical Demographical Data of the Administrative Division before nineteen fifty retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash info forward slash Europe forward slash Germany R dot htm Stad Oldenburg open bracket N D close bracket A Historical City Centre retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www.oldenburg.de forward slash Sprach version forward slash GB forward slash tourist hyphen information forward slash sightseeing hyphen highlights forward slash historic hyphen city hyphen center dot html Stadt Oldenburg open bracket N D close bracket B History of Oldenburg retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash oldenburg dot de forward slash Sprach version forward slash GB forward slash tourist hyphen information forward slash city hyphen portrait forward slash history hyphen of hyphen Oldenburg dot HTML Tourism Western Australia open bracket N D close bracket Perth Beaches Retrieved from HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www dot Western Australia dot com forward slash EN forward slash things underscore two underscore C underscore and underscore do forward slash sun underscore surf underscore and underscore C underscore life forward slash pages forward slash Perth underscore beaches dot ASPX World Health Organization 2014 Prevention of Blindness and Visual Impairment Causes of Blindness and Visual Impairment Retrieved from HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www dot who dot int forward slash blindness forward slash causes forward slash en World Health Organization 2014 Visual Impairment and Blindness Retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www dot who dot 
int forward slash media center forward slash facts sheets forward slash fs282 forward slash en. Zapotoshny, W.S., 2007. The Use of Poison Gas in World War I and the Effect on Society, P5. Retrieved from http colon forward slash forward slash www.wzaponline.com forward slash poison gas dot pdf. Interviews Anderson, Ron, Allen, Claire, Bauer, Gordon, Brownhill, Sarah, Bura, Dinesh, Crowley, Margaret, Dawson, Trevor, Dawson, Jenny, Druvens, Mark, Gooch, Clifford, Gunning, Dixie, Hickson, Peter, Manera, David, Needham, Elizabeth, Perrin, Stan, Schaefer, Debbie, Salossi, Carol, Stanley, Phil, Vosnakos, David, Staff Written Reflections, Blackburn, Ian, Pereira, Michael, Salossi, Carol, Vosnakos, David. Other Annual Reports and Minutes, Records of the Associations. Archival material held by the Association. Publications of the Associations. Braille, the magazine for those with vision, 1962 to 1967. Faithfully theirs. This book is copyright and has been recorded by Visibility Limited, formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, for the sole use of readers with a print disability in accordance with Section 200AB of the Australian Copyright Amendment Act 2006. No unauthorised copying, broadcasting or public performance of this work is permitted. That is the end of Advancing Vision by Louise Gray. Narrated by Tracy Parker, recorded by Susie Punch.